This is Audible. Listening Library presents The Maze Runner by James Dashner. Read for you by Mark Deakins. Chapter 1 He began his new life standing up, surrounded by cold darkness and stale, dusty air. Metal ground against metal. A lurching shudder shook the floor beneath him. He fell down at the sudden movement and shuffled backward on his hands and feet, drops of sweat beading on his forehead despite the cool air. His back struck a hard metal wall. He slid along it until he hit the corner of the room. Sinking to the floor, he pulled his legs up tight against his body, hoping his eyes would soon adjust to the darkness. With another jolt, the room jerked upward like an old lift in a mine shaft. Harsh sounds of chains and pulleys, like the workings of an ancient steel factory, echoed through the room, bouncing off the walls with a hollow, tinny whine. The lightless elevator swayed back and forth as it ascended, turning the boy's stomach sour with nausea. A smell like burnt oil invaded his senses, making him feel worse. He wanted to cry, but no tears came. He could only sit there, alone, waiting. My name is Thomas, he thought. That, that was the only thing he could remember about his life. He didn't understand how this could be possible. His mind functioned without flaw, trying to calculate his surroundings and predicament. Knowledge flooded his thoughts, facts and images, memories and details of the world and how it works. He pictured snow on trees, running down a leaf-strewn road, eating a hamburger, the moon casting a pale glow on a grassy meadow, swimming in a lake, a busy city square with hundreds of people bustling about their business. And yet he didn't know where he came from or how he'd gotten inside the dark lift or who his parents were. He didn't even know his last name. Images of people flashed across his mind, but there was no recognition, their faces replaced with haunted smears of color. He couldn't think of one person he knew or recall a single conversation. The room continued its ascent, swaying. Thomas grew immune to the ceaseless rattling of the chains that pulled him upward. A long time passed. Minutes stretched into hours, although it was impossible to know for sure because every second seemed an eternity. No, he was smarter than that. Trusting his instincts, he knew he'd been moving for roughly half an hour. Strangely enough, he felt his fear whisked away like a swarm of gnats caught in the wind, replaced by an intense curiosity. He wanted to know where he was and what was happening. With a groan and then a clonk, the rising room halted. The sudden change jolted Thomas from his huddled position and threw him across the hard floor. As he scrambled to his feet, he felt the room sway less and less until it finally stilled. Everything fell silent. A minute passed. Two. He looked in every direction but saw only darkness. He felt along the walls again, searching for a way out. But there was nothing, only the cool metal. He groaned in frustration, his echo amplified through the air, 
like the haunted moan of death. It faded, and silence returned. He screamed, called for help, pounded on the walls with his fists. Nothing. Thomas backed into the corner once again, folded his arms, and shivered, and the fear returned. He felt a worrying shudder in his chest, as if his heart wanted to escape, to flee his body. Someone help me! He screamed. Each word ripped his throat raw. A loud clank rang out above him, and he sucked in a startled breath as he looked up. A straight line of light appeared across the ceiling of the room, and Thomas watched as it expanded. A heavy grating sound revealed double sliding doors being forced open. After so long in darkness, the light stabbed his eyes. He looked away, covering his face with both hands. He heard noises above, voices, and fear squeezed his chest. Look at that shank. How old is he? Looks like a clunk in a t-shirt. You're the clunk, shuckface. Dude, it smells like feet down there. Hope you enjoyed the one-way trip, Greeny. Ain't no ticket back, bro. Thomas was hit with a wave of confusion, blistered with panic. The voices were odd, tinged with echo. Some of the words were completely foreign. Others felt familiar. He willed his eyes to adjust as he squinted toward the light and those speaking. At first he could see only shifting shadows, but they soon turned into the shapes of bodies. People bending over the hole in the ceiling, looking down at him, pointing. And then, as if the lens of a camera had sharpened its focus, the faces cleared. They were boys, all of them, some young, some older. Thomas didn't know what he'd expected, but seeing those faces puzzled him. They were just teenagers, kids. Some of his fear melted away, but not enough to calm his racing heart. Someone lowered a rope from above, the end of it tied into a big loop. Thomas hesitated, then stepped into it with his right foot and clutched the rope as he was yanked toward the sky. Hands reached down, lots of hands, grabbing him by his clothes, pulling him up. The world seemed to spin, a swirling mist of faces and color and light. A storm of emotions wrenched his gut, twisted and pulled. He wanted to scream, cry, throw up. The chorus of voices had grown silent, but someone spoke as they yanked him over the sharp edge of the dark box. And Thomas knew he'd never forget the words. Nice to meet you, Shank, the boy said. Welcome to the Glade. Chapter 2 The helping hands didn't stop swarming around him until Thomas stood up straight and had the dust brushed from his shirt and pants. Still dazzled by the light, he staggered a bit. He was consumed with curiosity but still felt too ill to look closely at his surroundings. His new companion said nothing as he swiveled his head around, trying to take it all in. As he rotated in a slow circle, the other kids snickered and stared. Some reached out and poked him with a finger. There had to be at least fifty of them, their clothes smudged and sweaty as if they'd been hard at work, all shapes and sizes and races, their hair of varying lengths. Thomas suddenly felt dizzy, his eyes flickering between the boys and the bizarre place in which he'd found himself. 
They stood in a vast courtyard several times the size of a football field, surrounded by four enormous walls made of gray stone and covered in spots with thick ivy. The walls had to be hundreds of feet high and formed a perfect square around them. Each side split in the exact middle by an opening as tall as the walls themselves. That, from what Thomas could see, led to passages and long corridors beyond. Look at the green bean, a scratchy voice said. Thomas couldn't see who it came from. Gonna break his shut neck checking out the new digs. Several boys laughed. Shut your hole, Galley. A deeper voice responded. Thomas focused back in on the dozens of strangers around him. He knew he must look out of it. He felt like he'd been drugged. A tall kid with blonde hair and a square jaw sniffed at him, his face devoid of expression. A short, pudgy boy fidgeted back and forth on his feet, looking up at Thomas with wide eyes. A thick, heavily muscled Asian kid folded his arms as he studied Thomas. His tight shirt sleeves rolled up to show off his biceps. A dark-skinned boy frowned, the same one who'd welcomed him. Countless others stared. Where am I? Thomas asked, surprised at hearing his voice for the first time in his salvageable memory. It didn't sound quite right, higher than he would have imagined. Nowhere good. This came from the dark-skinned boy. Just slim yourself, nice and calm. Which cape are he going to get? Someone shouted from the back of the crowd. I told you, Shuckface. A shrill voice responded. He's a clunk, so he'll be a slopper, no doubt about it. The kid giggled like he just said the funniest thing in history. Thomas once again felt a pressing ache of confusion, hearing so many words and phrases that didn't make sense. Shank, shuck, keeper, slopper. They popped out of the boy's mouth so naturally it seemed odd for him not to understand. It was as if his memory loss had stolen a chunk of his language. It was disorienting. Different emotions battled for dominance in his mind and heart: confusion, curiosity, panic, fear. But laced through it all was the dark feeling of utter hopelessness, like the world had ended for him, had been wiped from his memory and replaced with something awful. He wanted to run and hide from these people. The scratchy-voiced boy was talking. Even do that much? Bet my liver on it. Thomas still couldn't see his face. I said, "Shut your holes!" The dark boy yelled. "Keep yapping, and next break will be cut in half." This must be their leader. Thomas realized, hating how everyone gawked at him, he concentrated on studying the place the boy had called the glade. The floor of the courtyard looked like it was made of huge stone blocks, many of them cracked and filled with long grasses and weeds. An odd, dilapidated wooden building near one of the corners of the square contrasted greatly with the gray stone. A few trees surrounded it, their roots like gnarled hands digging into the rock floor for food. Another corner of the compound held gardens. From where he was standing, Thomas recognized corn, tomato plants, fruit trees. Across the courtyard from there stood wooden pens holding sheep and pigs and cows. A large grove of trees filled the final corner. The closest ones looked crippled and close to dying. The sky overhead was cloudless and blue, but Thomas could see no sign of the sun despite the brightness of the day. The creeping shadows of the walls didn't reveal the time or direction. 
It could be early morning or late afternoon. As he breathed in deeply, trying to settle his nerves, a mixture of smells bombarded him. Freshly turned dirt, manure, pine, something rotten and something sweet. Somehow he knew that these were the smells of a farm. Thomas looked back at his captors, feeling awkward but desperate to ask questions. Captors, he thought. Then, why did that word pop into my head? He scanned their faces, taking in each expression, judging them. One boy's eyes, flared with hatred, stopped him cold. He looked so angry, Thomas wouldn't have been surprised if the kid came at him with a knife. He had black hair, and when they made eye contact, the boy shook his head and turned away, walking toward a greasy iron pole with a wooden bench next to it. A multicolored flag hung limply at the top of the pole, no wind to reveal its pattern. Shaken, Thomas stared at the boy's back until he turned and took a seat. Thomas quickly looked away. Suddenly, the leader of the group, perhaps he was seventeen, took a step forward. He wore normal clothes, black t-shirt, jeans, tennis shoes, a digital watch. For some reason, the clothing here surprised Thomas. It seemed like everyone should be wearing something more menacing, like prison garb. The dark-skinned boy had short-cropped hair, his face clean-shaven. But other than the permanent scowl, there was nothing scary about him at all. It's a long story, Shank, the boy said. Piece by piece, you'll learn. I'll be taking you on the tour tomorrow. Till then, just don't break anything. He held a hand out. Name's Albie. He waited, clearly wanting to shake hands. Thomas refused. Some instinct took over his actions, and without saying anything, he turned away from Albie and walked to a nearby tree, where he plopped down to sit with his back against the rough bark. Panic swelled inside him once again, almost too much to bear. But he took a deep breath and forced himself to try to accept the situation. Just go with it, he thought. You won't figure out anything if you give in to fear. Then tell me, Thomas called out struggling to keep his voice even. Tell me the long story. Albie glanced at the friends closest to him, rolling his eyes, and Thomas studied the crowd again. His original estimate had been close. There were probably fifty to sixty of them, ranging from boys in their mid-teens to young adults like Albie, who seemed to be one of the oldest. At that moment, Thomas realized with a sickening lurch that he had no idea how old he was. His heart sank at the thought. He was so lost, he didn't even know his own age. Seriously, he said, giving up on the show of courage. Where am I? Albie walked over to him and sat down cross-legged. The crowd of boys followed and packed in behind. Heads popped up here and there, kids leaning in every direction to get a better look. If you ain't scared, Albie said, you ain't human. Act any different and I'd throw you off the cliff because it'd mean you're a psycho. The cliff? Thomas asked, blood draining from his face. Shuck it, Albie said, rubbing his eyes. Ain't no way to start these conversations, you get me? We don't kill shanks like you here, I promise. Just try and avoid being killed, survive, whatever. He paused and Thomas realized his face must have whitened even more when he heard that last part. Man... 
Albie said, then ran his hands over his short hair as he let out a long sigh. I ain't good at this. You're the first green bean since Nick was killed. Thomas's eyes widened, and another boy stepped up and playfully slapped Albie across the head. Wait for the bloody tour, Albie, he said, his voice thick with an odd accent. Kid's going to have a buggin' heart attack. Nothing even been heard yet. He bent down and extended his hand toward Thomas. Name's Newt, Greeny, and we'd all be right cheery if you'd forgive our clunk for brains new leader here. Thomas reached out and shook the boy's hand. He seemed a lot nicer than Albie. Newt was taller than Albie, too, but looked to be a year or so younger. His hair was blonde and cut long, cascading over his T-shirt. Veins stuck out of his muscled arms. Pipe it, shuckface, Albie grunted, pulling Newt down to sit next to him. At least he can understand half my words. There were a few scattered laughs, and then everyone gathered behind Albie and Newt, packing in even tighter, waiting to hear what they said. Albie spread his arms out, palms up. This place is called the Glade, all right? It's where we live, where we eat, where we sleep. We call ourselves the Gladers. That's all you... Who sent me here? Thomas demanded, fear finally giving way to anger. How'd... But Albie's hand shot out before he could finish, grabbing Thomas by the shirt as he leaned forward on his knees. Get up, Shank, get up! Albie stood, pulling Thomas with him. Thomas finally got his feet under him, scared all over again. He backed against the tree, trying to get away from Albie, who stayed right in his face. No interruptions, boy, Albie shouted. Whacker, if we told you everything, you'd die on the spot, right after you clunked your pants. Baggers would drag you off, and you ain't no good to us then, are you? I don't even know what you're talking about, Thomas said slowly, shocked at how steady his voice sounded. Newt reached out and grabbed Albie by the shoulders. Albie, lay off a bit. You're hurting more than helping, you know? Albie let go of Thomas's shirt and stepped back, his chest heaving with breaths. Ain't got time to be nice, Greenbean. Old life's over. New life's begun. Learn the rules quick. Listen. Don't talk. You get me? Thomas looked over at Newt, hoping for help. Everything inside him churned and hurt, the tears that had yet to come burned his eyes. Newt nodded. Greeny, you get him, right? He nodded again. Thomas fumed, wanted to punch somebody, but he simply said, Yeah. Good that, Albie said. First day. That's what today is for you, Shank. Night's coming. Runners will be back soon. The box came late today. Ain't got time for the tour. Tomorrow morning, right after the wake-up. He turned toward Newt. Get him a bed, get him to sleep. Good that, Newt said. Albie's eyes returned to Thomas, narrowing. In a few weeks, you'll be happy, Shank. You'll be happy and helping. None of us knew Jack on first day. You neither. New life begins tomorrow. Albie turned and pushed his way through the crowd, then headed for the slanted wooden building in the corner. Most of the kids wandered away then, each one giving Thomas a lingering look before they walked off. Thomas folded his arms, closed his eyes, took a deep breath. Emptiness ate away at his insides, quickly replaced by a sadness that hurt his heart. It was all too much. Where was he? What was this place? Was it some kind of prison? If so, why had he been sent here, and for how long? 
The language was odd, and none of the boys seemed to care whether he lived or died. Tears threatened again to fill his eyes, but he refused to let them come. What did I do? he whispered, not really meaning for anyone to hear him. What did I do? Why'd they send me here? Newt clapped him on the shoulder. Greeny, what you're feeling, we've all felt. We've all had first day. Come out of that dark box. Things are bad, they are, and they'll get much worse for you soon. That's the truth. But down the road a piece, you'll be fighting true and good. I can tell you're not a bloody sissy. Is this a prison? Thomas asked. He dug in the darkness of his thoughts, trying to find a crack to his past. Don't ask four questions, haven't you? Newt replied. No good answers for you, not yet anyway. Best be quiet now. Accept the change. Morn comes tomorrow. Thomas said nothing, his head sunk, his eyes staring at the cracked, rocky ground. A line of small-leafed weeds ran along the edge of one of the stone blocks, tiny yellow flowers peeping through as if searching for the sun, long disappeared behind the enormous walls of the glade. Chuck'll be a good fit for you, Newt said. Wee little fat shank, but nice sap when all's said and done. Stay here, I'll be back. Newt had barely finished his sentence when a sudden, piercing scream ripped through the air. High and shrill, the barely human shriek echoed across the stone courtyard. Every kid in sight turned to look toward the source. Thomas felt his blood turn to icy slush as he realized that the horrible sound came from the wooden building. Even Newt had jumped as if startled, his forehead creasing in concern. Shuck it, he said. Can't the bloody medjacks handle that boy for ten minutes without needing my help? He shook his head and lightly kicked Thomas on the foot. Find Chucky. Tell him he's in charge of your sleeping arrangements. And then he turned and headed in the direction of the building, running. Thomas slid down the rough face of the tree until he sat on the ground again. He shrank back against the bark and closed his eyes, wishing he could wake up from this terrible, terrible dream. Chapter 3 Thomas sat there for several moments, too overwhelmed to move. He finally forced himself to look over at the haggard building. A group of boys milled around outside, glancing anxiously at the upper windows as if expecting a hideous beast to leap out in an explosion of glass and wood. A metallic clicking sound from the branches above grabbed his attention, made him look up. A flash of silver and red light caught his eyes just before disappearing around the trunk to the other side. He scrambled to his feet and walked around the tree, craning his neck for a sign of whatever he'd heard. But he saw only bare branches, gray and brown, forking out like skeleton fingers, and looking just as alive. That was one of them beetle blades, someone said. Thomas turned to his right to see a kid standing nearby, short and pudgy, staring at him. He was young, probably the youngest of any in the group he'd seen so far, maybe twelve or thirteen years old. His brown hair hung down over his ears and neck, scraping the tops of his shoulders. Blue eyes shone through an otherwise pitiful face, flabby and flushed. Thomas nodded at him. A beetle what? Beetle blade, the boy said, pointing to the top of the tree. Won't hurt you unless you're stupid enough to touch one of them. He paused. Shank. He didn't sound comfortable saying the last word, as if he hadn't quite grasped the slang of the glade.
Another scream, this one long and nerve-grinding, tore through the air, and Thomas's heart lurched. The fear was like icy dew on his skin. What's going on over there? he asked, pointing at the building. Don't know, the chubby boy replied. His voice still carried the high pitch of childhood. Pins in there, sicker than a dog. They got him. They? Thomas didn't like the malicious way the boy had said the word. Yeah. Who are they? Better hope you never find out, the kid answered, looking far too comfortable for the situation. He held out his hand. My name's Chuck. I was the green bean until you showed up. This is my guide for the night, Thomas thought. He couldn't shake his extreme discomfort, and now annoyance crept in as well. Nothing made sense. His head hurt. Why is everyone calling me Green Bean? he asked, shaking Chuck's hand quickly, then letting go. Cause you're the newest newbie. Chuck pointed at Thomas and laughed. Another scream came from the house, a sound like a starving animal being tortured. How can you be laughing? Thomas asked, horrified by the noise. It sounds like someone's dying in there. You'll be okay. No one dies if they make it back in time to get the serum. It's all or nothing. Dead or not dead. Just hurts a lot. This gave Thomas pause. What hurts a lot? Chuck's eyes wandered as if he wasn't sure what to say. Um, getting stung by the grievers? Grievers? Thomas was only getting more and more confused. Stung? Grievers? The words had a heavy weight of dread to them, and he suddenly wasn't so sure he wanted to know what Chuck was talking about. Chuck shrugged, then looked away, eyes rolling. Thomas sighed in frustration and leaned back against the tree. Looks like you barely know more than I do, he said, but he knew it wasn't true. His memory loss was strange. He mostly remembered the workings of the world, but emptied of specifics, faces, names, like a book completely intact but missing one word in every dozen, making it a miserable and confusing read. He didn't even know his age. Chuck, how old do you think I am? The boy scanned him up and down. I'd say you're sixteen, and in case you were wondering, five foot nine, brown hair. Oh, and ugly as fried liver on a stick. He snorted a laugh. Thomas was so stunned he'd barely heard the last part. Sixteen? He was sixteen? He felt much older than that. Are you serious? He paused, searching for words. How? He didn't even know what to ask. Don't worry. You'll be all whacked for a few days, but then you'll get used to this place. I have. We live here. This is it. Better than living in a pile of clunk. He squinted, maybe anticipating Thomas's question. Clunk's another word for poo. Poo makes a clunk sound when it falls in our pea pots. Thomas looked at Chuck, unable to believe he was having this conversation. That's nice, was all he could manage. He stood up and walked past Chuck toward the old building. Shack was a better word for the place. It looked three or four stories high and about to fall down at any minute. A crazy assortment of logs and boards and thick twine and windows, seemingly thrown together at random, the massive, ivy-strewn stone walls rising up behind it. As he moved across the courtyard, 
The distinct smell of firewood and some kind of meat cooking made his stomach grumble. Knowing now that it was just a sick kid doing the screaming made Thomas feel better, until he thought about what had caused it. What's your name? Chuck asked from behind, running to catch up. What? Your name? You still haven't told us, and I know you remember that much. Thomas. He barely heard himself say it. His thoughts had spun in a new direction. If Chuck was right, he'd just discovered a link to the rest of the boys, a common pattern to their memory losses. They all remembered their names. Why not their parents' names? Why not a friend's name? Why not their last names? Nice to meet you, Thomas. Chuck said, "Don't you worry. I'll take care of you. I've been here a whole month, and I know the place inside and out. You can count on Chuck, okay?" Thomas had almost reached the front door of the shack and the small group of boys congregating there when he was hit by a sudden and surprised rush of anger. He turned to face Chuck. "You can't even tell me anything. I wouldn't call that taking care of me." He turned back toward the door, intent on going inside to find some answers. Where this sudden courage and resolve came from, he had no idea. Chuck shrugged. "Nothing I say'll do you any good," he said. "I'm basically still a newbie too, but I can be your friend. I don't need friends." Thomas interrupted. He'd reached the door, an ugly slab of sun-faded wood, and he pulled it open to see several stoic-faced boys standing at the door of a crooked staircase, the steps and railings twisted and angled in all directions. Dark wallpaper covered the walls of the foyer and hallway, half of it peeling off. The only decorations in sight were a dusty vase on a three-legged table and a black and white picture of an ancient woman dressed in an old-fashioned white dress. It reminded Thomas of a haunted house from a movie or something. There were even planks of wood missing from the floor. The place reeked of dust and mildew, a big contrast to the pleasant smells outside. Flickering fluorescent lights shone from the ceiling. He hadn't thought of it yet, but he had to wonder where the electricity came from in a place like the Glade. He stared at the old woman in the picture. Had she lived here once, taken care of these people? Hey, look! It's the Green Bean. One of the older boys called out. With a start, Thomas realized it was the black-haired guy who'd given him the look of death earlier. He looked like he was fifteen or so, tall and skinny. His nose was the size of a small fist and resembled a deformed potato. This shank probably clunked his pants when he heard old Benny Baby scream like a girl. Need a new diaper, shuck face? My name's Thomas. He had to get away from this guy. Without another word, he made for the stairs, only because they were close, only because he had no idea what to do or say. But the bully stepped in front of him, holding a hand up. Hold on there, Greeny. He jerked a thumb in the direction of the upper floor. Newbies aren't allowed to see someone who's been taken. Nude and Albie won't allow it. What's your problem? Thomas asked, trying to keep the fear out of his voice, trying not to think what the kid had meant by taken. I don't even know where I am. All I want is some help. Listen to me, Greenbean. The boy wrinkled up his face, folded his arms. I've seen you before. Something's fishy about you showing up here, and I'm going to find out what. A surge of heat pulsed through Thomas's veins. I've never seen you before in my life. I have no idea who you are, and I couldn't care less. He spat. 
But really, how would he know? And how could this kid remember him? The bully snickered, a short burst of laughter mixed with a phlegm-filled snort. Then his face grew serious, his eyebrows slanting inward. I've seen you, Shank. Not too many in these parts can say they've been stung. He pointed up the stairs. I have. I know what old Benny Baby's going through. I've been there, and I saw you during the changing. He reached out and poked Thomas in the chest. And I bet your first meal from fry pan that Benny'll say he's seen you too. Thomas refused to break eye contact, but decided to say nothing. Panic aided him once again. Would things ever stop getting worse? Griever got you wetting yourself? The boy said through a sneer. A little scared now? Don't want to get stung, do you? There was that word again, stung. Thomas tried not to think about it and pointed up the stairs from where the moans of the sick kid echoed through the building. If Newt went up there, then I want to talk to him. The boy said nothing, stared at Thomas for several seconds. Then he shook his head. You know what? You're right, Tommy. I shouldn't be so mean to newbies. Go on upstairs, and I'm sure Albie and Newt will fill you in. Seriously, go on. I'm sorry. He lightly slapped Thomas's shoulder, then stepped back, gesturing up the stairs. But Thomas knew the kid was up to something. Losing parts of your memory didn't make you an idiot. What's your name? Thomas asked, stalling for time while he tried to decide if he should go up after all. Gally, and don't let anyone fool you. I'm the real leader here, not the two geezer shanks upstairs, me. You can call me Captain Gally if you want. He smiled for the first time. His teeth matched his disgusting nose. Two or three were missing, and not a single one approached anything close to the color white. His breath escaped just enough for Thomas to get a whiff, reminding him of some horrible memory that was just out of reach. It made his stomach turn. Okay, he said, so sick of the guy he wanted to scream, punch him in the face. Captain Galley it is. He exaggerated a salute, feeling a rush of adrenaline, as he knew he'd just crossed a line. A few snickers escaped the crowd, and Galley looked around, his face bright red. He peered back at Thomas, hatred furrowing his brow and crinkling his monstrous nose. Just go up the stairs. Galley said. And stay away from me, you little slinthead. He pointed up again, but didn't take his eyes off Thomas. Fine. Thomas looked around one more time, embarrassed, confused, angry. He felt the heat of blood in his face. No one made a move to stop him from doing as Galley asked, except for Chuck, who stood at the front door, shaking his head. You're not supposed to, the younger boy said. You're a newbie. You can't go up there. Go, said Galley with a sneer. Go on up. Thomas regretted having come inside in the first place, but he did want to talk to that newt guy. He started up the stairs. Each step groaned and creaked under his weight. He might have stopped for fear of falling through the old wood if he weren't leaving such an awkward situation below. Up he went, wincing at every splintered sound. The stairs reached a landing turned left, then came upon a railed hallway leading to several rooms. Only one door had a light coming through the crack at the bottom. The changing! Galley shouted from below. Look forward to it, shuck face! 
As if the taunting gave Thomas a sudden burst of courage, he walked over to the lit door, ignoring the creaking floorboards and laughter downstairs, ignoring the onslaught of words he didn't understand, suppressing the dreadful feelings they induced. He reached down, turned the brass handle, and opened the door. Inside the room, Newt and Albie crouched over someone lying on a bed. Thomas leaned in closer to see what the fuss was all about, but when he got a clear look at the condition of the patient, his heart went cold. He had to fight the bile that surged up his throat. The look was fast, only a few seconds, but it was enough to haunt him forever. A twisted, pale figure writhing in agony, chest bare and hideous, tight, rigid cords of sickly green veins webbed across the boy's body and limbs, like ropes under his skin. Purplish bruises covered the kid, red hives, bloody scratches. His bloodshot eyes bulged, darting back and forth. The image had already burned into Thomas's mind before Albie jumped up, blocking the view but not the moans and screams, pushing Thomas out of the room, then slamming the door shut behind them. "'What are you doing up here, Greenie?' Albie yelled, his lips taut with anger, eyes on fire. Thomas felt weak. "'I, uh, want some answers,' he murmured. But he couldn't put any strength in his words, felt himself give up inside. "'What was wrong with that kid?' Thomas slouched against the railing in the hallway and stared at the floor, not sure what to do next. "'Get your runt cheeks down those stairs right now,' Albie ordered. "'Chuck'll help you. If I see you again before tomorrow morning, you ain't reaching another one alive. I'll throw you off the cliff myself. You get me?' Thomas was humiliated and scared. He felt like he'd shrunk to the size of a small rat. Without saying a word, he pushed past Albie and headed down the creaky steps, going as fast as he dared. Ignoring the gaping stares of everyone at the bottom, especially Galley, he walked out the door, pulling Chuck by the arm as he did so. Thomas hated these people. He hated all of them. Except Chuck. Get me away from these guys, Thomas said. He realized that Chuck might actually be his only friend in the world. You got it, Chuck replied, his voice chipper, as if thrilled to be needed. But first we should get you some food from Frypan. I don't know if I can ever eat again. Not after what he'd just seen. Chuck nodded. Yeah, you will. I'll meet you at the same trees before. Ten minutes. Thomas was more than happy to get away from the house and headed back toward the tree. He'd only known what it was like to be alive here for a short while, and he already wanted it to end. He wished for all the world he could remember something about his previous life. Anything. His mom, his dad, a friend, his school, a hobby, a girl. He blinked hard several times, trying to get the image of what he'd just seen in the shack out of his mind. The changing. Galley had called it the changing. It wasn't cold, but Thomas shuddered once again. Chapter 4 Thomas leaned against the tree as he waited for Chuck. He scanned the compound of the glade, this new place of nightmares where he seemed destined to live. The shadows from the walls had lengthened considerably, already creeping up the sides of the ivy-covered stone faces on the other side. At least this helped Thomas know directions. The wooden building crouched in the northwest corner, wedged in a darkening patch of shadow, the grove of trees in the southwest. 
The farm area, where a few workers were still picking their way through the fields, spread across the entire northeast quarter of the glade. The animals were in the southeast corner, mooing and crowing and baying. In the exact middle of the courtyard, the still gaping hole of the box lay open, as if inviting him to jump back in and go home. Near that, maybe twenty feet to the south, stood a squat building made of rough concrete blocks, a menacing iron door its only entrance. There were no windows. A large round handle resembling a steel steering wheel marked the only way to open the door, just like something within a submarine. Despite what he'd just seen, Thomas didn't know which he felt more strongly, curiosity to know what was inside, or dread at finding out. Thomas had just moved his attention to the four vast openings in the middle of the main walls of the glade when Chuck arrived, a couple of sandwiches cradled in his arms, along with apples and two metal cups of water. The sense of relief that flooded through Thomas surprised him. He wasn't completely alone in this place. Frypan wasn't too happy about me invading his kitchen before supper time, Chuck said, sitting down next to the tree, motioning to Thomas to do the same. He did grabbed the sandwich, but hesitated, the writhing, monstrous image of what he'd seen in the shack popping back into his mind. Soon, though, his hunger won out, and he took a huge bite. The wonderful tastes of ham and cheese and mayonnaise filled his mouth. Oh, man, Thomas mumbled through a mouthful. I was starving. Told you, Chuck chomped into his own sandwich. After another couple of bites, Thomas finally asked the question that had been bothering him. What's actually wrong with that Ben guy? He doesn't even look human anymore. Chuck glanced over at the house. Don't really know, he muttered absently. I didn't see him. Thomas could tell the boy was being less than honest, but decided not to press him. Well, you don't want to see him, trust me. He continued to eat, munching on the apples as he studied the huge breaks in the walls. Though it was hard to make out from where he sat, there was something odd about the stone edges of the exits to the outside corridors. He felt an uncomfortable sense of vertigo looking at the towering walls, as if he hovered above them instead of sitting at their base. "'What's out there?' he asked, finally breaking the silence. "'Is this part of a huge castle or something?' Chuck hesitated, looked uncomfortable. "'Um, I've never been outside the glade.' Thomas paused. You're hiding something, he finally replied, finishing off his last bite and taking a long swig of water. The frustration at getting no answers from anyone was starting to grind his nerves. It only made it worse to think that even if he did get answers, he wouldn't know if he'd be getting the truth. Why are you guys so secretive? That's just the way it is. Things are really weird around here, and most of us don't know everything. Half of everything. It bothered Thomas that Chuck didn't seem to care about what he'd just said, that he seemed indifferent to having his life taken away from him. What was wrong with these people? Thomas got to his feet and started walking toward the eastern opening. Well, no one said I couldn't look around. He needed to learn something or he was going to lose his mind. Whoa, wait! Chuck cried, running to catch up. Be careful! Those puppies are about to close! He already sounded out of breath. Close? Thomas repeated. What are you talking about? The doors, you shank! Doors? I don't see any doors. 
Thomas knew Chuck wasn't just making stuff up. He knew he was missing something obvious. He grew uneasy and realized he'd slowed his pace, not so eager to reach the walls anymore. What do you call those big openings? Chuck pointed up at the enormously tall gaps in the walls. They were only thirty feet away now. I call them big openings, Thomas said, trying to counter his discomfort with sarcasm and disappointed that it wasn't working. Well, they're doors, and they close up every night. Thomas stopped, thinking Chuck had to have had said something wrong. He looked up, looked side to side, examined the massive slabs of stone as the uneasy feeling blossomed into outright dread. What do you mean they close? Just see for yourself in a minute. The runners will be back soon. Then those big walls are going to move until the gaps are closed. You're jacked in the head, Thomas muttered. He couldn't see how the mammoth walls could possibly be mobile. Felt so sure of it, he relaxed, thinking Chuck was just playing a trick on him. They reached the huge split that led outside to more stone pathways. Thomas gaped, his mind emptying of thought as he saw it all firsthand. This is called the East Door, Chuck said, as if proudly revealing a piece of art he'd created. Thomas barely heard him, shocked by how much bigger it was up close. At least twenty feet across, the break in the wall went all the way to the top, far above. The edges that bordered the vast opening were smooth, except for one odd, repeating pattern on both sides. On the left side of the east door, deep holes several inches in diameter and spaced a foot apart were bored into the rock, beginning near the ground and continuing all the way up. On the right side of the door, foot-long rods jutted out from the wall edge, also several inches in diameter, in the same pattern as the holes facing them on the other side. The purpose was obvious. Are you kidding? Thomas asked, the dread slamming back into his gut. You weren't playing with me? The walls really move? What else would I have meant? Thomas had a hard time wrapping his mind around the possibility. I don't know. I figured there was a door that swung shut or a little mini-wall that slid out of the big one. How could these walls move? They're huge, and they look like they've been standing here for a thousand years. And the idea of those walls closing and trapping him inside this place they called the Glade was downright terrifying. Chuck threw his arms up, clearly frustrated. I don't know. They just move. Makes one heck of a grinding noise. Same thing happens out in the maze. Those walls shift every night, too. Thomas, his attention suddenly snapped up by a new detail, turned to face the younger boy. What did you just say? Huh? You just called it a maze. You said, same thing happens out in the maze. Chuck's face reddened. I'm done with you. I'm done. He walked back toward the tree they just left. Thomas ignored him, more interested than ever in the outside of the glade. A maze? In front of him, through the east door, he could make out passages leading to the left, to the right, and straight ahead. And the walls of the corridors were similar to those that surrounded the glade, the ground made of the same massive stone blocks as in the courtyard. The ivy seemed even thicker out there. In the distance, more breaks in the walls led to other paths, and farther down, maybe a hundred yards or so away, the straight passage came to a dead end. Looks like a maze, Thomas whispered, almost laughing to himself, as if things couldn't have gotten any stranger. 
They'd wiped his memory and put him inside a gigantic maze. It was all so crazy, it really did seem funny. His heart skipped a beat when a boy unexpectedly appeared around a corner up ahead, entering the main passage from one of the offshoots to the right, running toward him and the glade. Covered in sweat, his face red, clothes sticking to his body, the boy didn't slow, hardly glancing at Thomas as he went past. He headed straight for the squat concrete building located near the box. Thomas turned as he passed, his eyes riveted to the exhausted runner, unsure why this new development surprised him so much. Why wouldn't people go out and search the maze? Then he realized others were entering through the remaining three glade openings, all of them running and looking as ragged as the guy who just whisked by him. There couldn't be much good about the maze if these guys came back looking so weary and worn. He watched, curious, as they met at the big iron door of the small building. One of the boys turned the rusty wheel handle, grunting with the effort. Chuck had said something about runners earlier. What had they been doing out there? The big door finally popped open, and with a deafening squeal of metal against metal, the boys swung it wide. They disappeared inside, pulling it shut behind them with a loud clonk. Thomas stared, his mind churning to come up with any possible explanation for what he'd just witnessed. Nothing developed, but something about that creepy old building gave him goosebumps, a disquieting chill. Someone tugged on his sleeve, breaking him from his thoughts. Chuck had come back. Before Thomas had a chance to think, questions were rushing out of his mouth. Who are those guys and what are they doing? What's in that building? He wheeled around and pointed out the east door. And why do you live inside a freaking maze? He felt a rattling pressure of uncertainty, making his head splinter with pain. I'm not saying another word, Chuck replied, a new authority filling his voice. I think you should get to bed early. You'll need your sleep. Ah! He stopped, held up a finger, pricking up his right ear. It's about to happen. What? Thomas asked, thinking it kind of strange that Chuck was suddenly acting like an adult instead of the little kid desperate for a friend he'd been only moments earlier. A loud boom exploded through the air, making Thomas jump. It was followed by a horrible crunching, grinding sound. He stumbled backward, fell to the ground. It felt as if the whole earth shook. He looked around, panicked. The walls were closing. The walls were really closing, trapping him inside the glade. An onrushing sense of claustrophobia stifled him, compressed his lungs as if water filled their cavities. Calm down, Greeny, Chuck yelled over the noise. It's just the walls. Thomas barely heard him too fascinated, too shaken by the closing of the doors. He scrambled to his feet and took a few trembling steps back for a better view, finding it hard to believe what his eyes were seeing. The enormous stone wall to the right of them seemed to defy every known law of physics as it slid along the ground, throwing sparks and dust as it moved, rock against rock. The crunching sound rattled his bones. Thomas realized that only that wall was moving heading for its neighbor to the left, ready to seal shut with its protruding rod slipping into the drilled holes across from it. He looked around at the other openings. It felt like his head was spinning faster than his body, and his stomach flipped over with the dizziness. On all four sides of the glade, only the right walls were moving, toward the left, 
closing the gap of the doors. Impossible, he thought. How can they do that? He fought the urge to run out there, slip past the moving slabs of rock before they shut, flee the glade. Common sense won out. The maze held even more unknowns than his situation inside. He tried to picture in his mind how the structure of it all worked. Massive stone walls, hundreds of feet high, moving like sliding glass doors, an image from his past life that flashed through his thoughts. He tried to grasp the memory, hold on to it, complete the picture with faces, names, a place, but it faded into obscurity. A pang of sadness pricked through his other swirling emotions. He watched as the right wall reached the end of its journey, its connecting rods finding their mark and entering without a glitch. An echoing boom rumbled across the glade as all four doors sealed shut for the night. Thomas felt one final moment of trepidation, a quick slice of fear through his body, and then it vanished. A surprising sense of calm eased his nerves. He let out a long sigh of relief. Wow, he said, feeling dumb at such a monumental understatement. Ain't nothing, as Albie would say, Chuck murmured. You kind of get used to it after a while. Thomas looked around one more time, the feel of the place completely different now that all the walls were solid with no way out. He tried to imagine the purpose of such a thing, and he didn't know which guess was worse, that they were being sealed in or that they were being protected from something out there. The thought ended his brief moment of calm, stirring in his mind a million possibilities of what might live in the maze outside, all of them terrifying. Fear gripped him once again. Come on, Chuck said, pulling at Thomas's sleeve a second time. Trust me, when nighttime strikes, you want to be in bed. Thomas knew he had no other choice. He did his best to suppress everything he was feeling and followed. Chapter 5 They ended up near the back of the homestead. That was what Chuck called the leaning structure of wood and windows, in a dark shadow between the building and the stone wall behind it. Where are we going? Thomas asked, still feeling the weight of seeing those walls close, thinking about the maze, the confusion, the fear. He told himself to stop or he'd drive himself crazy. Trying to grasp a sense of normalcy, he made a weak attempt at a joke. If you're looking for a good night kiss, forget it. Chuck didn't miss a beat. Just shut up and stay close. Thomas let out a big breath and shrugged before following the younger boy along the back of the building. They tiptoed until they came upon a small, dusty window, a soft beam of light shining through onto the stone and ivy. Thomas heard someone moving around inside. The bathroom, Chuck whispered. So? A thread of unease stitched along Thomas's skin. I love doing this to people. Gives me great pleasure before bedtime. Doing what? Something told Thomas Chuck was up to no good. Maybe I should just shut your mouth and watch. Chuck quietly stepped up onto a big wooden box that sat right under the window. He crouched so that his head was positioned just below where the person on the inside would be able to see him. Then he reached up with his hand and lightly tapped on the glass. This is stupid, Thomas whispered. There couldn't possibly be a worse time to play a joke. 
Newt or Albie could be in there. I don't want to get in trouble. I just got here. Chuck suppressed a laugh by putting his hand over his mouth. Ignoring Thomas, he reached up and tapped the window again. A shadow crossed the light. Then the window slid open. Thomas jumped to hide, pressing himself against the back of the building as hard as he could. He just couldn't believe he'd been suckered into playing a practical joke on somebody. The angle of vision from the window protected him for the moment, but he knew he and Chuck would be seen if whoever was in there pushed his head outside to get a better look. "'Who's that?' yelled the boy from the bathroom, his voice scratchy and laced with anger. Thomas had to hold in a gasp when he realized it was Galley. He knew that voice already. Without warning, Chuck suddenly popped his head up toward the window and screamed at the top of his lungs. A loud crash from inside revealed that the trick had worked, and the litany of swear words following it let them know Galley was none too happy about it. Thomas was struck with an odd mix of horror and embarrassment. I'm going to kill you, Shuckface, Galley yelled, but Chuck was already off the box and running toward the open glade. Thomas froze as he heard Galley open the door inside and run out of the bathroom. Thomas finally snapped out of his daze and took off after his new, and only, friend. He'd just rounded the corner when Galley came screaming out of the homestead, looking like a ferocious beast on the loose. He immediately pointed at Thomas. "'Come here!' he yelled. Thomas's heart sank in surrender. Everything seemed to indicate that he'd be getting a fist in the face. "'It wasn't me, I swear,' he said. Though, as he stood there, he sized the boy up and realized he shouldn't be so terrified after all. Galley wasn't that big. Thomas could actually take him if he had to. "'Wasn't you?' Galley snarled. He ambled up to Thomas slowly and stopped right in front of him. "'Then how do you know there was something you didn't do?' Thomas didn't say anything. He was definitely uncomfortable, but not nearly as scared as a few moments earlier. "'I'm not a dong, Greenie. Galley spat. I saw Chuck's fat face in the window. He pointed again, this time right at Thomas's chest. But you better decide right quick who you want as your friends and enemies, hear me? One more trick like that. I don't care if it's your sissy idea or not. There'll be blood spilled. You got that, newbie? But before Thomas could answer, Galley'd already turned to walk away. Thomas just wanted this episode over. Sorry he muttered, wincing at how stupid it sounded. I know you, Galley added without looking back. I saw you in the changing, and I'm going to figure out who you are. Thomas watched as the bully disappeared back into the homestead. He couldn't remember much, but something told him he'd never disliked someone so strongly. He was surprised by how much he truly hated the guy. He really, really hated him. He turned to see Chuck standing there, staring at the ground, clearly embarrassed. Thanks a lot, buddy. Sorry, if I'd known it was Galley, I never would have done it, I swear. Surprising himself, Thomas laughed. An hour ago, he'd thought he'd never hear such a sound come out of his mouth again. Chuck looked closely at Thomas and slowly broke into an uneasy grin. What? Thomas shook his head. Don't be so sorry. The shank deserved it, and I don't even know what a shank is. That was awesome. He felt much better. A couple of hours later, 
Thomas was lying in a soft sleeping bag next to Chuck on a bed of grass near the gardens. It was a wide lawn that he hadn't noticed before, and quite a few of the group chose it as their bedtime spot. Thomas thought that was strange, but apparently there wasn't enough room inside the homestead. At least it was warm, which made him wonder for the millionth time where they were. His mind had a hard time grasping names of places or remembering countries or rulers, how the world was organized. And none of the kids in the glade had a clue either. At least they weren't sharing if they did. He lay in silence for the longest time, looking at the stars and listening to the soft murmurs of various conversations drifting across the glade. Sleep felt miles away, and he couldn't shake the despair and hopelessness that coursed through his body and mind. The temporary joy of Chuck's trick on Galley had long since faded away. It had been one endless and strange day. It was just so weird. He remembered lots of little things about life, eating, clothes, studying, playing, general images of the makeup of the world. But any detail that would fill in the picture to create a true and complete memory had been erased somehow. It was like looking at an image through a foot of muddy water. More than anything else, perhaps, he felt sad. Chuck interrupted his thoughts. Well, Greeny, you survived first day. Barely. Not now, Chuck, he wanted to say. I'm not in the mood. Chuck pulled himself up to lean on an elbow, looking at Thomas. You'll learn a lot in the next couple of days. Start getting used to things. Good that? Um, yeah, good that, I guess. Where'd all these weird words and phrases come from, anyway? It seemed like they'd taken some other language and melded it with his own. Chuck flopped back down with a heavy flump. I don't know. I've only been here a month, remember? Thomas wondered about Chuck, whether he knew more than he let on. He was a quirky kid, funny, and he seemed innocent, but who was to say? Really, he was just as mysterious as everything else in the glade. A few minutes passed, and Thomas felt the long day finally catching up to him, the leaded edge of sleep crossing over his mind. But like a fist had shoved it in his brain and let go, a thought popped into his head one that he didn't expect, and he wasn't sure from where it came. Suddenly, the glade, the walls, the maze, it all seemed familiar, comfortable. A warmth of calmness spread through his chest, and for the first time since he'd found himself there, he didn't feel like the glade was the worst place in the universe. He stilled, felt his eyes widen, his breathing stop for a long moment. What just happened, he thought. What changed? Ironically, the feeling that things would be okay made him slightly uneasy. Not quite understanding how, he knew what he needed to do. He didn't get it. The feeling, the epiphany, was a strange one, foreign and familiar at the same time, but it felt right. I want to be one of those guys that goes out there, he said aloud, not knowing if Chuck was still awake. Inside the maze. Huh? was the response from Chuck. Thomas could hear a tinge of annoyance in his voice. Runners, Thomas said, wishing he knew where this was coming from. Whatever they're doing out there, I want in. 
You don't even know what you're talking about, Chuck grumbled and rolled over. Go to sleep. Thomas felt a new surge of confidence, even though he truly didn't know what he was talking about. I want to be a runner. Chuck turned back and got up on his elbow. You can forget that little thought right now. Thomas wondered at Chuck's reaction, but pressed on. Don't try to... Thomas, newbie, my new friend, forget it. I'll tell Albie tomorrow. A runner, Thomas thought. I don't even know what that means. Have I gone completely insane? Chuck lay down with a laugh. You're a piece of clunk. Go to sleep. But Thomas couldn't quit. Something out there. It feels familiar. Go. To. Sleep. Then it hit Thomas. He felt like several pieces of a puzzle had been put together. He didn't know what the ultimate picture would be, but his next words almost felt like they were coming from someone else. Chuck, I... I think I've been here before. He heard his friend sit up, heard the intake of breath. But Thomas rolled over and refused to say another word, worried he'd mess up this new sense of being encouraged, eradicate the reassuring calm that filled his heart. Sleep came much more easily than he'd expected. Chapter 6 Someone shook Thomas awake. His eyes snapped open to see a too-close face staring down at him, everything around them still shadowed by the darkness of early morning. He opened his mouth to speak, but a cold hand clamped down on it, gripping it shut. Panic flared until he saw who it was. Shh, Greeny. Don't want to be wakened, Chucky, now, do we? It was Newt, the guy who seemed to be second in command. The air reeked of his morning breath. Though Thomas was surprised, any alarm melted away immediately. He couldn't help being curious, wondering what this boy wanted with him. Thomas nodded, doing his best to say yes with his eyes, until Newt finally took his hand away, then leaned back on his heels. Come on, Greeny, the tall boy whispered as he stood. He reached down and helped Thomas to his feet. He was so strong it felt like he could rip Thomas's arm off. Supposed to show you something before the wake-up. Any lingering haze of sleep had already vanished from Thomas's mind. Okay, he said simply, ready to follow. He knew he should hold some suspicion, having no reason to trust anyone yet, but the curiosity won out. He quickly leaned over and slipped on his shoes. Where are we going? Just follow me and stay close. They snuck their way through the tightly strewn pack of sleeping bodies, Thomas almost tripping several times. He stepped on someone's hand, earning a sharp cry of pain in return, then a punch on the calf. Sorry, he whispered, ignoring a dirty look from Newt. Once they left the lawn area and stepped onto the hard gray stone of the courtyard floor, Newt broke into a run, heading for the western wall. Thomas hesitated at first, wondering why he needed to run, but snapped out of it quickly and followed at the same pace. The light was dim, but any obstructions loomed as darker shadows, and he was able to make his way quickly along. He stopped when Newt did, right next to the massive wall towering above them like a skyscraper, another random image that floated in the murky pool of his memory wipe. Thomas noticed small red lights flashing here and there along the wall's face, moving about, stopping, turning off and on. What are those? 
he whispered as loudly as he dared, wondering if his voice sounded as shaky as he felt. The twinkling red glow of the lights held an undercurrent of warning. Newt stood just a couple of feet in front of the thick curtain of ivy on the wall. When you bloody need to know, you'll know, Greeny. Well, it's kind of stupid to send me to a place where nothing makes sense and not answer my questions. Thomas paused, surprised at himself. Shank, he added, throwing all the sarcasm he could into the syllable. Newt broke out in a laugh, but quickly cut it off. I like you, Greeny. Now shut it and let me show you something. Newt stepped forward and dug his hands into the thick ivy, spreading several vines away from the wall to reveal a dust-frosted window, a square about two feet wide. It was dark at the moment, as if it had been painted black. What are we looking for? Thomas whispered. Hold your undies, boy. One'll be coming along soon enough. A minute passed, then two. Several more. Thomas fidgeted on his feet, wondering how Newt could stand there, perfectly patient and still, staring into nothing but darkness. Then it changed. Glimmers of an eerie light shone through the window. It cast a wavering spectrum of colors on Newt's body and face, as if he stood next to a lighted swimming pool. Thomas grew perfectly still, squinting, trying to make out what was on the other side. A thick lump grew in his throat. What is that? he thought. Out there's the maze, Newt whispered, eyes wide as if in a trance. Everything we do, our whole life, Greeny, revolves around the maze. Every loving second of every loving day we spend in honor of the maze, trying to solve something that's not shown us it has a bloody solution, you know? And we want to show you why it's not to be messed with. Show you why them bugging walls close shut every night. Show you why you should never, never find your butt out there. Newt snapped back, still holding on to the ivy vines. He gestured for Thomas to take his place and look through the window. Thomas did, leaning forward until his nose touched the cool surface of the glass. It took a second for his eyes to focus on the moving object on the other side, to look past the grime and dust and see what Newt wanted him to see. And when he did, he felt his breath catch in his throat, like an icy wind had blown down there and frozen the air solid. A large, bulbous creature the size of a cow, but with no distinct shape, twisted and seethed along the ground in the corridor outside. It climbed the opposite wall, then leaped at the thick glass window with a loud thump. Thomas shrieked before he could stop himself, jerked away from the window, but the thing bounced backward, leaving the glass undamaged. Thomas sucked in two huge breaths and leaned in once again. It was too dark to make out clearly, but odd lights flashed from an unknown source, revealing blurs of silver spikes and glistening flesh. Wicked instrument-tipped appendages protruded from its body like arms, a saw blade, a set of shears, long rods whose purpose could only be guessed. The creature was a horrific mix of animal and machine, and seemed to realize it was being observed, seemed to know what lay inside the walls of the glade, seemed to want to get inside and feast on human flesh. Thomas felt an icy terror blossom in his chest, expand like a tumor, making it hard to breathe. Even with the memory wipe, he felt sure he'd never seen something so truly awful. He stepped back, the courage he'd felt the previous evening melting away. What is that thing? 
he asked. Something shivered in his gut, and he wondered if he'd ever be able to eat again. Grievers, we call him, Newt answered. Nasty bugger, eh? Just be glad the grievers only come out at night. Be thankful for these walls. Thomas swallowed, wondering how he could ever go out there. His desire to become a runner had taken a major blow. But he had to do it. Somehow he knew he had to do it. It was such an odd thing to feel, especially after what he'd just seen. Newt looked at the window absently. Now you know what bloody lurks in the maze, my friend. Now you know this isn't joke time. You've been sent to the glade, Greeny, and we'll be expecting you to survive and help us do what we've been sent here to do. And what's that? Thomas asked, even though he was terrified to hear the answer. Newt turned to look him dead in the eye. The first traces of dawn had crept up on them, and Thomas could see every detail of Newt's face, his skin tight, his brow creased. Find our way out, Greeny, Newt said. Solve the bug and maze and find our way home. A couple of hours later, the doors having reopened, rumbling and grumbling and shaking the ground until they were finished, Thomas sat at a worn, tilted picnic table outside the homestead. All he could think about was the grievers, what their purpose could be, what they did out there during the night, what it would be like to be attacked by something so terrible. He tried to get the image out of his head, move on to something else. The runners. They'd just left without saying a word to anybody, bolting into the maze at full speed and disappearing around corners. He pictured them in his mind as he picked at his eggs and bacon with a fork, speaking to no one, not even Chuck, who ate silently next to him. The poor guy had exhausted himself trying to start a conversation with Thomas, who'd refused to respond. All he wanted was to be left alone. He just didn't get it. His brain was on overload trying to compute the sheer impossibility of the situation. How could a maze, with walls so massive and tall, be so big that dozens of kids hadn't been able to solve it after who knew how long trying? How could such a structure exist? And more importantly, why? What could possibly be the purpose of such a thing? Why were they all there? How long had they been there? Try as he might to avoid it, his mind still kept wandering back to the image of the vicious griever. Its phantom brother seemed to leap at him every time he blinked or rubbed his eyes. Thomas knew he was a smart kid. He somehow felt it in his bones. But nothing about this place made any sense, except for one thing. He was supposed to be a runner. Why did he feel that so strongly? And even now, after seeing what lived in the maze... A tap on his shoulder jarred him from his thoughts. He looked up to see Albie standing behind him, arms folded. "'Ain't you looking fresh?' Albie said. "'Get a nice view out the window this morning?' Thomas stood, hoping the time for answers had come, or maybe hoping for a distraction from his gloomy thoughts. "'Enough to make me want to learn about this place,' he said, hoping to avoid provoking the temper he'd seen flare in this guy the day before. Albie nodded. "'Me and you, Shank.' The tour begins now. He started to move, but then stopped, holding up a finger. Ain't no questions till the end, you got me? Ain't got time to jaw with you all day. But Thomas stopped when Albie's eyebrows shot up. Why did the guy have to be such a jerk? 
But tell me everything. I want to know everything. He'd decided the night before not to tell anyone else how strangely familiar the place seemed, the odd feeling that he'd been there before, that he could remember things about it. Sharing that seemed like a very bad idea. I'll tell you what I want to tell you, Greeny. Let's go. Can I come? Chuck asked from the table. Albie reached down and tweaked the boy's ear. Ow! Chuck shrieked. Ain't you got a job, Slinthead? Albie asked. Lots of slopping to do? Chuck rolled his eyes, then looked at Thomas. Have fun. I'll try. He suddenly felt sorry for Chuck, wished people would treat the kid better. But there was nothing he could do about it. It was time to go. He walked away with Albie, hoping the tour had officially begun. Chapter 7 They started at the box, which was closed at the moment, double doors of metal lying flat on the ground, covered in white paint, faded and cracked. The day had brightened considerably, the shadows stretching in the opposite direction from what Thomas had seen yesterday. He still hadn't spotted the sun, but it looked like it was about to pop over the eastern wall at any minute. Albie pointed down at the doors. This here's the box. Once a month, we get a newbie like you. Never fails. Once a week, we get supplies, clothes, some food. Ain't needing a lot. Pretty much run ourselves in the glade. Thomas nodded, his whole body itching with the desire to ask questions. I need some tape to put over my mouth, he thought. We don't know jack about the box, you get me? Albie continued. Where it came from, how it gets here, who's in charge? The shanks that sent us here ain't told us nothing. We got all the electricity we need, grow and raise most of our food, get clothes and such. Tried to send a slinthead greenie back in the box one time. Thing wouldn't move till we took him out. Thomas wondered what lay under the doors when the box wasn't there, but held his tongue. He felt such a mixture of emotions, curiosity, frustration, wonder, all laced with the lingering horror of seeing the griever that morning. Albie kept talking, never bothering to look Thomas in the eye. Glades cut into four sections. He held up his fingers as he counted off the next four words. Gardens, bloodhouse, homestead, deadheads. You got that? Thomas hesitated, then shook his head, confused. Albie's eyelids fluttered briefly as he continued. He looked like he could think of a thousand things he'd rather be doing right then. He pointed to the northeast corner where the fields and fruit trees were located. Gardens, where we grow the crops. Water's pumped in through pipes in the ground. Always has been, or we'd have starved to death a long time ago. Never rains here. Never. He pointed to the southeast corner at the animal pens and barn. Bloodhouse, where we raise and slaughter animals. He pointed at the pitiful living quarters. Homestead, stupid place is twice as big as when the first of us got here because we keep adding to it when they send us wood and clunk. Ain't pretty, but it works. Most of us sleep outside anyway. Thomas felt dizzy. So many questions splintered his mind, he couldn't keep them straight. Albie pointed at the southwest corner, the forest area fronted with several sickly trees and benches. Call that the deadheads. Graveyards back in that corner, in the thicker woods. Ain't much else. You can go there to sit and rest, hang out, whatever. He cleared his throat as if wanting to change subjects. You'll spend the next two weeks working one day apiece for our different job keepers. Until we know what you're best at. Slopper, bricknick, bagger, trackhoe. 
Something'll stick. Always does. Come on. Albie walked toward the south door, located between what he'd called the deadheads and the bloodhouse. Thomas followed, wrinkling his nose up at the sudden smell of dirt and manure coming from the animal pens. Graveyard? he thought. Why do they need a graveyard in a place full of teenagers? That disturbed him even more than not knowing some of the words Albie kept saying, words like slopper and bagger, that didn't sound so good. He came as close to interrupting Albie as he'd done so far, but willed his mouth shut. Frustrated, he turned his attention to the pens in the bloodhouse area. Several cows nibbled and chewed at a trough full of greenish hay. Pigs lounged in a muddy pit, an occasionally flickering tail the only sign they were alive. Another pen held sheep, and there were chicken coops and turkey cages as well. Workers bustled about the area, looking as if they'd spent their whole lives on a farm. Why do I remember these animals? Thomas wondered. Nothing about them seemed new or interesting. He knew what they were called, what they normally ate, what they looked like. Why was stuff like that still lodged in his memory, but not where he'd seen animals before, or with whom? His memory loss was baffling in its complexity. Albie pointed to the large barn in the back corner, its red paint long faded to a dull rust color. Back there is where the slicers work. Nasty stuff, that. Nasty. If you like blood, you can be a slicer. Thomas shook his head. Slicer didn't sound good at all. As they kept walking, he focused his attention on the other side of the glade, the section Albie had called the deadheads. The trees grew thicker and denser the farther back in the corner they went, more alive and full of leaves. Dark shadows filled the depths of the wooded area, despite the time of day. Thomas looked up, squinting to see that the sun was finally visible, though it looked odd, more orange than it should be. It hit him that this was yet another example of the odd selective memory in his mind. He returned his gaze to the deadheads, a glowing disk still floating in his vision. Blinking to clear it away, he suddenly caught the red lights again, flickering and skittering about deep in the darkness of the woods. What are those things? he wondered, irritated that Albie hadn't answered him earlier. The secrecy was very annoying. Albie stopped walking, and Thomas was surprised to see they'd reached the south door. The two walls bracketing the exit towered above them. The thick slabs of gray stone were cracked and covered in ivy, as ancient as anything Thomas could imagine. He craned his neck to see the top of the walls far above. His mind spun with the odd sensation that he was looking down, not up. He staggered back a step, awed once again by the structure of his new home, then finally returned his attention to Albie, who had his back to the exit. Out there's the maze. Albie jabbed a thumb over his shoulder, then paused. Thomas stared in that direction, through the gap in the walls that served as an exit from the glade. The corridors out there looked much the same as the ones he'd seen from the window by the east door early that morning. This thought gave him a chill, made him wonder if a griever might come charging toward them at any minute. He took a step backward before realizing what he was doing. Calm down, he chided himself, embarrassed. Albie continued. Two years I've been here. Ain't none been here longer. The few before me are already dead. Thomas felt his eyes widen, his heart quicken. Two years we've tried to solve this thing. No luck. 
Shucking walls move out there at night just as much as these here doors. Mapping it out ain't easy. Ain't easy know-how. He nodded toward the concrete-blocked building into which the runners had disappeared the night before. Another stab of pain sliced through Thomas's head. There were too many things to compute at once. They'd been here two years? The walls moved out in the maze? How many had died? He stepped forward, wanting to see the maze for himself, as if the answers were printed on the walls out there. Albie held out a hand and pushed Thomas in the chest, sent him stumbling backward. Ain't no going out there, Shank. Thomas had to suppress his pride. Why not? You think I sent Newt to you before the wake-up just for kicks? Freak, that's the number one rule, the only one you'll never be forgiven for breaking. Ain't nobody, nobody, allowed in the maze except the runners. Break that rule, and if you ain't killed by the grievers, we'll kill you ourselves. You get me? Thomas nodded, grumbling inside, sure that Albie was exaggerating, hoping that he was. Either way, if he'd had any doubts about what he'd told Chuck the night before, it had now completely vanished. He wanted to be a runner. He would be a runner. Deep inside, he knew he had to go out there, into the maze. Despite everything he'd learned and witnessed firsthand, it called to him as much as hunger or thirst. A movement up on the left wall of the south door caught his attention. Startled, he reacted quickly, looking just in time to see a flash of silver. A patch of ivy shook as the thing disappeared into it. Thomas pointed up at the wall. What was that? he asked before he could be shut down again. Albie didn't bother looking. No questions till the end, Shank. How many times I gotta tell you? He paused and let out a sigh. Beetle blades. It's how the creators watch us. You better not... He was cut off by a booming, ringing alarm that sounded from all directions. Thomas clamped his hands to his ears, looking around as the siren blared, his heart about to thump its way out of his chest. But when he focused back on Albie, he stopped. Albie wasn't acting scared. He appeared... confused. Surprised. The alarm clanged through the air. What's going on? Thomas asked. Relief flooded his chest that his tour guide didn't seem to think the world was about to end. But even so, Thomas was getting tired of being hit by waves of panic. That's weird, was all Albie said as he scanned the glade, squinting. Thomas noticed people in the bloodhouse pens glancing around, apparently just as confused. One shouted to Albie, a short, skinny kid drenched in mud. What's up with that? the boy asked, looking to Thomas for some reason. I don't know, Albie murmured back in a distant voice. But Thomas couldn't stand it anymore. Albie, what's going on? The box, Shuckface, the box! was all Albie said before he set off for the middle of the glade at a brisk pace that almost looked to Thomas like panic. What about it? Thomas demanded, hurrying to catch up. Talk to me, he wanted to scream at him. But Albie didn't answer or slow down, and as they got closer to the box, Thomas could see that dozens of kids were running around the courtyard. He spotted Newt and called to him, trying to suppress his rising fear, telling himself things would be okay that there had to be a reasonable explanation. Newt, what's going on? he yelled. Newt glanced over at him, then nodded and walked over, strangely calm in the middle of the chaos. He swatted Thomas on the back. Means a bloody newbie's coming up on the box. 
He paused as if expecting Thomas to be impressed. Right now. So? As Thomas looked more closely at Newt, he realized that what he'd mistaken for calm was actually disbelief, maybe even excitement. So? Newt replied, his jaw dropping slightly. Grainy, we've never had two newbies show up in the same month, much less two days in a row. And with that, he ran off toward the homestead. Chapter 8 The alarm finally stopped after blaring for a full two minutes. A crowd was gathered in the middle of the courtyard around the steel doors through which Thomas was startled to realize he'd arrived just yesterday. Yesterday, he thought. Was that really just yesterday? Someone tapped him on the elbow. He looked over to see Chuck by his side again. How goes it, Greenbean? Chuck asked. Fine, he replied, even though nothing could have been further from the truth. He pointed toward the door of the box. Why is everyone freaking out? Isn't this how you all got here? Chuck shrugged. I don't know. Guess it's always been real regular-like. Once a month, every month, same day. Maybe whoever's in charge realized you were nothing but a big mistake, sent someone to replace you. He giggled as he elbowed Thomas in the ribs, a high-pitched snicker that inexplicably made Thomas like him more. Thomas shot his new friend a fake glare. You're annoying. Seriously. Yeah, but we're buddies now, right? Chuck fully laughed this time, a squeaky sort of snort. Looks like you're not giving me much choice on that one. But truth was, he needed a friend, and Chuck would do just fine. The kid folded his arms, looking very satisfied. Glad that's settled, Greeny. Everyone needs a buddy in this place. Thomas grabbed Chuck by the collar, joking around. Okay, buddy, then call me by my name, Thomas, or I'll throw you down the hole after the box leaves. That triggered a thought in his head as he released Chuck. Wait a minute, have you guys ever... Tried it, Chuck interrupted before Thomas could finish. Tried what? Going down in the box after it makes a delivery, Chuck answered. It won't do it. Won't go down until it's completely empty. Thomas remembered Albie telling him that very thing. I already knew that, but what about... Tried it. Thomas had to suppress a groan. This was getting irritating. Man, you're hard to talk to. Tried what? Going through the hole after the box goes down. Can't. Doors will open, but there's just emptiness, blackness, nothing. No ropes, nada. Can't do it. How could that be possible? Did you... Tried it. Thomas did groan this time. Okay, what? We threw some things into the hole. Never heard them land. It goes on for a long time. Thomas paused before he replied, not wanting to be cut off again. What are you, a mind reader or something? He threw as much sarcasm as he could into the comment. Just brilliant, that's all, Chuck winked. Chuck, never wink at me again, Thomas said with a smile. Chuck was a little annoying, but there was something about him that made things seem less terrible. Thomas took a deep breath and looked back toward the crowd around the hole. So, how long until the delivery gets here? Usually takes about half an hour after the alarm. Thomas thought for a second. There had to be something they hadn't tried. You're sure about the hole? Have you ever... He paused, waiting for the interruption, but none came. Have you ever tried making a rope? Yeah, they did. 
with the ivy. Longest one they could possibly make. Let's just say that little experiment didn't go so well. What do you mean? What now? Thomas thought. I wasn't here, but I heard the kid who volunteered to do it had only gone down about ten feet when something swooshed through the air and cut him clean in half. What? Thomas laughed. I don't believe that for a second. Oh yeah, smart guy. I've seen the sucker's bones cut in half like a knife through whipped cream. They keep him in a box to remind future kids not to be so stupid. Thomas waited for Chuck to laugh or smile, thinking it had to be a joke. Who ever heard of someone being cut in half? But it never came. You're serious? Chuck just stared back at him. I don't lie, Gree. Uh, Thomas. Come on, let's go over and see who's coming up. I can't believe you only have to be the green bean for one day, clunkhead. As they walked over, Thomas asked the one question he hadn't posed yet. How do you know it's not just supplies or whatever? The alarm doesn't go off when that happens, Chuck answered simply. The supplies come up at the same time every week. Hey, look! Chuck stopped and pointed to someone in the crowd. It was Galley staring dead at them. Shuck it, Chuck said. He does not like you, man. Yeah, Thomas muttered. Figured that out already, and the feeling was mutual. Chuck nudged Thomas with his elbow, and the boys resumed their walk to the edge of the crowd. Then waited in silence. Any questions Thomas had were forgotten. He'd lost the urge to talk after seeing Galley. Chuck apparently hadn't. Why don't you go ask him what his problem is? He asked, trying to sound tough. Thomas wanted to think he was brave enough, but that currently sounded like the worst idea in history. Well, for one, he has a lot more allies than I do. Not a good person to pick a fight with. Yeah, but you're smarter, and I bet you're quicker. You could take him and all his buddies. One of the boys standing in front of them looked back over his shoulder, annoyance crossing his face. Must be a friend of Galley's, Thomas thought. Would you shut it? He hissed at Chuck. A door closed behind them. Thomas turned to see Albie and Newt heading over from the homestead. They both looked exhausted. Seeing them brought Ben back to his mind, along with the horrific image of him writhing in bed. Chuck, man, you gotta tell me what this whole changing business is. What have they been doing in there with that poor Ben kid? Chuck shrugged. Don't know the details. The grievers do bad things to you. Make your whole body go through something awful. When it's over, you're different. Thomas sensed a chance to finally have a solid answer. Different? What do you mean? And what does it have to do with the grievers? Is that what Galley meant by being stung? Shh. Chuck held a finger to his mouth. Thomas almost screamed in frustration, but he kept quiet. He resolved to make Chuck tell him later, whether the guy wanted to or not. Albie and Newt had reached the crowd and pushed themselves to the front, standing right over the doors that led to the box. Everyone quieted, and for the first time, Thomas noted the grinds and rattles of the rising lift, reminding him of his own nightmarish trip the day before. Sadness washed over him, almost as if he were reliving those few terrible minutes of awakening in darkness to the memory loss. He felt sorry for whoever this new kid was, going through the same things. A muffled boom announced that the bazaar elevator had arrived. 
Thomas watched in anticipation as Newt and Alby took positions on opposite sides of the shaft doors. A crack split the metal square right down the middle. Simple hook handles were attached on both sides, and together they yanked them apart. With a metallic scrape, the doors were opened, and a puff of dust from the surrounding stone rose into the air. Complete silence settled over the gladers. As Newt leaned over to get a better look into the box, the faint bleeding of a goat in the distance echoed across the courtyard. Thomas leaned forward as far as he possibly could, hoping to get a glance at the newcomer. With a sudden jerk, Newt pushed himself back into an upright position, his face scrunched up in confusion. Holy! he breathed, looking around at nothing in particular. By this time, Albie had gotten a good look as well, with a similar reaction. No way, he murmured, almost in a trance. A chorus of questions filled the air as everyone began pushing forward to get a look into the small opening. What do they see down there? Thomas wondered. What do they see? He felt a sliver of muted fear, similar to what he'd experienced that morning when he stepped toward the window to see the griever. Hold on! Albie yelled, silencing everyone. Just hold on! Well, what's wrong? Someone yelled back. Albie stood up. Two newbies in two days, he said, almost in a whisper. Now this. Two years, nothing different. Now this. Then, for some reason, he looked straight at Thomas. What's going on here, Greeny? Thomas stared back, confused, his face turning bright red, his gut clenching. How am I supposed to know? Why don't you just tell us what the shuck is down there, Albie? Galley called out. There were more murmurs and another surge forward. You shank shut up, Albie yelled. Tell him, Newt. Newt looked down in the box one more time, then faced the crowd gravely. It's a girl, he said. Everyone started talking at once. Thomas only caught pieces here and there. A girl? I got dibs. What's she look like? How old is she? Thomas was drowning in a sea of confusion. A girl? He hadn't even thought about why the glade only had boys, no girls. Hadn't even had the chance to notice, really. Who is she? he wondered. Why? Newt shushed them again. That's not bloody half of it, he said, then pointed down into the box. I think she's dead. A couple of boys grabbed some ropes made from ivy vines and lowered Albie and Newt into the box so they could retrieve the girl's body. A mood of reserved shock had come over most of the gladers, who were milling about with solemn faces, kicking loose rocks, and not saying much at all. No one dared admit they couldn't wait to see the girl, but Thomas assumed they were all just as curious as he was. Galley was one of the boys holding on to the ropes, ready to hoist her, Albie, and Newt out of the box. Thomas watched him closely. His eyes were laced with something dark. Almost a sick fascination. A gleam that made Thomas suddenly more scared of him than he'd been minutes earlier. From deep in the shaft came Albie's voice shouting that they were ready, and Galley and a couple of others started pulling up on the rope. A few grunts later, and the girl's lifeless body was dragged out, across the edge of the door, and onto one of the stone blocks making up the ground of the glade. Everyone immediately ran forward. Forming a packed crowd around her, a palpable excitement hovering in the air. But Thomas stayed back. 
The eerie silence gave him the creeps, as if they'd just opened up a recently laid tomb. Despite his own curiosity, Thomas didn't bother trying to force his way through to get a look. The bodies were too tightly squeezed together. But he had caught a glimpse of her before being blocked off. She was thin, but not too small, maybe five and a half feet tall, from what he could tell. She looked like she could be fifteen or sixteen years old, and her hair was tar black. But the thing that had really stood out to him was her skin. Pale, white as pearls. Newt and Albie scrambled out of the box after her, then forced their way through to the girl's lifeless body, the crowd reforming behind to cut them off from Thomas's view. Only a few seconds later, the group parted again, and Newt was pointing straight at Thomas. Greeny, get over here, he said, not bothering to be polite about it. Thomas's heart jumped into his throat. His hands started to sweat. What did they want him for? Things just kept getting worse and worse. He forced himself to walk forward, trying to seem innocent without acting like someone who was guilty who was trying to act innocent. Oh, calm it, he told himself. You haven't done anything wrong. But he had a strange feeling that maybe he had without realizing it. The boys lining the path to Newt and the girl glared at him as he walked past, as if he were responsible for the entire mess of the maze and the glade and the grievers. Thomas refused to make eye contact with any of them, afraid of looking guilty. He approached Newt and Albie, who both knelt beside the girl. Thomas, not wanting to meet their stares, concentrated on the girl. Despite her paleness, she was really pretty. More than pretty. Beautiful. Silky hair, flawless skin, perfect lips, long legs. It made him sick to think that way about a dead girl, but he couldn't look away. Won't be that way for long, he thought, with a queasy twist in his stomach. She'll start rotting soon. He was surprised at having such a morbid thought. You know this girl, Shank? Albie asked, sounding ticked off. Thomas was shocked by the question. Know her? Of course I don't know her. I don't know anyone, except for you guys. That's not... Albie began, then stopped with a frustrated sigh. I meant, does she look familiar at all? Any kind of feeling you've seen her before? No, nothing. Thomas shifted, looked down at his feet, then back at the girl. Albie's forehead creased. You're sure? He looked like he didn't believe a word Thomas said, seemed almost angry. What could he possibly think I have to do with this, Thomas thought. He met Albie's glare evenly and answered the only way he knew how. Yes. Why? Shuck it, Albie muttered, looking back down at the girl. Can't be a coincidence. Two days, two greenies, one alive, one dead. Then Albie's words started to make sense, and panic flared in Thomas. You don't think I... He couldn't even finish the sentence. Slim it, greeny, Newt said. We're not saying you bloody killed the girl. Thomas's mind was spinning. He was sure he'd never seen her before, but then the slightest hint of doubt crept into his mind. I swear she doesn't look familiar at all, he said anyway. He'd had enough accusations. Are you... Before Newt could finish, the girl shot up into a sitting position. As she sucked in a huge breath, her eyes snapped open and she blinked, 
looking around at the crowd surrounding her. Albie cried out and fell backward. Newt gasped and jumped up, stumbling away from her. Thomas didn't move, his gaze locked on the girl, frozen in fear. Burning blue eyes darted back and forth as she took deep breaths. Her pink lips trembled as she mumbled something over and over, indecipherable. Then she spoke one sentence, her voice hollow and haunted, but clear. Everything is going to change. Thomas stared in wonder as her eyes rolled up into her head, and she fell back to the ground. Her right fist shot into the air as she landed, staying rigid after she grew still, pointing toward the sky. Clutched in her hand was a wadded piece of paper. Thomas tried to swallow, but his mouth was too dry. Newt ran forward and pulled her fingers apart, grabbing the paper. With shaking hands, he unfolded it, then dropped to his knees, spreading out the note on the ground. Thomas moved up behind him to get a look. Scrawled across the paper, in thick black letters, were five words. She's the last one. Ever. Chapter 9 an odd moment of complete silence hung over the glade. It was as if a supernatural wind had swept through the place and sucked out all sound. Newt had read the message aloud for those who couldn't see the paper, but instead of erupting in confusion, the gladers all stood dumbfounded. Thomas would have expected shouts and questions, arguments, but no one said a word. All eyes were glued to the girl, now lying there as if asleep, her chest rising and falling with shallow breaths. Contrary to their original conclusion, she was very much alive. Newt stood, and Thomas hoped for an explanation, a voice of reason, a calming presence. But all he did was crumple the note in his fist, veins popping from his skin as he squeezed it, and Thomas's heart sank. He wasn't sure why, but the situation made him very uneasy. Albie cupped his hands around his mouth. Medjax! Thomas wondered what that word meant. He knew he'd heard it before, but then he was abruptly knocked aside. Two older boys were pushing their way through the crowd. One was tall with a buzz cut, his nose the size of a fat lemon. The other was short and actually had gray hair already conquering the black on the sides of his head. Thomas could only hope they'd made some sense of everything. So what do we do with her? The taller one asked, his voice much higher pitched than Thomas expected. How should I know? Albie said. You two shanks are the medjacks. Figure it out. Medjacks, Thomas repeated in his head, a light going off. They must be the closest thing they have to doctors. The short one was already on the ground, kneeling beside the girl, feeling for her pulse and leaning over to listen to her heartbeat. Who said Clint had first shot at her? Someone yelled from the crowd. There were several barks of laughter. I'm next! How can they joke around? Thomas thought. The girl's half dead. He felt sick inside. Albie's eyes narrowed. His mouth pulled into a tight grin that didn't look like it had anything to do with humor. If anybody touches this girl, Albie said, you're going to spend the night sleeping with the grievers in the maze. Banished. No questions. He paused, turning in a slow circle as if he wanted every person to see his face. Ain't nobody better touch her. Nobody. 
It was the first time Thomas had actually liked hearing something come out of Albie's mouth. The short guy who'd been referred to as a medjack, Clint, if the spectator had been correct, stood up from his examination. She seems fine, breathing okay, normal heartbeat, though it's a bit slow. Your guess is as good as mine, but I'd say she's in a coma. Jeff, let's take her to the homestead. His partner, Jeff, stepped over to grab her by the arms while Clint took hold of her feet. Thomas wished he could do more than watch. With every passing second, he doubted more and more that what he'd said earlier was true. She did seem familiar. He felt a connection to her, though it was impossible to grasp in his mind. The idea made him nervous, and he looked around as if someone might have heard his thoughts. On the count of three, Jeff, the taller medjack, was saying, his tall frame looking ridiculous bent in half, like a praying mantis. One, two, three. They lifted her with a quick jerk, almost throwing her up in the air. She was obviously a lot lighter than they'd thought, and Thomas almost shouted at them to be more careful. Guess we'll have to see what she does, Jeff said to no one in particular. We can feed her soupy stuff if she doesn't wake up soon. Just watch her closely, Newt said. Must be something special about her or they wouldn't have sent her here. Thomas's gut clenched. He knew that he and the girl were connected somehow. They'd come a day apart. She seemed familiar. He had a consuming urge to become a runner despite learning so many terrible things. What did it all mean? Albie leaned over to look in her face once more before they carried her off. Put her next to Ben's room and keep a watch on her day and night. Nothing better happen without me knowing about it. I don't care if she talks in her sleep or takes a clunk. You come tell me. Yeah, Jeff muttered. Then he and Clint shuffled off to the homestead, the girl's body bouncing as they went, and the other gladers finally started to talk about it, scattering as theories bubbled through the air. Thomas watched all this in mute contemplation. This strange connection, he felt, wasn't his alone. The not-so-veiled accusations thrown at him only a few minutes before proved that the others suspected something, too. But what? He was already completely confused. Being blamed for things only made him feel worse. As if reading his thoughts, Albie walked over and grabbed him by the shoulder. "'You ain't never seen her before?' he asked. Thomas hesitated before he answered. "'Not—no—' Not that I remember. He hoped his shaky voice didn't betray his doubts. What if he did know her somehow? What would that mean? You're sure, Newt prodded, standing right behind Albie. I... no, I, I don't think so. Why are you grilling me like this? All Thomas wanted right then was for night to fall, so he could be alone, go to sleep. Albie shook his head, then turned back to Newt releasing his grip on Thomas's shoulder. Something's whacked. Call a gathering. He said it quietly enough that Thomas didn't think anyone else heard, but it sounded ominous. Then the leader and Newt walked off, and Thomas was relieved to see Chuck coming his way. Chuck, what's a gathering? He looked proud to know the answer. It's when the keepers meet. They only call one when something weird or terrible happens. Well, I guess today fits both of those categories pretty well. Thomas's stomach rumbled, interrupting his thoughts. I didn't finish my breakfast. Can we get something somewhere? I'm starving. Chuck looked up at him, 
His eyebrows raised. Seeing that chick wig out made you hungry? You must be more psycho than I thought. Thomas sighed. Just get me some food. The kitchen was small but had everything one needed to make a hearty meal a big oven, a microwave, a dishwasher, a couple of tables. It seemed old and run down, but clean. Seeing the appliances and the familiar layout made Thomas feel as if memories, real, solid memories, were right on the edge of his mind. But again, the essential parts were missing names, faces, places, events. It was maddening. Take a seat, Chuck said. I'll get you something. But I swear this is the last time. Just be glad Frypan isn't around. He hates it when we raid his fridge. Thomas was relieved they were alone. As Chuck fumbled about with dishes and things from the fridge, Thomas pulled out a wooden chair from a small plastic table and sat down. This is crazy. How can this be for real? Somebody sent us here. Somebody evil. Chuck paused. Quit complaining. Just accept it and don't think about it. Yeah, right. Thomas looked out a window. This seemed a good time to bring up one of the million questions bouncing through his brain. So, where does the electricity come from? Who cares? I'll take it. What a surprise, Thomas thought. No answer. Chuck brought two plates with sandwiches and carrots over to the table. The bread was thick and white, the carrots a sparkling, bright orange. Thomas's stomach begged him to hurry. He picked up his sandwich and started devouring it. Oh, man, he mumbled with a full mouth. At least the food is good. Thomas was able to eat the rest of his meal without another word from Chuck, and he was lucky that he didn't feel like talking, because despite the complete weirdness of everything that had happened within Thomas's known reach of memory, he felt calm again. His stomach full, his energy replenished, his mind thankful for a few moments of silence, he decided that from then on he'd quit whining and deal with things. After his last bite, Thomas sat back in his chair. So, Chuck, he said as he wiped his mouth with a napkin. What do I have to do to become a runner? Not that again. Chuck looked up from his plate where he'd been picking at the crumbs. He let out a low, gurgly burp that made Thomas cringe. Albie said I'd start my trial soon with the different keepers. So, when do I get a shot with the runners? Thomas waited patiently to get some sort of actual information from Chuck. Chuck rolled his eyes dramatically. Leaving no doubt as to how stupid an idea he thought that would be. They should be back in a few hours. Why do you ask them? Thomas ignored the sarcasm, digging deeper. What do they do when they get back every night? What's up with the concrete building? Maps. They meet right when they get back, before they forget anything. Maps? Thomas was confused. But if they're trying to make a map, don't they have paper to write on while they're out there? Maps. This intrigued him more than anything else he'd heard in a while. It was the first thing suggesting a potential solution to their predicament. Of course they do, but there's still stuff they need to talk about and discuss and analyze and all that clunk. Plus, the boy rolled his eyes, they spend most of their time running, not writing. That's why they're called runners. Thomas thought about the runners and the maps. Could the maze really be so massively huge? That even after two years they still hadn't found a way out? It seemed impossible.
But then he remembered what Albie said about the moving walls. What if all of them were sentenced to live here until they died? Sentenced. The word made him feel a rush of panic, and the spark of hope the meal had brought him fizzled with a silent hiss. Chuck, what if we're all criminals? I mean, what if we're murderers or something? Huh? Chuck looked up at him as if he were a crazy person. Where did that happy thought come from? Think about it. Our memories are wiped. We live inside a place that seems to have no way out, surrounded by bloodthirsty monster guards. Doesn't that sound like a prison to you? As he said it out loud, it sounded more and more possible. Nausea trickled into his chest. I'm probably twelve years old, dude. Chuck pointed to his chest. At the most, thirteen. You really think I did something that would send me to prison for the rest of my life? I don't care what you did or didn't do. Either way, you have been sent to a prison. Does this seem like a vacation to you? Oh, man, Thomas thought. Please let me be wrong. Chuck thought for a moment. I don't know. It's better than, yeah, I know, living in a pile of clunk. Thomas stood up and pushed his chair back under the table. He liked Chuck, but trying to have an intelligent conversation with him was impossible, not to mention frustrating and irritating. Go make yourself another sandwich. I'm going exploring. See you tonight. He stepped out of the kitchen and into the courtyard before Chuck could offer to join him. The glade had gone back to business as usual, people working the jobs, the doors of the box closed, sun shining down. Any signs of a crazed girl bearing notes of doom had disappeared. Having had his tour cut short, he decided to take a walk around the glade on his own and get a better look and feel for the place. He headed out for the northeast corner, toward the big rows of tall green corn stalks that looked ready to harvest. There was other stuff, too. Tomatoes, lettuce, peas, a lot more that Thomas didn't recognize. He took a deep breath, loving the fresh whiff of dirt and growing plants. He was almost positive the smell would bring back some sort of pleasant memory, but nothing came. As he got closer, he saw that several boys were weeding and picking in the small fields. One waved at him with a smile. An actual smile. Maybe this place won't be so bad after all, Thomas thought. Not everyone here could be a jerk. He took another deep breath of the pleasant air and pulled himself out of his thoughts. There was a lot more he wanted to see. Next was the southeast corner, where shabbily built wooden fences held in several cows, goats, sheep, and pigs. No horses, though. That sucks, Thomas thought. Riders would definitely be faster than runners. As he approached, he figured he must have dealt with animals in his life before the glade. Their smell, their sound, they seemed very familiar to him. The smell wasn't quite as nice as the crops, but still, he imagined it could have been a lot worse. As he explored the area, he realized more and more how well the gladers kept up the place, how clean it was. He was impressed by how organized they must be, how hard they all must work. He could only imagine how truly horrific a place like this could be if everyone went lazy and stupid. Finally, he made it to the southwest quarter, near the forest. He was approaching the sparse, skeletal trees in front of the denser woods when he was startled by a blur of movement at his feet, followed by a hurried set of clacking sounds. 
He looked down just in time to see the sun flash off something metallic, a toy rat, scurrying past him and toward the small forest. The thing was already ten feet away by the time he realized it wasn't a rat at all. It was more like a lizard, with at least six legs scuttling the long silver torso along. A beetle blade. It's how they watch us, Albie had said. He caught a gleam of red light sweeping the ground in front of the creature, as if it came from its eyes. Logic told him it had to be his mind playing tricks on him, but he swore he saw the word wicked scrawled down its rounded back in large green letters. Something so strange had to be investigated. Thomas sprinted after the scurrying spy, and in a matter of seconds he entered the thick copse of trees, and the world became dark. Chapter 10 he couldn't believe how quickly the light disappeared. From the glade proper, the forest didn't look that big, maybe a couple of acres. Yet the trees were tall with sturdy trunks, packed tightly together, the canopy up above thick with leaves. The air around him had a greenish, muted hue, as if only several minutes of twilight remained in the day. It was somehow beautiful and creepy all at once. Moving as fast as he could, Thomas crashed through the heavy foliage, thin branches slapping at his face. He ducked to avoid a low-hanging limb, almost falling. Reaching out, he caught hold of a branch and swung himself forward to regain his balance. A thick bed of leaves and fallen twigs crunched underneath him. All the while, his eyes stayed riveted on the beetle blade scuttling across the forest floor. Deeper it went, its red light glowing brighter as the surroundings darkened. Thomas had charged thirty or forty feet into the woods, dodging and ducking and losing ground with every second, when the beetle blade jumped onto a particularly large tree and scooted up its trunk. But by the time Thomas reached the tree, any sign of the creature had vanished. It had disappeared deep within the foliage, almost as if it had never existed. He'd lost the sucker. Shuck it, Thomas whispered, almost as a joke. Almost. As strange as it seemed, the word felt natural on his lips, like he was already morphing into a glader. A twig snapped somewhere to his right, and he jerked his head in that direction. He stilled his breath, listened. Another snap, this time louder, almost like someone had broken a stick over their knee. "'Who's there?' Thomas yelled out, a tingle of fear shooting across his shoulders." His voice bounced off the canopy of leaves above him, echoing through the air. He stayed frozen, rooted to the spot as all grew silent, except for the whistling song of a few birds in the distance. But no one answered his call, nor did he hear any more sounds from that direction. Without really thinking it through, Thomas headed toward the noise he'd heard. Not bothering to hide his progress, he pushed aside branches as he walked, letting them whip back to position when he passed. He squinted, willed his eyes to work in the growing darkness, wishing he had a flashlight. He thought about flashlights and his memory. Once again, he remembered a tangible thing from his past, but couldn't assign it to any specific time or place, couldn't associate it with any other person or event. Frustrating. Anybody there? he asked again, feeling a little calmer since the noise hadn't repeated. It was probably just an animal, maybe another beetle blade. Just in case, he called out, It's me, Thomas, the new guy. 
Well, second newest guy. He winced and shook his head, hoping now that no one was there. He sounded like a complete idiot. Again, no reply. He stepped around a large oak and pulled up short. An icy shiver ran down his back. He'd reached the graveyard. The clearing was small, maybe thirty square feet, and covered with a thick layer of leafy weeds growing close to the ground. Thomas could see several clumsily prepared wooden crosses poking through this growth, their horizontal pieces lashed to the upright ones with a splintery twine. The grave markers had been painted white, but by someone in an obvious hurry. Gelled globs covered them, and bare streaks of wood showed through. Names had been carved into the wood. Thomas stepped up, hesitantly, to the closest one, and knelt down to get a look. The light was so dull now that he almost felt as if he were looking through black mist. Even the birds had quieted, like they'd gone to bed for the night, and the sound of insects was barely noticeable, or at least much less than normal. For the first time, Thomas realized how humid it was in the woods, the damp air already beating sweat on his forehead, the backs of his hands. He leaned closer to the first cross. It looked fresh and bore the name Stephen the N extra small and right at the edge because the carver hadn't estimated well how much room he'd need. Stephen, Thomas thought, feeling an unexpected but detached sorrow. What's your story? Chuck annoy you to death? He stood and walked over to another cross, this one almost completely overgrown with weeds, the ground firm at its base. Whoever it was, he must have been one of the first to die, because his grave looked the oldest. The name was George. Thomas looked around and saw there were a dozen or so other graves. A couple of them appeared to be just as fresh as the first one he'd examined. A silvery glint caught his attention. It was different from the scuttling beetle that had led him to the forest, but just as odd. He moved through the markers until he got to a grave covered with a sheet of grimy plastic or glass, its edges slimed with filth. He squinted, trying to make out what was on the other side, then gasped when it came into focus. It was a window into another grave, one that had the dusty remnants of a rotting body. Completely creeped out, Thomas leaned closer to get a better look anyway, curious. The tomb was smaller than usual. Only the top half of the deceased person lay inside. He remembered Chuck's story about the boy who'd tried to rappel down the dark hole of the box after it had descended only to be cut in two by something slicing through the air. Words were etched on the glass. Thomas could barely read them. Let this half-shank be a warning to all. You can't escape through the box hole. Thomas felt the odd urge to snicker. It seemed too ridiculous to be true. But he was also disgusted with himself for being so shallow and glib. Shaking his head, he had stepped aside to read more names of the dead when another twig broke, this time straight in front of him, right behind the trees on the other side of the graveyard. Then another snap, then another, coming closer, and the darkness was thick. Who's out there? he called, his voice shaky and hollow. It sounded as if he were speaking inside an insulated tunnel. Seriously, this is stupid. He hated to admit to himself just how terrified he was. Instead of answering, the person gave up all pretense of stealth and started running, 
crashing through the forest line around the clearing of the graveyard, circling toward the spot where Thomas stood. He froze, panic overtaking him. Now only a few feet away, the visitor grew louder and louder until Thomas caught a shadowed glimpse of a skinny boy limping along in a strange, lilting run. Who the he- The boy burst through the trees before Thomas could finish. He saw only a flash of pale skin and enormous eyes, the haunted image of an apparition, and cried out, tried to run, but it was too late. The figure leaped into the air and was on top of him, slamming into his shoulders, gripping him with strong hands. Thomas crashed to the ground. He felt a grave marker dig into his back before it snapped in two, burning a deep scratch along his flesh. He pushed and swatted at his attacker, a relentless jumble of skin and bones cavorting on top of him as he tried to gain purchase. It seemed like a monster, a horror from a nightmare, but Thomas knew it had to be a glader, someone who'd completely lost his mind. He heard teeth snapping open and closed, a horrific clack, clack, clack. Then he felt the jarring dagger of pain as the boy's mouth found a home, bit deeply into Thomas's shoulder. Thomas screamed, the pain like a burst of adrenaline through his blood. He planted the palms of his hands against his attacker's chest and pushed, straightening his arms until his muscles strained against the struggling figure above him. Finally, the kid fell back. A sharp crack filled the air as another grave marker met its demise. Thomas squirmed away on his hands and feet, sucking in breaths of air, and got his first good look at the crazed attacker. It was the sick boy. It was Ben. Chapter 11 It looked as if Ben had recovered only slightly since Thomas had seen him in the homestead. He wore nothing but shorts, his whiter-than-white skin stretched across his bones like a sheet wrapped tightly around a bundle of sticks. Rope-like veins ran along his body, pulsing and green, but less pronounced than the day before. His bloodshot eyes fell upon Thomas as if he were seeing his next meal. Ben crouched, ready to spring for another attack. At some point, a knife had made an appearance, gripped in his right hand. Thomas was filled with a queasy fear, disbelief that this was happening at all. Ben! Thomas looked toward the voice, surprised to see Albie standing at the edge of the graveyard, a mere phantom in the fading light. Relief flooded Thomas's body. Albie held a large bow, an arrow cocked for the kill, pointed straight at Ben. Ben, Albie repeated. Stop right now, or you ain't gonna see tomorrow. Thomas looked back at Ben, who stared viciously at Albie, his tongue darting between his lips to wet them. What could possibly be wrong with that kid, Thomas thought. The boy had turned into a monster. Why? If you kill me, Ben shrieked, spittle flying from his mouth, far enough to hit Thomas in the face. You get the wrong guy! He snapped his gaze back to Thomas. He's the shank you want to kill! His voice was full of madness. Don't be stupid, Ben, Albie said, his voice calm as he continued to aim the arrow. Thomas just got here. Ain't nothing to worry about. You're still bugging from the changing. You should have never left your bed. He's not one of us, Ben shouted. I saw him. He's... he's bad. We have to kill him. Let me gut him. Thomas took an involuntary step backward, horrified by what Ben had said. 
What did he mean he'd seen him? Why did he think Thomas was bad? Albie hadn't moved his weapon an inch, still aiming for Ben. You leave that to me and the keepers to figure out, Shuckface. His hands were perfectly steady as he held the bow, almost as if he had propped it against a branch for support. Right now, back your scrawny butt down and get to the homestead. He'll want to take us home, Ben said. He'll want to get us out of the maze. Better we all jumped off the cliff. Better we tore each other's guts out. What are you talking? Thomas began. Shut your face, Ben screamed. Shut your ugly, traitorous face. Ben, Albie said calmly. I'm going to count to three. He's bad, he's bad, he's bad. Ben was whispering now, almost chanting. He swayed back and forth, switching the knife from hand to hand, eyes glued on Thomas. One. Bad, 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 bad. Ben smiled. His teeth seemed to glow, greenish in the pale light. Thomas wanted to look away, get out of there. But he couldn't move. He was too mesmerized, too scared. Two. Albie's voice was louder, filled with warning. Ben, Thomas said, trying to make sense of it all. I'm not... I didn't even know what... Ben screamed, a strangled gurgle of madness, and leaped into the air, slashing out with his blade. Three, Albie shouted. There was the sound of snapping wire, the whoosh of an object slicing through the air, the sickening wet thunk of it finding a home. Ben's head snapped violently to the left, twisting his body until he landed on his stomach, his feet pointed toward Thomas. He made no sound. Thomas jumped to his feet and stumbled forward. The long shaft of the arrow stuck from Ben's cheek, the blood surprisingly less than Thomas had expected, but seeping out all the same. Black in the darkness, like oil. The only movement was Ben's right pinky finger, twitching. Thomas fought the urge to puke. Was Ben dead because of him? Was it his fault? Come on, Albie said. Baggers'll take care of him tomorrow. What just happened here? Thomas thought, the world tilting around him as he stared at the lifeless body. What did I ever do to this kid? He looked up, wanting answers, but Albie was already gone. A trembling branch, the only sign he'd ever stood there in the first place. Thomas squeezed his eyes against the blinding light of the sun as he emerged from the woods. He was limping, his ankle screaming in pain, though he had no memory of hurting it. He held one hand carefully over the area where he'd been bitten. The other clutched his stomach, as if that would prevent what Thomas now felt was an inevitable barf. The image of Ben's head popped into his mind, cocked at an unnatural angle, blood running down the shaft of the arrow until it collected, dripped, splattered on the ground. The image of it was the last straw. He fell to his knees by one of the scraggly trees on the outskirts of the forest and threw up, retching as he coughed and spat out every last morsel of the acidic, nasty bile from his stomach. His whole body shook, and it seemed like the vomiting would never end. And then, as if his brain were mocking him, trying to make it worse, he had a thought. He'd now been at the glade for roughly twenty-four hours, one full day. That was it. And look at all the things that had happened. All the terrible things. Surely it could only get better.
That night, Thomas lay staring at the sparkling sky, wondering if he'd ever sleep again. Every time he closed his eyes, the monstrous image of Ben leaping at him, the boy's face set in lunacy, filled his mind. Eyes opened or not, he could swear he kept hearing the moist thunk of the arrow slamming into Ben's cheek. Thomas knew he'd never forget those few terrible minutes in the graveyard. Say something, Chuck said for the fifth time since they'd set out their sleeping bags. No, Thomas replied, just as he had before. Everyone knows what happened. It's happened once or twice. Some griever stung Shank flipped out and attacked somebody. Don't think you're special. For the first time, Thomas thought Chuck's personality had gone from mildly irritating to intolerable. Chuck, be glad I'm not holding Albie's bow right about now. I'm just play. Shut up, Chuck. Go to sleep. Thomas just couldn't handle it right then. Eventually, his buddy did doze off, and based on the rumble of snores across the glade, so did everyone else. Hours later, deep in the night, Thomas was still the only one awake. He wanted to cry, but didn't. He wanted to find Albie and punch him for no reason whatsoever, but didn't. He wanted to scream and kick and spit and open up the box and jump into the blackness below. But he didn't. He closed his eyes and forced the thoughts and dark images away, and at some point he fell asleep. Chuck had to drag Thomas out of his sleeping bag in the morning, drag him to the showers, and drag him to the dressing rooms. The whole time, Thomas felt mopey and indifferent, his head aching, his body wanting more sleep. Breakfast was a blur, and an hour after it was over, Thomas couldn't remember what he'd eaten. He was so tired, his brain felt like someone had gone in and stapled it to his skull in a dozen places. Heartburn ravaged his chest. But from what he could tell, naps were frowned upon in the giant working farm of the Glade. He stood with Newt in front of the barn of the bloodhouse, getting ready for his first training session with a keeper. Despite the rough morning, he was actually excited to learn more and for the chance to get his mind off Ben and the graveyard. Cows mooed, sheep bleated, pigs squealed all around him. Somewhere close by, a dog barked, making Thomas hope Frypan didn't bring new meaning to the word hot dog. Hot dog, he thought. When's the last time I had a hot dog? Who did I eat it with? Tommy, are you even listening to me? Thomas snapped out of his daze and focused on Newt, who'd been talking for who knew how long. Thomas hadn't heard a word of it. Yeah, sorry. Couldn't sleep last night. Newt attempted a pathetic smile. Can't blame you there. Went through the bug and ringer you did. Probably think I'm a slinthead shank for getting you ready to work your butt off today after an episode the likes of that. Thomas shrugged. Work's probably the best thing I could do. Anything to get my mind off it. Newt nodded, and his smile became more genuine. You're as smart as you look, Tommy. That's one of the reasons we run this place all nice and busy-like. You get lazy, you get sad. Start giving up. Plain and simple. Thomas nodded, absently kicking a loose rock across the dusty, cracked stone floor of the glade. So, what's the latest on that girl from yesterday? If anything had penetrated the haze of his long morning, it had been thoughts of her. 
He wanted to know more about her, understand the odd connection he felt to her. Still in a coma, sleeping. Medjacks are spoon-feeding her whatever soups Frypan can cook up, checking her vitals and such. She seems okay, just dead to the world for now. That was just plain weird. If it hadn't been for the whole Ben in the Graveyard incident, Thomas was sure she would have been all he'd thought about last night. Maybe he wouldn't have been able to sleep for an entirely different reason. He wanted to know who she was, and if he really did know her somehow. Yeah, Newt said. Weird's as good a word as any, I spect. Thomas looked over Newt's shoulder at the big faded red barn, pushing thoughts of the girl aside. So, what's first? Milk cows or slaughter some poor little pigs? Newt laughed, a sound Thomas realized he hadn't heard much since he'd arrived. We always make the newbies start with the bloody slicers. Don't worry, cutting up Frypan's victuals ain't but a part. Slicers do anything and everything dealing with the beasties. Too bad I can't remember my whole life. Maybe I love killing animals. He was just joking, but Newt didn't seem to get it. Newt nodded toward the barn. Oh, you'll know good and well by the time the sun sets tonight. Let's go meet Winston. He's the keeper. Winston was an acne-covered kid, short but muscular, and it seemed to Thomas the keeper liked his job way too much. Maybe he was sent here for being a serial killer, he thought. Winston showed Thomas around for the first hour, pointing out which pens held which animals, where the chicken and turkey coops were, what went where in the barn. The dog, a pesky black lab named Bark, took quickly to Thomas, hanging at his feet the entire tour. Wondering where the dog came from, Thomas asked Winston, who said Bark had just always been there. Luckily, he seemed to have gotten his name as a joke, because he was pretty quiet. The second hour was spent actually working with the farm animals, feeding, cleaning, fixing a fence, scraping up clunk. Clunk. Thomas found himself using the glader terms more and more. The third hour was the hardest for Thomas. He had to watch as Winston slaughtered a hog and began preparing its many parts for future eating. Thomas swore two things to himself as he walked away for lunch break. First, his career would not be with the animals. Second, he'd never again eat something that came out of a pig. Winston had said for him to go on alone, that he'd hang around the bloodhouse, which was fine with Thomas. As he walked toward the east door, he couldn't stop picturing Winston in a dark corner of the barn, gnawing on raw pig's feet. The guy gave him the willies. Thomas was just passing the box when he was surprised to see someone enter the glade from the maze through the west door to his left, an Asian kid with strong arms and short black hair, who looked a little older than Thomas. The runner stopped three steps in, then bent over and put his hands on his knees, gasping for breath. He looked like he'd just run twenty miles, face red, skin covered in sweat, clothes soaked. Thomas stared, overcome with curiosity. He'd yet to see a runner up close or talk to one. Plus, based on the last couple of days, the runner was home hours early. Thomas stepped forward, eager to meet him and ask questions. But before he could form a sentence, the boy collapsed to the ground. Chapter 12 Thomas didn't move for a few seconds. The boy lay in a crumpled heap, barely moving, but Thomas was frozen by indecision, afraid to get involved. 
What if something was seriously wrong with this guy? What if he'd been stung? What if Thomas snapped out of it? The runner obviously needed help. Albie! He shouted. Newt! Somebody get them! Thomas sprinted to the older boy and knelt down beside him. Hey, you okay? The runner's head rested on outstretched arms as he panted, his chest heaving. He was conscious, but Thomas had never seen someone so exhausted. I'm fine, he said between breaths, then looked up. Who the clunk are you? I'm new here. It hit Thomas then that the runners were out in the maze during the day and hadn't witnessed any of the recent events firsthand. Did this guy even know about the girl? Probably. Surely someone had told him. I'm Thomas. Been here just a couple of days. The runner pushed himself up into a sitting position, his black hair matted to his skull with sweat. Oh, yeah. Thomas, he huffed. Newbie, you and the chick. Albie jogged up then, clearly upset. What are you doing back, Minho? What happened? Calm your wad, Albie, the runner replied, seeming to gain strength by the second. Make yourself useful and get me some water. I dropped my pack out there somewhere. But Albie didn't move. He kicked Minho in the leg, too hard to be playful. What happened? I can barely talk, Shuckface, Minho yelled, his voice raw. Get me some water. Albie looked over at Thomas, who was shocked to see the slightest hint of a smile flash across his face before vanishing in a scowl. Minho's the only shank who can talk to me like that without getting his butt kicked off the cliff. Then, surprising Thomas even more, Albie turned and ran off, presumably to get Minho some water. Thomas turned toward Minho. He let you boss him around? Minho shrugged, then wiped fresh beads of sweat off his forehead. You scared of that pipsqueak? Dude, you got a lot to learn. Freaking newbies. The rebuke hurt Thomas far more than it should have, considering he'd known this guy all of three minutes. Isn't he the leader? Leader? Minho barked a grunt that was probably supposed to be a laugh. Yeah, call him leader all you want. Maybe we should call him El Presidente. Nah, nah, Admiral Albi. There you go. He rubbed his eyes, snickering as he did so. Thomas didn't know what to make of the conversation. It was hard to tell when Minho was joking. So who is the leader if he isn't? Greeny, just shut it before you confuse yourself more. Minho sighed as if bored, then muttered almost to himself. Why do you shanks always come in here asking stupid questions? It's really annoying. What do you expect us to do? Thomas felt a flush of anger. Like you were any different when you first came, he wanted to say. Do what you're told, keep your mouth shut. That's what I expect. Minho had looked him square in the face for the first time with that last sentence, and Thomas scooted back a few inches before he could stop himself. He realized immediately he'd just made a mistake. He couldn't let this guy think he could talk to him like that. He pushed himself back up onto his knees so he was looking down at the older boy. Yeah. I'm sure that's exactly what you did as a newbie. Minho looked at Thomas carefully, then, again staring straight in his eyes, said, I was one of the first gladers, Slinthead. Shut your hole till you know what you're talking about. Thomas, now slightly scared of the guy but mostly fed up with his attitude, 
moved to get up. Minho's hand snapped out and grabbed his arm. Dude, sit down. I'm just playing with your head. It's too much fun. You'll see when the next newbie. He trailed off, a perplexed look wrinkling his eyebrows. Guess there won't be another newbie, huh? Thomas relaxed, returning to a sitting position, surprised at how easily he'd been put back at ease. He thought of the girl and the note saying she was the last one ever. Guess not. Minho squinted slightly, as if he was studying Thomas. You saw the chick, right? Everybody says you probably know her or something. Thomas felt himself grow defensive. I saw her. Doesn't really look familiar at all. He felt immediately guilty for lying, even if it was just a little lie. She hot? Thomas paused, not having thought of her in that way since she'd freaked out and delivered the note and her one-liner, everything is going to change. But he remembered how beautiful she was. Yeah, I guess she's hot. Minho leaned back until he lay flat, eyes closed. Yeah, you guess. If you got a thing for chicks in comas, right? He snickered again. Right. Thomas was having the hardest time figuring out if he liked Minho or not. His personality seemed to change every minute. After a long pause, Thomas decided to take a chance. So, he asked cautiously, did you find anything today? Minho's eyes opened wide. He focused on Thomas. You know what, Greeny? That's usually the dumbest shuck-faced thing you could ask a runner. He closed his eyes again. But not today. What do you mean? Thomas dared to hope for information. An answer, he thought. Please give me an answer. Just wait till the fancy admiral gets back. I don't like saying stuff twice. Plus, he might not want you to hear it anyway. Thomas sighed. He wasn't in the least bit surprised at the non-answer. Well, at least tell me why you look so tired. Don't you run out there every day? Minho groaned as he pulled himself up and crossed his legs under him. Yeah, Greeny, I run out there every day. Let's just say I got a little excited and ran extra fast to get my behind back here. Why? Thomas desperately wanted to hear about what happened out in the maze. Minho threw his hands up. Dude, I told you. Patience. Wait for General Albi. Something in his voice lessened the blow, and Thomas made his decision. He liked Minho. Okay, I'll shut up. Just make sure Albi lets me hear the news, too. Minho studied him for a second. Okay, Greeny. You de boss. Albi walked up a moment later with a big plastic cup full of water and handed it to Minho, who gulped down the whole thing without stopping once for breath. Okay, Albi said. Out with it. What happened? Minho raised his eyebrows and nodded toward Thomas. He's fine, Albi replied. I don't care what this shank hears. Just talk. Thomas sat quietly in anticipation as Minho struggled to stand up, wincing with every move, his whole demeanor just screaming exhaustion. The runner balanced himself against the wall, gave both of them a cold look. I found a dead one. Huh? Albie asked. A dead what? Minho smiled. A dead griever. Chapter 13
Thomas was fascinated at the mention of a griever. The nasty creature was terrifying to think about, but he wondered why finding a dead one was such a big deal. Had it never happened before? Albie looked like someone had just told him he could grow wings and fly. Any good time for jokes, he said. Look, Minho answered. I wouldn't believe me if I were you either. But trust me, I did. Big, fat, nasty one. It's definitely never happened before, Thomas thought. You found a dead griever, Albie repeated. Yes, Albie, Minho said, his words laced with annoyance. A couple of miles from here, out near the cliff. Albie looked out at the maze, then back at Minho. Well, why didn't you bring it back with you? Minho laughed again, a half-grunt, half-giggle. You been drinking fry pan saucy sauce? Those things must weigh half a ton, dude. Plus, I wouldn't touch one if you gave me a free trip out of this place. Albie persisted with the questions. What did it look like? Were the metal spikes in or out of its body? Did it move at all? Was its skin still moist? Thomas was bursting with questions. Metal spikes? Moist skin? What in the world? But held his tongue, not wanting to remind them he was there. And that maybe they should talk in private. Slim it, man, Minho said. You gotta see it for yourself. It's weird. Weird? Albie looked confused. Dude, I'm exhausted, starving, and sunsick. But if you want to haul it right now, we could probably make it there and back before the walls shut. Albie looked at his watch. Better wait till the wake-up tomorrow. Smartest thing you've said in a week. Minho righted himself from leaning on the wall, hit Albie on the arm, then started walking toward the homestead with a slight limp. He spoke over his shoulder as he shuffled away. It looked like his whole body was in pain. I should go back out there, but screw it. I'm going to get some of Frypan's nasty casserole. Thomas felt a wash of disappointment. He had to admit Minho did look like he deserved a rest and a bite to eat, but he wanted to learn more. Then Albie turned to Thomas, surprising him. If you know something and ain't telling me. Thomas was sick of being accused of knowing things. Wasn't that the problem in the first place? He didn't know anything. He looked at the boy square in the face and asked simply, Why do you hate me so much? The look that came over Albie's face was indescribable, part confusion, part anger, part shock. Hate you? Boy, you ain't learned nothing since showing up in that box. This ain't got nothing to do with no hate or like or love or friends or anything. All we care about is surviving. Drop your sissy side and start using that shuck brain if you got one. Thomas felt like he'd been slapped. But why do you keep accusing? Because it can't be coincidence, Slinthead. You pop in here, then we get us a girl newbie the next day, a crazy note, Ben trying to bite you, dead grievers. Something's going on. I ain't resting till I figure it out. I don't know anything, Albie. It felt good to put some heat into his words. I don't even know where I was three days ago, much less why this Minho guy would find a dead thing called a griever. So back off. Albie leaned back slightly, stared absently at Thomas for several seconds. Then he said, Slim it, Greeny. Grow up and start thinking. Ain't got nothing to do with accusing nobody of nothing. But if you remember anything, if something even seems familiar, you better start talking. Promise me. Not until I have a solid memory, Thomas thought. Not unless I want to share.
Yeah, I guess, but just promise. Thomas paused, sick of Albie and his attitude. Whatever, he finally said. I promise. At that, Albie turned and walked away, not saying another word. Thomas found a tree in the deadheads, one of the nicer ones on the edge of the forest with plenty of shade. He dreaded going back to work with Winston the butcher and knew he needed to eat lunch, but he didn't want to be near anybody for as long as he could get away with it. Leaning back against the thick trunk, he wished for a breeze but didn't get one. He'd just felt his eyelids droop when Chuck ruined the peace and quiet. Thomas! Thomas! the boy shrieked as he ran toward him, pumping his arms, his face lit up with excitement. Thomas rubbed his eyes and groaned. He wanted nothing in the world more than a half-hour nap. It wasn't until Chuck stopped right in front of him, panting to catch his breath, that he finally looked up. What? Words slowly fell from Chuck, in between his gasps for breath. Ben! Ben! He isn't... dead! All signs of fatigue catapulted out of Thomas's system. He jumped up to stand nose-to-nose with Chuck. What? He isn't dead. Baggers went to get him. Arrow missed his brain. Medjacks patched him up. Thomas turned away to stare into the forest where the sick boy had attacked him just the night before. You gotta be kidding. I saw him. He wasn't dead? Thomas didn't know what he felt most strongly. Confusion, relief, fear that he'd be attacked again. Well, so did I, Chuck said. He's locked up in the slammer, a huge bandage covering half his head. Thomas spun to face Chuck again. The slammer? What do you mean? The slammer. It's our jail on the north side of the homestead. Chuck pointed in that direction. They threw him in it so fast, the medjacks had to patch him up in there. Thomas rubbed his eyes. Guilt consumed him when he realized how he truly felt. He'd been relieved that Ben was dead that he didn't have to worry about facing him again. So what are they going to do with him? Already had a gathering of the keepers this morning. Made a unanimous decision by the sounds of it. Looks like Ben will be wishing that arrow had found a home inside his shuck brain after all. Thomas squinted, confused by what Chuck had said. What are you talking about? He's being banished. Tonight, for trying to kill you. Banished? What does that mean? Thomas had to ask, though he knew it couldn't be good if Chuck thought it was worse than being dead. And then Thomas saw perhaps the most disturbing thing he'd seen since he'd arrived at the Glade. Chuck didn't answer. He only smiled. Smiled, despite it all. Despite the sinister sound of what he'd just announced. Then he turned and ran, maybe to tell someone else the exciting news. That night... Newt and Albie gathered every last glader at the east door about a half hour before it closed, the first traces of twilight's dimness creeping across the sky. The runners had just returned and entered the mysterious map room, clanging the iron door shut. Minho had already gone in earlier. Albie told the runners to hurry about their business. He wanted them back out in twenty minutes. It still bothered Thomas how Chuck had smiled when breaking the news about Ben being banished. Though he didn't know exactly what it meant, it certainly didn't sound like a good thing, especially since they were all standing so close to the maze. Are they going to put him out there? he wondered. 
with the grievers? The other gladers murmured their conversations in hushed tones, an intense feeling of dreadful anticipation hanging over them like a patch of thick fog. But Thomas said nothing, standing with arms folded, waiting for the show. He stood quietly until the runners finally came out of their building, all of them looking exhausted, their faces pinched from deep thinking. Minho had been the first to exit, which made Thomas wonder if he was the keeper of the runners. Bring him out, Albie shouted, startling Thomas out of his thoughts. His arms fell to his sides as he turned, looking around the glade for a sign of Ben, trepidation building within him as he wondered what the boy would do when he saw him. From around the far side of the homestead, three of the bigger boys appeared, literally dragging Ben along the ground. His clothes were tattered, barely hanging on. A bloody, thick bandage covered half his head and face. Refusing to put his feet down or help the progress in any way, he seemed as dead as the last time Thomas had seen him. Except for one thing. His eyes were open, and they were wide with terror. Newt, Albie said in a much quieter voice. Thomas wouldn't have heard him if he hadn't been standing just a few feet away. Bring out the pole. Newt nodded, already on the move toward a small tool shed used for the gardens. He'd clearly been waiting for the order. Thomas turned his focus back to Ben and the guards. The pale, miserable boy still made no effort to resist, letting them drag him across the dusty stone of the courtyard. When they reached the crowd, they pulled Ben to his feet in front of Albie, their leader, where Ben hung his head, refusing to make eye contact with anyone. You brought this on yourself, Ben, Albie said. Then he shook his head and looked toward the shack to which Newt had gone. Thomas followed his gaze just in time to see Newt walk through the slanted door. He was holding several aluminum poles, connecting the ends to make a shaft maybe twenty feet long. When he was finished, he grabbed something odd-shaped on one of the ends and dragged the whole thing along toward the group. A shiver ran up Thomas's spine at the metallic scrape of the pole on the stone ground as Newt walked. Thomas was horrified by the whole affair. He couldn't help feeling responsible, even though he'd never done anything to provoke Ben. How was any of this his fault? No answer came to him, but he felt the guilt all the same, like a disease in his blood. Finally, Newt stepped up to Albie and handed over the end of the pole he was holding. Thomas could see the strange attachment now, a loop of rough leather fastened to the metal with a massive staple. A large button snap revealed that the loop could be opened and closed, and its purpose became obvious. It was a collar. Chapter 14 Thomas watched as Albie unbuttoned the collar, then wrapped it around Ben's neck. Ben finally looked up, just as the loop of leather snapped closed with a loud pop. Tears glistened in his eyes. Dribbles of snot oozed from his nostrils. The gladers looked on, not a word from any of them. Please, Albie, Ben pleaded, his shaky voice so pathetic that Thomas couldn't believe it was the same guy who'd tried to bite his throat off the day before. I swear, I was just sick in the head from the changing. I never would have killed him. Just lost my mind for a second. Please, Albie, please. Every word from the kid was like a fist punching Thomas in the gut, making him feel more guilty and confused. 
Albie didn't respond to Ben. He pulled on the collar to make sure it was both firmly snapped and solidly attached to the long pole. He walked past Ben and along the pole, picking it up off the ground as he slid its length through his palm and fingers. When he reached the end, he gripped it tightly and turned to face the crowd. Eyes bloodshot, face wrinkled in anger, breathing heavily. To Thomas, he suddenly looked evil. And it was an odd sight on the other side. Ben, trembling, crying, a roughly cut collar of old leather wrapped around his pale, scrawny neck, attached to a long pole that stretched from him to Albie, twenty feet away. The shaft of aluminum bowed in the middle, but only a little. Even from where Thomas was standing, it looked surprisingly strong. Albie spoke in a loud, almost ceremonious voice, looking at no one and everyone at the same time. Ben of the Builders, you've been sentenced to banishment for the attempted murder of Thomas the newbie. The keepers have spoken, and their word ain't changing. And you ain't coming back. Ever. A long pause. Keepers, take your place on the banishment pole. Thomas hated that his link to Ben was being made public, hated the responsibility he felt. Being the center of attention again could only bring more suspicion about him. His guilt transformed into anger and blame. More than anything, he just wanted Ben gone, wanted it all to be over. One by one, boys were stepping out of the crowd and walking over to the long pole. They grabbed it with both hands, gripped it as if readying for a tug-of-war match. Newt was one of them, as was Minho, confirming Thomas's guess that he was the keeper of the runners. Winston the butcher also took up a position. Once they were all in place, ten keepers spaced evenly apart between Albie and Ben. The air grew still and silent. The only sounds were the muffled sobs of Ben, who kept wiping at his nose and eyes. He was looking left and right, though the collar around his neck prevented him from seeing the pole and keepers behind him. Thomas's feelings changed again. Something was obviously wrong with Ben. Why did he deserve this fate? Couldn't something be done for him? Would Thomas spend the rest of his days feeling responsible? Just end, he screamed in his head. Just be over. Please, Ben said, his voice rising in desperation. Please, somebody help me. You can't do this to me. Shut up. Albie roared from behind. But Ben ignored him, pleading for help as he started to pull on the leather looped around his neck. Someone stop them! Help me! Please! He glanced from boy to boy, begging with his eyes. Without fail, everyone looked away. Thomas quickly stepped behind a taller boy to avoid his own confrontation with Ben. I can't look into those eyes again, he thought. If we let shanks like you get away with that stuff, Albie said. We never would have survived this long. Keepers, get ready. No, 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 Ben was saying half under his breath. I swear, I'll do anything. I swear, I'll never do it again. Please! His shrill cry was cut off by the rumbling crack of the east door beginning to close. Sparks flew from the stone as the massive right wall slid to the left, groaning thunderously as it made its journey to close off the glade from the maze for the night. The ground shook beneath them, and Thomas didn't know if he could watch what he knew was going to happen next. Keepers, now! Albie shouted. 
Ben's head snapped back as he was jerked forward, the keepers pushing the pole toward the maze outside the glade. A strangling cry erupted from Ben's throat, louder than the sounds of the closing door. He fell to his knees, only to be jerked back to his feet by the keeper in front, a thick guy with black hair and a snarl on his face. No! Ben screamed, spit flying from his mouth as he thrashed about, tearing at the collar with his hands. But the combined strength of the keepers was way too much, forcing the condemned boy closer and closer to the edge of the glade, just as the right wall was almost there. No! He screamed again, and then again. He tried to plant his feet at the threshold, but it only lasted for a split second. The pole sent him into the maze with a lurch. Soon he was fully four feet outside the glade, jerking his body from side to side as he tried to escape his collar. The walls of the door were only seconds from sealing shut. With one last violent effort, Ben was finally able to twist his neck in the circle of leather so that his whole body turned to face the gladers. Thomas couldn't believe he was still looking upon a human being. The madness in Ben's eyes, the phlegm flying from his mouth, the pale skin stretched taut across his veins and bones. He looked as alien as anything Thomas could imagine. Hold! Albie shouted. Ben screamed then, without a pause, a sound so piercing that Thomas covered his ears. It was a bestial, lunatic cry, surely ripping the boy's vocal cords to shreds. At the last second, the front keeper somehow loosened the larger pole from the piece attached to Ben and yanked it back into the glade, leaving the boy to his banishment. Ben's final screams were cut off when the walls closed with a terrible boom. Thomas squeezed his eyes shut and was surprised to feel tears trickling down his cheeks. Chapter 15 For the second night in a row, Thomas went to bed with the haunted image of Ben's face burned into his mind, tormenting him. How different would things be right now if it weren't for that one boy? Thomas could almost convince himself he'd be completely content, happy and excited to learn his new life, aim for his goal of being a runner. Almost. Deep down, he knew that Ben was only part of his many problems. But now he was gone, banished to the world of the grievers, taken to wherever they took their prey, victim to whatever was done there. Though he had plenty of reasons to despise Ben, he mostly felt sorry for him. Thomas couldn't imagine going out that way, but based on Ben's last moments, psychotically thrashing and spitting and screaming, he no longer doubted the importance of the Glade rule that no one should enter the maze except runners, and then only during the day. Somehow Ben had already been stung once, which meant he knew better than perhaps anyone just exactly what lay in store for him. That poor guy, he thought. That poor, poor guy. Thomas shuddered and rolled over on his side. The more he thought about it, being a runner didn't sound like such a great idea. But inexplicably, it still called to him. The next morning, dawn had barely touched the sky before the working sounds of the glade wakened Thomas from the deepest slumber since he'd arrived. He sat up, rubbing his eyes, trying to shake the heavy grogginess. Giving up, he lay back down, hoping no one would bother him. It didn't last a minute. Someone tapped his shoulder and he opened his eyes to see Newt staring down at him. 
What now? he thought. Get up, you lug. Yeah, good morning to you too. What time is it? Seven o'clock, Greenie, Newt said with a mocking smile. Figure I'd let you sleep in after such a rough couple days. Thomas rolled into a sitting position, hating that he couldn't just lie there for another few hours. Sleep in? What are you guys, a bunch of farmers? Farmers. How did he remember so much about them? Once again, his memory wipe baffled him. Uh, yeah, now that you mention it. Newt plopped down beside Thomas and folded his legs up under himself. He sat quietly for a few moments, looking out at all the hustle-bustle starting to whip across the glade. Gonna put you with a track hose today, Greeny. See if that suits your fancy more than slicing up bloody piggies and such. Thomas was sick of being treated like a baby. Aren't you supposed to quit calling me that? What, bloody piggies? Thomas forced a laugh and shook his head. No, Greeny. I'm not really the newest newbie anymore, right? The girl in the coma is. Call her Greeny. My name's Thomas. Thoughts of the girl crashed around his mind, made him remember the connection he felt. A sadness washed over him, as if he missed her, wanted to see her. That doesn't make sense, he thought. I don't even know her name. Newt leaned back, eyebrows raised. Burn me, you grew some right nice-sized eggs overnight now, didn't you? Thomas ignored him and moved on. What's a track hoe? It's what we call the guys working their butts off in the gardens. Tilling, weeding, planting and such. Thomas nodded in that direction. Who's the keeper? Zart. Nice guy. So long as you don't slough on the job, that is. He's the big one that stood in front last night. Thomas didn't say anything to that, hoping that somehow he could go through the entire day without talking about Ben and the banishment. The subject only made him sick and guilty, so he moved on to something else. So why'd you come wake me up? What, don't like seeing my face first thing on the wake-up? Not especially, so... But before he could finish his sentence, the rumble of the walls opening for the day cut him off. He looked toward the east door, almost expecting to see Ben standing there on the other side. Instead, he saw Min Ho stretching. Then Thomas watched as he walked over and picked something up. It was the section of pole with the leather collar attached to it. Minho seemed to think nothing of it, throwing it to one of the other runners, who went and put it back in the tool shed near the gardens. Thomas turned back to Newt, confused. How could Minho act so nonchalant about it all? What the? Only seen three banishments, Tommy. All as nasty as the one you peeped on last night. But every bug in time, the grievers leave the collar on our doorstep. Gives me the willies like nothing else. Thomas had to agree. What do they do with people when they catch them? Did he really want to know? Newt just shrugged, his indifference not very convincing. More likely, he didn't want to talk about it. So tell me about the runners, Thomas said suddenly. The words seemed to pop out of nowhere. But he remained still, despite an odd urge to apologize and change the subject. He wanted to know everything about them. Even after what he'd seen last night, even after witnessing the griever through the window, he wanted to know. The pull to know was strong, and he didn't quite understand why. Becoming a runner just felt like something he was born to do. Newt had paused, looking confused. The runners? Why? Just wondering? 
Newt gave him a suspicious look. Best of the best, those guys. Have to be. Everything depends on them. He picked up a loose rock and tossed it, watching it absently as it bounced to a stop. Why aren't you one? Newt's gaze returned to Thomas sharply. Was till I hurt my leg a few months back. Hasn't been the bloody same since. He reached down and rubbed his right ankle absently, a brief look of pain flashing across his face. The look made Thomas think it was more from the memory, not any actual physical pain he still felt. How do you do it? Thomas asked, thinking the more he could get Newt to talk, the more he'd learn. Running from the bug and grievers, what else? Almost got me, he paused. Still gives me the chills thinking I might have gone through the changing. The changing. It was the one topic that Thomas thought might lead him to answers more than anything else. What is that, anyway? What changes? Does everyone go psycho like Ben and start trying to kill people? Ben was way worse than most. But I thought you wanted to talk about the runners. Newt's tone warned that the conversation about the changing was over. This made Thomas even more curious, though he was just fine going back to the subject of runners. Okay, I'm listening. Like I said, best of the best. So what do you do? Test everybody to see how fast they are? Newt gave Thomas a disgusted look, then groaned. Show me some smart, screeny, Tommy, whatever you like. How fast you can bloody run is only part of it. A very small part, actually. This piqued Thomas's interest. What do you mean? When I say best of the best, I mean it everything. To survive the bug and maze, you gotta be smart, quick, strong. Gotta be a decision maker, know the right amount of risk to take. Can't be reckless, can't be timid either. Newt straightened his legs and leaned back on his hands. It's bloody awful out there, you know. I don't miss it. I thought the grievers only came out at night. Destiny or not, Thomas didn't want to run into one of those things. Yeah, usually. Then why is it so terrible out there? What else didn't he know about? Newt sighed. Pressure, stress, maze pattern different every day, trying to picture things in your mind, trying to get us out of here, worrying about the bloody maps. Worst part, you're always scared you might not make it back. A normal maze would be hard enough, but when it changes every night, a couple of mental mistakes and you're spending the night with vicious beasts. No room or time for dummies or brats. Thomas frowned, not quite understanding the drive inside him, urging him on. Especially after last night. But he still felt it. Felt it all over. Why all the interest? Newt asked. Thomas hesitated, thinking, scared to say it out loud again. I want to be a runner. Newt turned and looked him in the eye. Haven't been here a week, Shank. Little early for death wishes, don't you think? I'm serious. It barely made sense even to Thomas, but he felt it deeply. In fact, the desire to become a runner was the only thing driving him on, helping him accept his predicament. Newt didn't break his gaze. So am I. Forget it. No one's ever become a runner in their first month, much less their first week. Got a lot of proving to do before we'll recommend you to the keeper. Thomas stood and started folding up his sleeping gear. Newt, I mean it. I can't pull weeds all day. I'll go nuts. I don't have a clue what I did before they shipped me here in that metal box. 
but my gut tells me that being a runner is what I'm supposed to do. I can do it. Newt still sat there, staring up at Thomas, not offering to help. No one said you couldn't. But give it a rest for now. Thomas felt a surge of impatience. But, listen, trust me on this, Tommy. Start stomping around this place yapping about how you're too good to work like a peasant, how you're all nice and ready to be a runner. You'll make plenty of enemies. Drop it for now. Making enemies was the last thing Thomas wanted, but still. He decided on another direction. Fine, I'll talk to Minho about it. Good try, you bug and shank. The gathering elects runners, and if you think I'm tough, they'd laugh in your face. For all you guys know, I could be really good at it. It's a waste of time to make me wait. Newt stood to join Thomas and jabbed a finger in his face. You listen to me, Greeny. You listening all nice and pretty? Thomas surprisingly didn't feel that intimidated. He rolled his eyes, but then nodded. You better stop this nonsense before others hear about it. That's not how it works around here, and our whole existence depends on things working. He paused, but Thomas said nothing, dreading the lecture he knew was coming. Order, Newt continued. Order. You say that bloody word over and over in your shuck head. Reason we're all sane around here is because we work our butts off and maintain order. Order's the reason we put Ben out. Can't very well have loonies running around trying to kill people now, can we? Order. Last thing we need is you screwing that up. The stubbornness washed out of Thomas. He knew it was time to shut up. Yeah was all he said. Newt slapped him on the back. Let's make a deal. What? Thomas felt his hopes rise. You keep your mouth shut about it, and I'll put you on the list of potential trainees as soon as you show some clout. Don't keep your trap shut, and I'll bloody make sure you never see it happen. Deal? Thomas hated the idea of waiting, not knowing how long it might be. That's a sucky deal. Newt raised his eyebrows. Thomas finally nodded. Deal. Come on, let's get us some grub from Frypan. And hope we don't bloody choke. That morning, Thomas finally met the infamous Frypan, if only from a distance. The guy was too busy trying to feed breakfast to an army of starving gladers. He couldn't have been more than sixteen years old, but he had a full beard and hair sticking out all over the rest of his body as if each follicle were trying to escape the confines of his food-smeared clothes. Didn't seem like the most sanitary guy in the world to oversee all the cooking, Thomas thought. He made a mental note to watch out for nasty black hairs in his meals. He and Newt had just joined Chuck for breakfast at a picnic table right outside the kitchen when a large group of gladers got up and ran toward the west door, talking excitedly about something. What's going on? Thomas asked surprising himself at how nonchalantly he said it. New developments in the glade had just become a part of life. Newt shrugged as he dug into his eggs. Just seeing off Minho and Albi. They're going to look at that buggin' dead griever. Hey, Chuck said. A small piece of bacon flew out of his mouth when he spoke. I've got a question about that. Yeah, Chucky, Newt asked somewhat sarcastically. And what's your bloody question? Chuck seemed deep in thought. Well, they found a dead griever, right? Yeah, Newt replied. Thanks for that bit of news. Chuck absently tapped his fork against the table for a few seconds. Well then, who killed the stupid thing? 
excellent question, Thomas thought. He waited for Newt to answer, but nothing came. He obviously didn't have a clue. Chapter 16 Thomas spent the morning with the keepers of the gardens, working his butt off, as Newt would have said. Zart was the tall, black-haired kid who'd stood at the front of the pole during Ben's banishment, and who for some odd reason smelled like sour milk. He didn't say much, but showed Thomas the ropes until he could start working on his own. Weeding, pruning an apricot tree, planting squash and zucchini seeds, picking veggies. He didn't love it, and mostly ignored the other boys working alongside him, but he didn't hate it nearly as much as what he'd done for Winston at the bloodhouse. Thomas and Zart were weeding a long row of young corn when Thomas decided it was a good time to start asking questions. This keeper seemed a lot more approachable. So, Zart, he said. The keeper glanced up at him, then resumed his work. The kid had droopy eyes and a long face. For some reason, he looked as bored as humanly possible. Yeah, Greeny, what do you want? How many keepers total are there? Thomas asked, trying to act casual. And what are the job options? Well, you got the builders, the sloppers, baggers, cooks, map makers, med jacks, track hoes, bloodhousers, the runners, of course. I don't know, a few more, maybe. Pretty much keep to myself and my own stuff. Most of the words were self-explanatory, but Thomas wondered about a couple of them. What's a slopper? He knew that was what Chuck did but the boy never wanted to talk about it, refused to talk about it. That's what the shanks do that can't do nothing else. Clean toilets, clean the showers, clean the kitchen, clean up the blood house after a slaughter, everything. Spend one day with them suckers. That'll cure any thoughts of going that direction, I can tell you that. Thomas felt a pang of guilt over Chuck, felt sorry for him. The kid tried so hard to be everyone's friend, but no one seemed to like him or even pay attention to him. Yeah, he was a little excitable and talked too much, but Thomas was glad enough to have him around. What about the track hose? Thomas asked as he yanked out a huge weed, clumps of dirt swaying on the roots. Zart cleared his throat and kept on working as he answered. They're the ones take care of all the heavy stuff for the gardens, trenching and whatnot. During off times, they do other stuff round the glade. Actually, a lot of gladers have more than one job. Anyone tell you that? Thomas ignored the question and moved on, determined to get as many answers as possible. What about the baggers? I know they take care of dead people, but it can't happen that often, can it? Those are the creepy fellows. They act as guards and police, too. Everyone just likes to call them baggers. Have fun that day, brother, he snickered, the first time Thomas had heard him do so. There was something very likable about it. Thomas had more questions, lots more. Chuck and everyone else around the glade never wanted to give him the answers to anything. And here was Zart, who seemed perfectly willing. But suddenly Thomas didn't feel like talking anymore. For some reason, the girl had popped into his head again, out of the blue, and then thoughts of Ben and the dead griever, which should have been a good thing, but everyone acted as if it were anything but... His new life pretty much sucked. He drew a deep, long breath. Just work, he thought. And he did. By the time mid-afternoon arrived, Thomas was ready to collapse from exhaustion. 
All that bending over and crawling around on your knees in the dirt was the pits. Bloodhouse, gardens, two strikes. Runner, he thought as he went on break. Just let me be a runner. Once again, he thought about how absurd it was that he wanted it so badly. But even though he didn't understand it or where it came from, the desire was undeniable. Just as strong were thoughts of the girl, but he pushed them aside as much as possible. Tired and sore, he headed to the kitchen for a snack and some water. He could have eaten a full blown meal despite having had lunch just two hours earlier. Even pig was starting to sound good again. He bit into an apple, then plopped on the ground beside Chuck. Newt was there too, but sat alone, ignoring everybody. His eyes were bloodshot, his forehead creased with heavy lines. Thomas watched as Newt chewed his fingernails, something he hadn't seen the older boy do before. Chuck noticed and asked the question that was on Thomas's mind. What's wrong with him? the boy whispered. Looks like you did when you popped out of the box. I don't know, Thomas replied. Why don't you go ask him? I can hear every bloody word you guys are saying, Newt called in a loud voice. No wonder people hate sleeping next to you, Shanks. Thomas felt like he'd been caught stealing, but he was genuinely concerned. Newt was one of the few people in the glade he actually liked. What is wrong with you? Chuck asked. No offense. You look like Clunk. Every loving thing in the universe, he replied, then fell silent as he stared off into space for a long moment. Thomas almost pushed him with another question, but Newt finally continued. The girl from the box keeps groaning and saying all kinds of weird stuff, but won't wake up. Medjacks are doing their best to feed her, but she's eaten less each time. I'm telling you, something's very bad about that whole bloody thing. Thomas looked down at his apple, then took a bite. It tasted sour now. He realized he was worried about the girl. Concerned for her welfare, as if he knew her. Newt let out a long sigh. Shuck it, but that's not what really has me bugging. Then what does? Chuck asked. Thomas leaned forward, so curious he was able to put the girl out of his mind. Newt's eyes narrowed as he looked out toward one of the entrances to the maze. Albi and Minho, he muttered. They should have come back hours ago. Before Thomas knew it, he was back at work, pulling up weeds again, counting down the minutes until he'd be done with the gardens. He glanced constantly at the west door, looking for any sign of Albi and Minho, Newt's concern having rubbed off on him. Newt had said they were supposed to have come back by noon. Just enough time for them to get to the dead griever, explore for an hour or two, then return. No wonder he'd looked so upset. When Chuck offered up that maybe they were just exploring and having some fun, Newt had given him a stare so harsh Thomas thought Chuck might spontaneously combust. He'd never forget the next look that had come over Newt's face. When Thomas asked why Newt and some others didn't just go into the maze and search for their friends, Newt's expression had changed to outright horror. His cheeks had shrunk into his face, becoming sallow and dark. It gradually passed, and he'd explained that sending out search parties was forbidden, lest even more people be lost, but there was no mistaking the fear that had crossed his face. Newt was terrified of the maze. Whatever had happened to him out there, maybe even related to his lingering ankle injury, 
had been truly awful. Thomas tried not to think about it as he put his focus back on yanking weeds. That night, dinner proved to be a somber affair, and it had nothing to do with the food. Frypan and his cook served up a grand meal of steak, mashed potatoes, green beans, and hot rolls. Thomas was quickly learning that jokes about Frypan's cooking were just that jokes. Everyone gobbled up his food and usually begged for more. But tonight, the Gladers ate like dead men resurrected for one last meal before being sent to live with the devil. The runners had returned at their normal time, and Thomas had grown more and more upset as he watched Newt run from door to door as they entered the glade, not bothering to hide his panic. But Albie and Minho never showed up. Newt forced the Gladers to go on and get some of Frypan's hard earned dinner, but he insisted on standing watch for the missing duo. No one said it, but Thomas knew it wouldn't be long before the doors closed. Thomas reluctantly followed orders like the rest of the boys and was sharing a picnic table on the south side of the homestead with Chuck and Winston. He'd only been able to eat a few bites when he couldn't take it anymore. I can't stand sitting here while they're out there missing, he said, as he dropped his fork on the plate. I'm going over to watch the doors with Newt. He stood up and headed out to look. Not surprisingly, Chuck was right behind him. They found Newt at the west door, pacing, running his hands through his hair. He looked up as Thomas and Chuck approached. Where are they? Newt said, his voice thin and strained. Thomas was touched that Newt cared so much about Albie and Min Ho, as if they were his own kin. Why don't we send out a search party? he suggested again. It seemed so stupid to sit here and worry themselves to death when they could go out there and find them. Bloody hell! Newt started before stopping himself. He closed his eyes for a second and took a deep breath. We can't, okay? Don't say it again. One hundred percent against the rules, especially with the buggin' doors about to close. But why? Thomas persisted, in disbelief at Newt's stubbornness. Won't the Grievers get them if they stay out there? Shouldn't we do something? Newt turned on him, his face flushed red, his eyes flamed with fury. Shut your hole, Greeny, he yelled. Not a bloody week you've been here. You think I wouldn't risk my life in a second for those two lugs? No, I... Sorry. I didn't mean... Thomas didn't know what to say. He was just trying to help. Newt's face softened. You don't get it yet, Tommy. Going out there at night is begging for death. We'd just be throwing our lives away. If those shanks don't make it back... He paused, seeming hesitant to say what everyone was thinking. Both of them swore an oath. Just like I did. Like we all did. You too, when you go to your first gathering and get chosen by a keeper. Never go out at night. No matter what. Never. Thomas looked over at Chuck, who seemed as pale-faced as Newt. Newt won't say it, the boy said. So I will. If they're not back, it means they're dead. Minho's too smart to get lost. Impossible. They're dead. Newt said nothing, and Chuck turned and walked back toward the homestead, his head hanging low. Dead? Thomas thought. The situation had become so grave he didn't know how to react, felt a pit of emptiness in his heart. 
The shank's right, Newt said solemnly. That's why we can't go out. We can't afford to make things bloody worse than they already are. He put his hand on Thomas's shoulder, then let it slump to his side. Tears moistened Newt's eyes, and Thomas was sure that even within the dark chamber of memories that were locked away, out of his reach, he'd never seen someone look so sad. The growing darkness of twilight was a perfect fit for how grim things felt to Thomas. The doors close in two minutes, Newt said, a statement so succinct and final it seemed to hang in the air like a burial shroud caught in a puff of wind. Then he walked away, hunched over, quiet. Thomas shook his head and looked back into the maze. He barely knew Alby and Minho, but his chest ached at the thought of them out there, killed by the horrendous creatures he'd seen through the window his first morning in the glade. A loud boom sounded from all directions, startling Thomas out of his thoughts. Then came the crunching, grinding sound of stone against stone. The doors were closing for the night. The right wall rumbled across the ground, spitting dirt and rocks as it moved. The vertical row of connecting rods, so many they seemed to reach the sky far above, slid toward their corresponding holes on the left wall, ready to seal shut until the morning. Once again, Thomas looked in awe at the massive moving wall. It defied any sense of physics. It seemed impossible. Then a flicker of movement to the left caught his eyes. Something stirred inside the maze, down the long corridor in front of him. At first, a shot of panic raced through him. He stepped back, worried it might be a griever. But then, two forms took shape, stumbling along the alley toward the door. His eyes finally focused through the initial blindness of fear, and he realized it was Min Ho, with one of Albi's arms draped across his shoulders, practically dragging the boy along behind him. Min Ho looked up, saw Thomas, who knew his eyes must be bulging out of his head. They got him, Minho shouted, his voice strangled and weak with exhaustion. Every step he took seemed like it could be his last. Thomas was so stunned by the turn of events, it took a moment for him to act. Newt, he finally screamed, forcing his gaze away from Minho and Alby to face the other direction. They're coming! I can see them! He knew he should run into the maze and help, but the rule about not leaving the glade was seared into his mind. Newt had already made it back to the homestead, but at Thomas's cry, he immediately spun around and broke into a stuttering run toward the door. Thomas turned to look back into the maze, and dread washed through him. Alby had slipped out of Minho's clutches and fallen to the ground. Thomas watched as Minho tried desperately to get him back on his feet, then, finally giving up, started to drag the boy across the stone floor by the arms but they were still a hundred feet away. The right wall was closing fast, seeming to quicken its pace the more Thomas willed it to slow down. There were only seconds left until it shut completely. They had no chance of making it in time. No chance at all. Thomas turned to look at Newt, limping along as well as he could. He'd only made it halfway to Thomas. He looked back into the maze, at the closing wall. Only a few feet more, and it'd be over. Minho stumbled up ahead, fell to the ground. They weren't going to make it. Time was up. That was it. Thomas heard Newt scream something from behind him. Don't do it, Tommy! Don't you bloody do it! 
The rods on the right wall seemed to reach like stretched-out arms for their home, grasping for those little holes that would serve as their resting place for the night. The crunching, grinding sound of the doors filled the air, deafening. Five feet, four feet, three, two. Thomas knew he had no choice. He moved. Forward. He squeezed past the connecting rods at the last second and stepped into the maze. The walls slammed shut behind him, the echo of its boom bouncing off the ivy-covered stone like mad laughter. Chapter 17 For several seconds, Thomas felt like the world had frozen in place. A thick silence followed the thunderous rumble of the door closing, and a veil of darkness seemed to cover the sky, as if even the sun had been frightened away by what lurked in the maze. Twilight had fallen, and the mammoth walls looked like enormous tombstones in a weed-infested cemetery for giants. Thomas leaned back against the rough rock, overcome by disbelief at what he had just done, filled with terror at what the consequences might be. Then a sharp cry from Albie up ahead snapped Thomas to attention. Minho was moaning. Thomas pushed himself away from the wall and ran to the two gladers. Minho had pulled himself up and was standing once again, but he looked terrible, even in the pale light still available, sweaty, dirty, scratched up. Albie, on the ground, looked worse, his clothes ripped, his arms covered with cuts and bruises. Thomas shuddered. Had Albie been attacked by a griever? Greeny, Minho said. If you think that was brave coming out here, listen up. You're the shuckiest shuck-faced shuck there ever was. You're as good as dead, just like us. Thomas felt his face heat up. He'd expected at least a little gratitude. I couldn't just sit there and leave you guys out here. And what good are you with us? Minho rolled his eyes. Whatever, dude. Break the number one rule. Kill yourself. Whatever. You're welcome. I was just trying to help. Thomas felt like kicking him in the face. Minho forced a bitter laugh, then knelt back on the ground beside Albie. Thomas took a closer look at the collapsed boy and realized just how bad things were. Albie looked on the edge of death. His usually dark skin was losing color fast, and his breaths were quick and shallow. Hopelessness rained down on Thomas. What happened? he asked, trying to put aside his anger. Don't want to talk about it. Minho said as he checked Albie's pulse and bent over to listen to his chest. Let's just say the grievers can play dead really well. This statement took Thomas by surprise. So he was bitten? Stung? Whatever? Is he going through the changing? You've got a lot to learn, was all Minho would say. Thomas wanted to scream. He knew he had a lot to learn. That was why he was asking questions. Is he going to die? he forced himself to say, cringing at how shallow and empty it sounded. Since we didn't make it back before sunset, probably. Could be dead in an hour. I don't know how long it takes if you don't get the serum. Course we'll be dead too, so we don't get all weepy for him. Yep, we'll all be nice and dead soon. He said it so matter-of-factly, Thomas could hardly process the meaning of the words. But fast enough, the dire reality of the situation began to hit Thomas, and his insides turned to rot. "'We're really going to die?' he asked, unable to accept it. 
You're telling me we have no chance? None. Thomas was annoyed at Minho's constant negativity. Oh, come on. There has to be something we can do. How many grievers will come at us? He peered down the corridor that led deeper into the maze, as if expecting the creatures to arrive then, summoned by the sound of their name. I don't know. A thought sprang into Thomas's mind, giving him hope. But what about Ben? And Galley? And others who've been stung and survived? Minho glanced up at him with a look that said he was dumber than cow clunk. Didn't you hear me? They made it back before sunset, you dong. Made it back and got the serum. All of them. Thomas wondered about the mention of a serum, but had too many other questions to get out first. But I thought the grievers only came out at night. Then you were wrong, Shank. They always come out at night. That doesn't mean they never show up during the day. Thomas wouldn't allow himself to give in to Minho's hopelessness. He didn't want to give up and die just yet. Has anyone ever been caught outside the walls at night and lived through it? Never. Thomas scowled, wishing he could find one little spark of hope. How many have died then? Minho stared at the ground, crouched with one forearm on a knee. He was clearly exhausted, almost in a daze. At least twelve. Haven't you been in the graveyard? Yeah. So that's how they died, he thought. Well, those were just the ones we found. There are more whose bodies never showed up. Minho pointed absently back toward the sealed-off glade. That freaking graveyard's back in the woods for a reason. Nothing kills happy time more than being reminded of your slaughtered friends every day. Minho stood and grabbed Albie's arms, then nodded toward his feet. Grab those smelly suckers. We gotta carry him over to the door. Give him one body that's easy to find in the morning. Thomas couldn't believe how morbid a statement that was. How can this be happening? He screamed to the walls, turning in a circle. He felt close to losing it once and for all. Quit your crying. You should have followed the rules and stayed inside. Now come on, grab his legs. Wincing at the growing cramps in his gut, Thomas walked over and lifted Albie's feet as he was told. They half carried, half dragged the almost lifeless body a hundred feet or so to the vertical crack of the door, where Minho propped Albie up against the wall in a semi-sitting position. Albie's chest rose and fell with struggled breaths, but his skin was drenched in sweat. He looked like he wouldn't last much longer. Where was he bitten? Thomas asked. Can you see it? They don't freaking bite you. They prick you. And no, you can't see it. There could be dozens all over his body. Minho folded his arms and leaned against the wall. For some reason, Thomas thought the word prick sounded a lot worse than bite. Prick you? What does that mean? Dude, you just have to see them to know what I'm talking about. Thomas pointed at Minho's arms, then his legs. Well, why didn't the thing prick you? Minho held his hands out. Maybe it did. Maybe I'll collapse any second. They, Thomas began, but didn't know how to finish. He couldn't tell if Minho had been serious. There was no they, just the one we thought was dead. It went nuts and stung Albie, but then ran away. Minho looked back into the maze, which was now almost completely dark with nighttime. But I'm sure it and a whole bunch of them suckers will be here soon to finish us off with their needles. Needles? Things just kept sounding more and more disturbing to Thomas. 
Yeah, needles. He didn't elaborate, and his face said he didn't plan to. Thomas looked up at the enormous walls covered in thick vines. Desperation had finally clicked him into problem-solving mode. Can't we climb this thing? He looked at Min Ho, who didn't say a word. The vines! Can't we climb them? Min Ho let out a frustrated sigh. I swear, Greenie, you must think we're a bunch of idiots. You really think we've never had the ingenious thought of climbing the freaking walls? For the first time, Thomas felt anger creeping in to compete with his fear and panic. I'm just trying to help, man. Why don't you quit moping at every word I say and talk to me? Minho abruptly jumped at Thomas and grabbed him by the shirt. You don't understand, Shuckface. You don't know anything, and you're just making it worse by trying to have hope. We're dead, you hear me? Dead. Thomas didn't know which he felt more strongly at that moment, anger at Minho or pity for him. He was giving up too easily. Minho looked down at his hands clasped to Thomas's shirt, and shame washed across his face. Slowly, he let go and backed away. Thomas straightened his clothes defiantly. Ah, oh, man, oh, man, Minho whispered, then crumpled to the ground, burying his face in clenched fists. I've never been this scared before, dude. Not like this. Thomas wanted to say something, tell him to grow up, tell him to think, tell him to explain everything he knew, something. He opened his mouth to speak, but closed it quickly when he heard the noise. Minho's head popped up. He looked down one of the darkened stone corridors. Thomas felt his own breath quicken. It came from deep within the maze, a low, haunting sound a constant whirring that had a metallic ring every few seconds, like sharp knives rubbing against each other. It grew louder by the second, and then a series of eerie clicks joined in. Thomas thought of long fingernails tapping against glass. A hollow moan filled the air, and then something that sounded like the clanking of chains. All of it together was horrifying, and the small amount of courage Thomas had gathered began to slip away. Minho stood, his face barely visible in the dying light. But when he spoke, Thomas imagined his eyes wide with terror. We have to split up. It's our only chance. Just keep moving. Don't stop moving. And then he turned and ran, disappearing in seconds, swallowed by the maze and darkness. Chapter 18 Thomas stared at the spot where Minho had vanished. A sudden dislike for the guy swelled up inside him. Minho was a veteran in this place, a runner. Thomas was a newbie, just a few days in the glade, a few minutes in the maze. Yet, of the two of them, Minho had broken down and panicked, only to run off at the first sign of trouble. How could he leave me here, Thomas thought. How could he do that? The noises grew louder. The roar of engines interspersed with rolling, cranking sounds like chains hoisting machinery in an old, grimy factory. And then came the smell, something burning, oily. Thomas couldn't begin to guess what was in store for him. He'd seen a griever, but only a glimpse and through a dirty window. What would they do to him? How long would he last? Stop, he told himself. He had to quit wasting time waiting for them to come and end his life. 
He turned and faced Alby, still propped against the stone wall, now only a mound of shadow in the darkness. Kneeling on the ground, Thomas found Alby's neck, then searched for a pulse. Something there. He listened at his chest like Minho had done. Ba-bump, ba-bump, ba-bump. Still alive. Thomas rocked back and forth on his heels, then ran his arm across his forehead, wiping away the sweat. And at that moment, in the space of only a few seconds, he learned a lot about himself. About the Thomas that was before. He couldn't leave a friend to die, even someone as cranky as Albie. He reached down and grabbed both of Albie's arms, then squatted into a sitting position and wrapped the arms around his neck from behind. He pulled the lifeless body onto his back and pushed with his legs, grunting with the effort. But it was too much. Thomas collapsed forward onto his face. Albie sprawled to the side with a loud flump. The frightening sounds of the grievers grew closer by the second, echoing off the stone walls of the maze. Thomas thought he could see bright flashes of light far away, bouncing off the night sky. He didn't want to meet the source of those lights, those sounds. Trying a new approach, he grabbed Albie's arms again and started dragging him along the ground. He couldn't believe how heavy the boy was, and it took only ten feet or so for Thomas to realize that it just wasn't going to work. Where would he take him anyway? He pushed and pulled Albie back over to the crack that marked the entrance to the glade and propped him once more into a sitting position, leaning against the stone wall. Thomas sat back against it himself, panting from exertion, thinking. As he looked into the dark recesses of the maze, he searched his mind for a solution. He could hardly see anything, and he knew, despite what Minho had said, that it'd be stupid to run even if he could carry Albie. Not only was there the chance of getting lost, he could actually find himself running toward the grievers instead of away from them. He thought of the wall, the ivy. Minho hadn't explained, but he had made it sound as if climbing the walls was impossible. Still, a plan formed in his mind. It all depended on the unknown abilities of the grievers, but it was the best thing he could come up with. Thomas walked a few feet along the wall until he found a thick growth of ivy covering most of the stone. He reached down and grabbed one of the vines that went all the way to the ground and wrapped his hand around it. It felt thicker and more solid than he would have imagined, maybe a half inch in diameter. He pulled on it, and with the sound of thick paper ripping apart, the vine came unattached from the wall, more and more as Thomas stepped away from it. When he'd moved back ten feet, he could no longer see the end of the vine way above. It disappeared in the darkness. But the trailing plant had yet to fall free, so Thomas knew it was still attached up there somewhere. Hesitant to try, Thomas steeled himself and pulled on the vine of ivy with all his strength. It held. He yanked on it again, then again, pulling and relaxing with both hands over and over. Then he lifted his feet and hung on to the vine. His body swung forward. The vine held. Quickly, Thomas grabbed other vines, ripping them away from the wall, creating a series of climbing ropes. He tested each one, and they all proved to be as strong as the first. Encouraged, he went back to Albie and dragged him over to the vines. A sharp crack echoed from within the maze, followed by the horrible sound of crumpling metal. Thomas, startled, swung around to look, 
his mind so concentrated on the vines that he'd momentarily shut out the grievers. He searched all three directions of the maze. He couldn't see anything coming, but the sounds were louder, the whirring, the groaning, the clanging. And the air had brightened ever so slightly. He could make out more of the details of the maze than he'd been able to just minutes before. He remembered the odd lights he'd observed through the glade window with Newt. The grievers were close. They had to be. Thomas pushed aside the swelling panic and set himself to work. He grabbed one of the vines and wrapped it around Albie's right arm. The plant would only reach so far, so he had to prop Albie up as much as he could to make it work. After several wraps, he tied the vine off. Then he took another vine and put it around Albie's left arm, then both of his legs, tying each one tightly. He worried about the glader's circulation getting cut off, but decided it was worth the risk. Trying to ignore the doubt that was seeping into his mind about the plan, Thomas continued on. Now it was his turn. He snatched a vine with both hands and started to climb, directly over the spot where he'd just tied up Albie. The thick leaves of the ivy served well as handholds, and Thomas was elated to find that the many cracks in the stone wall were perfect supports for his feet as he climbed. He began to think how easy it would be without... He refused to finish the thought. He couldn't leave Albie behind. Once he reached a point a couple of feet above his friend, Thomas wrapped one of the vines around his own chest, around and around several times, snug against his armpits for support. Slowly, he let himself sag, letting go with his hands but keeping his feet planted firmly in a large crack. Relief filled him when the vine held. Now came the really hard part. The four vines tied to Albie below hung tautly around him. Thomas took hold of the one attached to Albie's left leg and pulled. He was only able to get it up a few inches before letting go. The weight was too much. He couldn't do it. He climbed back down to the maze floor, decided to try pushing from below instead of pulling from above. To test it, he tried raising Albie only a couple of feet, limb by limb. First, he pushed the left leg up, then tied a new vine around it, then the right leg. When both were secure, Thomas did the same to Albie's arms, right, then left. He stepped back, panting, to take a look. Albie hung there, seemingly lifeless, now three feet higher than he'd been five minutes earlier. Clangs from the maze, whirs, buzzes, moans. Thomas thought he saw a couple of red flashes to his left. The grievers were getting closer, and it was now obvious that there were more than one. He got back to work, using the same method of pushing each of Albie's arms and legs up two or three feet at a time. Thomas slowly made his way up the stone wall. He climbed until he was right below the body, wrapped a vine around his own chest for support, then pushed Albie up as far as he could, limb by limb, and tied them off with ivy. Then he repeated the whole process. Climb, wrap, push up, tie off. Climb, wrap, push up, tie off. The grievers at least seemed to be moving slowly through the maze, giving him time. Over and over, little by little, up they went. The effort was exhausting. Thomas heaved in every breath, felt sweat cover every inch of his skin. His hands began to slip and slide on the vines. His feet ached from pressing into the stone cracks. The sounds grew louder. The awful, awful sounds. 
Still, Thomas worked. When they'd reached a spot about thirty feet off the ground, Thomas stopped, swaying on the vine he'd tied around his chest. Using his drained, rubbery arms, he turned himself around to face the maze. An exhaustion he'd not known possible filled every tiny particle of his body. He ached with weariness. His muscles screamed. He couldn't push Albie up another inch. He was done. This was where they'd hide. Or make their stand. He'd known they couldn't reach the top. He only hoped the grievers couldn't or wouldn't look above them. Or, at the very least, Thomas hoped he could fight them off from high up, one by one, instead of being overwhelmed on the ground. He had no idea what to expect. He didn't know if he'd see tomorrow. But here, hanging in the ivy, Thomas and Albie would meet their fate. A few minutes passed before Thomas saw the first glimmer of light shine off the maze walls up ahead. The terrible sounds he'd heard escalate for the last hour took on a high-pitched mechanical squeal like a robotic death yell. A red light to his left on the wall caught his attention. He turned and almost screamed out loud. A beetle blade was only a few inches from him, its spindly legs poking through the ivy and somehow sticking to the stone. The red light of its eye was like a little sun, too bright to look at directly. Thomas squinted and tried to focus on the beetle's body. The torso was a silver cylinder, maybe three inches in diameter and ten inches long. Twelve jointed legs ran along the length of its bottom, spread out, making the thing look like a sleeping lizard. The head was impossible to see because of the red beam of light shining right at him, though it seemed small, vision its only purpose, perhaps. But then Thomas saw the most chilling part— he thought he'd seen it before, back in the glade when the beetle blade had scooted past him and into the woods. Now it was confirmed. The red light from its eye cast a creepy glow on six capital letters smeared across the torso, as if they had been written with blood. Wicked. Thomas couldn't imagine why that one word would be stamped on the beetle blade, unless for the purpose of announcing to the gladers that it was evil. Wicked. He knew it had to be a spy for whoever had sent them here. Albie had told him as much, saying the beetles were how the creators watched them. Thomas stilled himself, held his breath, hoping that maybe the beetle only detected movement. Long seconds passed, his lungs screaming for air. With a click and then a clack, the beetle turned and scuttled off, disappearing into the ivy. Thomas sucked in a huge gulp of air, then another, feeling the pinch of the vines tied around his chest. Another mechanical squeal screeched through the maze, close now, followed by the surge of revved machinery. Thomas tried to imitate Albie's lifeless body, hanging limp in the vines. And then something rounded the corner up ahead and came toward them. Something he'd seen before, but through the safety of thick glass. Something unspeakable. A griever. Chapter 19 Thomas stared in horror at the monstrous thing making its way down the long corridor of the maze. It looked like an experiment gone terribly wrong, something from a nightmare. Part animal, part machine, the griever rolled and clicked along the stone pathway. Its body resembled a gigantic slug, sparsely covered in hair and glistening with slime. 
grotesquely pulsating in and out as it breathed. It had no distinguishable head or tail, but front to end it was at least six feet long, four feet thick. Every ten to fifteen seconds, sharp metal spikes popped through its bulbous flesh, and the whole creature abruptly curled into a ball and spun forward. Then it would settle, seeming to gather its bearings, the spikes receding back through the moist skin with a sick slurping sound. It did this over and over, traveling just a few feet at a time. But hair and spikes were not the only things protruding from the griever's body. Several randomly placed mechanical arms stuck out here and there, each one with a different purpose. A few had bright lights attached to them. Others had long, menacing needles. One had a three-fingered claw that clasped and unclasped for no apparent reason. When the creature rolled, these arms folded and maneuvered to avoid being crushed. Thomas wondered what or who could create such frightening, disgusting creatures. The source of the sounds he'd been hearing made sense now. When the griever rolled, it made the metallic whirring sound, like the spinning blade of a saw. The spikes and the arms explained the creepy clicking sounds, metal against stone. But nothing sent chills up and down Thomas's spine, like the haunted, deathly moans that somehow escaped the creature when it sat still, like the sound of dying men on a battlefield. Seeing it all now, the beast matched with the sounds, Thomas couldn't think of any nightmare that could equal this hideous thing coming toward him. He fought the fear, forced his body to remain perfectly still, hanging there in the vines. He was sure their only hope was to avoid being noticed. Maybe it won't see us, he thought. Just maybe. But the reality of the situation sank like a stone in his belly. The beetle blade had already revealed his exact position. The griever rolled and clicked its way closer, zigzagging back and forth, moaning and whirring. Every time it stopped, the metal arms unfolded and turned this way and that, like a roving robot on an alien planet looking for signs of life. The lights cast eerie shadows across the maze. A faint memory tried to escape the locked box within his mind, shadows on the walls when he was a kid, scaring him. He longed to be back to wherever that was, to run to the mom and dad he hoped still lived somewhere, missing him, searching for him. A strong whiff of something burnt stung his nostrils, a sick mixture of overheated engines and charred flesh. He couldn't believe people could create something so horrible and send it after kids. Trying not to think about it, Thomas closed his eyes for a moment and concentrated on remaining still and quiet. The creature kept coming. Whirr, click, click, click. Whirr, click, click, click. Thomas peeked down without moving his head. The griever had finally reached the wall where he and Albie hung. It paused by the closed door that led into the glade, only a few yards to Thomas's right. Please go the other way, Thomas pleaded silently. Turn. Go. That way. Please. The griever's spikes popped out. Its body rolled toward Thomas and Albie. Whirr, click, click, click. It came to a stop, then rolled once more, right up to the wall. 
Thomas held his breath, not daring to make the slightest sound. The griever now sat directly below them. Thomas wanted to look down so badly, but knew any movement might give him away. The beams of light from the creature shone all over the place, completely random, never settling in one spot. Then, without warning, they went out. The world turned instantly dark and silent. It was as if the creature had turned off. It didn't move, made no sound. Even the haunting groans had stopped completely. And with no more lights, Thomas couldn't see a single thing. He was blind. He took small breaths through his nose. His pumping heart needed oxygen desperately. Could it hear him? Smell him? Sweat drenched his hair, his hands, his clothes, everything. A fear he had never known filled him to the point of insanity. Still nothing. No movement, no light, no sound. The anticipation of trying to guess its next move was killing Thomas. Seconds passed. Minutes. The ropey plant dug into Thomas's flesh. His chest felt numb. He wanted to scream at the monster below him. Kill me or go back to your hiding hole. Then, in a sudden burst of light and sound, the griever came back to life, whirring and clicking. And then it started to climb the wall. Chapter 20 The griever's spikes tore into the stone, throwing shredded ivy and rock chips in every direction. Its arms shifted about like the legs of the beetle blade, some with sharp picks that drove into the stone of the wall for support. A bright light on the end of one arm pointed directly at Thomas, only this time the beam didn't move away. Thomas felt the last drop of hope drain from his body. He knew the only option left was to run. I'm sorry, Albie, he thought as he unraveled the thick vine from his chest. Using his left hand to hold tight to the foliage above him, he finished unwrapping himself and prepared to move. He knew he couldn't go up. That would bring the griever across the path of Albie. Down, of course, was only an option if he wanted to die as quickly as possible. He had to go to the side. Thomas reached out and grabbed a vine two feet to the left of where he hung. Wrapping it around his hand, he yanked on it with a sharp tug. It held true, just like all the others. A quick glance below revealed that the griever had already halved the distance between them, and it was moving faster yet, no more pauses or stops. Thomas let go of the rope he'd used around his chest and heaved his body to the left, scraping along the wall. Before his pendulum swing took him back toward Albie, he reached out for another vine, catching a nice thick one. This time he grabbed it with both hands and turned to plant the bottom of his feet on the wall. He shuffled his body to the right as far as the plant would let him, then let go and grabbed another one, then another. Like some tree-climbing monkey, Thomas found he could move more quickly than he ever could have hoped. The sounds of his pursuer went on relentlessly, only now with the bone-shuddering addition of cracking and splitting rock joined in. Thomas swung to the right several more times before he dared to look back. The griever had altered its course from Albie to head directly for Thomas. Finally, Thomas thought, something went right. Pushing off with his feet as strongly as he could, swing by swing, he fled the hideous thing. Thomas didn't need to look behind him to know the griever was gaining on him with every passing second. 
The sounds gave it away. Somehow, he had to get back to the ground, or it would all end quickly. On the next switch, he let his hand slip a bit before clasping tightly. The ivy rope burned his palm, but he'd slipped several feet closer to the ground. He did the same thing with the next vine, and the next. Three swings later, he'd made his way halfway to the maze floor. Scorching pain flared up both his arms. He felt the sting of raw skin on his hands. The adrenaline rushing through his body helped push away his fear. He just kept moving. On his next swing, the darkness prevented Thomas from seeing a new wall looming in front of him until it was too late. The corridor ended and turned to the right. He slammed into the stone ahead, losing his grip on the vine. Throwing his arms out, Thomas flailed, reaching and grabbing to stop his plunge to the hard stone below. At the same instant, he saw the griever out of the corner of his left eye. It had altered its course and was almost on him, reaching out with its clasping claw. Thomas found a vine halfway to the ground and grasped it, his arms almost ripping out of their sockets at the sudden stop. He pushed off the wall with both feet as hard as he could, swinging his body away from it just as the griever charged in with its claw and needles. Thomas kicked out with his right leg, connecting with the arm attached to the claw. A sharp crack revealed a small victory, but any elation ended when he realized that the momentum of his swing was now pulling him back down to land right on top of the creature. Pulsing with adrenaline, Thomas drew his legs together and pulled them tight against his chest. As soon as he made contact with the griever's body, disgustingly sinking inches into its gushy skin, he kicked out with both feet to push off, squirming to avoid the swarm of needles and claws coming at him from all directions. He swung his body out and to the left. Then he jumped toward the wall of the maze, trying to grab another vine. The griever's vicious tools snapped and clawed at him from behind. He felt a deep scratch on his back. Flailing once again, Thomas found a new vine and clutched it with both hands. He gripped the plant just enough to slow him down as he slid to the ground, ignoring the horrible burn. As soon as his feet hit the solid stone floor, he took off, running despite the scream of exhaustion from his body. A booming crash sounded behind him, followed by the rolling, cracking, whirring of the griever. But Thomas refused to look back, knowing every second counted. He rounded a corner of the maze, then another, pounding the stone with his feet. He fled as fast as he possibly could. Somewhere in his mind, he tracked his own movements, hoping he'd live long enough to use the information to return to the door again. Right, then left, down a long corridor, then right again. Left, right, two lefts, another long corridor. The sounds of pursuit from behind didn't relent or fade but he wasn't losing ground either. On and on he ran, his heart ready to blow its way out of his chest. With great sucking heaves of breath, he tried to get oxygen in his lungs, but he knew he couldn't last much longer. He wondered if it'd be easier to turn and fight, get it over with. When he rounded the next corner, he skidded to a halt at the sight in front of him. Panting uncontrollably, he stared, Three grievers were up ahead, rolling along as they dug their spikes into the stone, coming directly toward him. Chapter 21 
Thomas turned to see his original pursuer still coming, though it had slowed a bit, clasping and unclasping a metal claw as if mocking him, laughing. It knows I'm done, he thought. After all that effort, here he was, surrounded by grievers. It was over. Not even a week of salvageable memory, and his life was over. Almost consumed by grief, he made a decision. He'd go down fighting. Much preferring one over three, he ran straight toward the griever that had chased him there. The ugly thing retracted just an inch, stopped moving its claw as if shocked at his boldness. Taking heart at the slight falter, Thomas started screaming as he charged. The griever came to life, spikes popping out of its skin. It rolled forward, ready to collide head-on with its foe. The sudden movement almost made Thomas stop, his brief moment of insane courage washing away, but he kept running. At the last second before collision, just as he got a close look at the metal and hair and slime, Thomas planted his left foot and dove to the right. Unable to stop its momentum, the griever zoomed straight past him before it shuddered to a halt. Thomas noticed the thing was moving a lot faster now. With a metallic howl, it swiveled and readied to pounce on its victim. But now, no longer surrounded, Thomas had a clear shot away back down the path. He scrambled to his feet and sprinted forward. Sounds of pursuit, this time from all four grievers, followed close behind. Sure that he was pushing his body beyond its physical limits, he ran on, trying to rid himself of the hopeless feeling that it was only a matter of time before they got him. Then, three corridors down, two hands suddenly reached out and yanked him into the adjoining hallway. Thomas's heart leaped into his throat as he struggled to free himself. He stopped when he realized it was Minho. What? Shut up and follow me! Minho yelled, already dragging Thomas away until he was able to get his feet under him. Without a moment to think, Thomas collected himself. Together they ran through corridors, taking turn after turn. Minho seemed to know exactly what he was doing, where he was going. He never paused to think about which way they should run. As they rounded the next corner, Minho attempted to speak. Between heaving breaths, he gasped, I just saw the dive move you did back there. Gave me an idea. We only have to last a little longer. Thomas didn't bother wasting his own breath on questions. He just kept running, following Minho. Without having to look behind him, he knew the grievers were gaining ground at an alarming rate. Every inch of his body hurt, inside and out. His limbs cried for him to quit running, but he ran on, hoped his heart didn't quit pumping. A few turns later, Thomas saw something ahead of them that didn't register with his brain. It seemed wrong, and the faint light emanating from their pursuers made the oddity up ahead all the more apparent. The corridor didn't end in another stone wall. It ended in blackness. Thomas narrowed his eyes as they ran toward the wall of darkness, trying to comprehend what they were approaching. The two ivy-covered walls on either side of him seemed to intersect with nothing but sky up ahead. He could see stars. As they got closer, he finally realized that it was an opening. The maze ended. How? he wondered. After years of searching, how did Minho and I find it this easily? Minho seemed to sense his thoughts. Don't get excited, he said, barely able to get the words out. 
A few feet before the end of the corridor, Min Ho pulled up, holding his hand out over Thomas's chest to make sure he stopped too. Thomas slowed, then walked up to where the maze opened out into open sky. The sounds of the onrushing grievers grew closer, but he had to see. They had indeed reached a way out of the maze, but like Minho had said, it was nothing to get excited about. All Thomas could see in every direction, up and down, side to side, was empty air and fading stars. It was a strange and unsettling sight, like he was standing at the edge of the universe, and for a brief moment he was overcome by vertigo, his knees weakening before he steadied himself. Dawn was beginning to make its mark, the sky seeming to have lightened considerably even in the last minute or so. Thomas stared in complete disbelief, not understanding how it could all be possible. It was like somebody had built the maze and then set it afloat in the sky to hover there in the middle of nothing for the rest of eternity. I don't get it, he whispered, not knowing if Minho could even hear him. Careful, the runner replied. You wouldn't be the first chank to fall off the cliff. He grabbed Thomas's shoulder. Did you forget something? He nodded back toward the inside of the maze. Thomas remembered hearing the word cliff before, but he couldn't place it at the moment. Seeing the vast open sky in front of and below him had put him into some kind of hypnotized stupor. He shook himself back to reality and turned to face the oncoming grievers. They were now only dozens of yards away, single file, charging in with a vengeance, moving surprisingly fast. Everything clicked then, even before Minho explained what they were going to do. These things may be vicious, Minho said, but they're dumb as dirt. Stand here, close to me, facing... Thomas cut him off. I know, I'm ready. They shuffled their feet until they stood scrunched up together in front of the drop-off at the very middle of the corridor, facing the grievers. Their hills were only inches from the edge of the cliff behind them, nothing but air waiting after that. The only thing left for them was courage. We need to be in sync, Minho yelled, almost drowned out by the ear-splitting sounds of the thundering spikes rolling along the stone. On my mark! Why the grievers had lined up single file was a mystery. Maybe the maze proved just narrow enough to make it awkward for them to travel side by side. But one after the other, they rolled down the stone hallway, clicking and moaning and ready to kill. Dozens of yards had become dozens of feet, and the monsters were only seconds away from crashing into the waiting boys. Ready, Minho said steadily. Not yet. Not yet. Thomas hated every millisecond of waiting. He just wanted to close his eyes and never see another griever again. Now, screamed Minho. Just as the first griever's arm extended out to nip at them, Minho and Thomas dove in opposite directions, each toward one of the outer walls of the corridor. The tactic had worked for Thomas earlier, and judging by the horrible screeching sound that escaped the first griever, it had worked again. The monster flew off the edge of the cliff. Oddly, its battle cry cut off sharply instead of fading as it plummeted to the depths beyond. Thomas landed against the wall and spun just in time to see the second creature tumble over the edge, not able to stop itself. The third one planted a heavily spiked arm into the stone, but its momentum was too much. The nerve-grinding squeal of the spike cutting through the ground sent a shiver up Thomas's spine. 
though a second later the griever tumbled into the abyss. Again, neither of them made a sound as they fell, as if they'd disappeared instead of falling. The fourth and final approaching creature was able to stop in time, teetering on the very edge of the cliff, a spike and a claw holding it in place. Instinctively, Thomas knew what he had to do. Looking to Minho, he nodded, then turned. Both boys ran in at the griever and jumped feet first at the creature, kicking out at the last second with every waning bit of strength. They both connected, sending the last monster plummeting to its death. Thomas quickly scrambled to the edge of the abyss, poking his head over to see the falling grievers. But impossibly, they were gone. Not even a sign of them in the emptiness that stretched below. Nothing. His mind couldn't process the thought of where the cliff led or what had happened to the terrible creatures. His last ounce of strength disappeared, and he curled into a ball on the ground. Then, finally, came the tears. Chapter 22 A half hour passed. Neither Thomas nor Minho had moved an inch. Thomas had finally stopped crying. He couldn't help wondering what Minho would think of him, or if he'd tell others, calling him a sissy. But there wasn't a shred of self-control left in him. He couldn't have prevented the tears. He knew that. Despite his lack of memory, he was sure he'd just been through the most traumatic night of his life. And his sore hands and utter exhaustion didn't help. He crawled to the edge of the cliff once more, stuck his head over again to get a better look now that dawn was in full force. The open sky in front of him was a deep purple, slowly fading into the bright blue of day, with tinges of orange from the sun on a distant, flat horizon. He stared straight down, saw that the stone wall of the maze went toward the ground in a sheer cliff until it disappeared into whatever lay far, far below. But even with the ever-increasing light, he still couldn't tell what was down there. It seemed as if the maze was perched on a structure several miles above the ground. But that was impossible, he thought. It can't be. Has to be an illusion. He rolled over onto his back, groaning at the movement. Things seemed to hurt on him and inside him that he'd never known existed before. At least the doors would be opening soon, and they could return to the glade. He looked over at Min Ho, huddled against the hall of the corridor. I can't believe we're still alive, he said. Min Ho said nothing, just nodded, his face devoid of expression. Are there more of them? Did we just kill them all? Min Ho snorted. Somehow we made it to sunrise, or we would have had ten more on our butts before long. He shifted his body, wincing and groaning. I can't believe it. Seriously. We made it through the whole night. Never been done before. Thomas knew he should feel proud, brave, something. But all he felt was tired and relieved. What did we do differently? I don't know. It's kind of hard to ask a dead guy what he did wrong. Thomas couldn't stop wondering about how the grievers' enraged cries had ended as they fell from the cliff, and how he hadn't been able to see them plummeting to their deaths. There was something very strange and unsettling about it. Seems like they disappeared or something after they went over the edge. Yeah, that was kind of psycho. 
couple of gladers had a theory that other things had disappeared, but we proved them wrong. Look. Thomas watched as Minho tossed a rock over the cliff, then followed its path with his eyes. Down and down it went, not leaving his sight until it grew too small to see. He turned back toward Minho. How does that prove them wrong? Minho shrugged. Well, the rock didn't disappear, now did it? Then what do you think happened? There was something significant here. Thomas could feel it. Minho shrugged again. Maybe they're magic. My head hurts too much to think about it. With a jolt, all thoughts of the cliff were forgotten. Thomas remembered Albie. We have to get back. Straining, he forced himself to get to his feet. Gotta get Albie off the wall. Seeing the look of confusion on Minho's face, he quickly explained what he'd done with the ropes of ivy. Minho looked down, his eyes dejected. No way he's still alive. Thomas refused to believe it. How do you know? Come on! He started limping back along the corridor. Because no one's ever made it. He trailed off, and Thomas knew what he was thinking. That's because they've always been killed by the grievers by the time you found them. Albie was only stuck with one of those needles, right? Minho stood up and joined Thomas in his slow walk back toward the glade. I don't know. I guess this has never happened before. A few guys have been stung by the needles during the day, and those are the ones who got the serum and went through the changing. The poor shanks who got stuck out in the maze all night weren't found until later, days later sometimes, if at all. And all of them were killed in ways you don't want to hear about. Thomas shuddered at the thought. After what we just went through, I think I can imagine. Minho looked up, surprise transforming his face. I think you just figured it out. We've been wrong. Well, hopefully we've been wrong. Because no one who'd been stung and didn't make it back by sunset has ever survived, we just assumed that was the point of no return, when it's too late to get the serum. He seemed excited by his line of thinking. They turned yet another corner, Minho suddenly taking the lead. The boy's pace was picking up, but Thomas stayed on his heels, surprised at how familiar he felt with the directions, usually even leaning into turns before Minho showed the way. Okay, this serum, Thomas said. I've heard that a couple of times now. What is that? And where does it come from? Just what it sounds like, Shank. It's a serum. The grief serum. Thomas forced out a pathetic laugh. Just when I think I've learned everything about this stupid place. Why is it called that? And why are grievers called grievers? Minho explained as they continued through the endless turns of the maze, neither one of them leading now. I don't know where we got the names, but the serum comes from the creators, or that's what we call them at least. It's with the supplies in the box every week, always has been. It's a medicine or antidote or something, already inside a medical syringe, ready to use. He made a show of sticking a needle in his arm. Stick that sucker in someone who's been stung and it saves them. They go through the changing, which sucks, but after that, they're healed. A minute or two passed in silence as Thomas processed the information. They made a couple more turns. He wondered about the changing and what it meant, and for some reason, he kept thinking of the girl. Weird, though, Minho finally continued. We've never talked about this before. If he's still alive, there's really no reason to think Albie can't be saved by the serum. We somehow got it in our clunk heads that once the doors closed, you were done.
End of story. I gotta see this hanging on the wall thing myself. I think you're shucking me. The boys kept walking, Minho almost looking happy, but something was nagging at Thomas. He'd been avoiding it, denying it to himself. What if another griever got Albi after I diverted the one chasing me? Minho looked over at him, a blank expression on his face. Let's just hurry, is all I'm saying, Thomas said, hoping all that effort to save Albi hadn't been wasted. They tried to pick up the pace, but their bodies hurt too much, and they settled back into a slow walk despite the urgency. The next time they rounded a corner, Thomas faltered, his heart skipping a beat when he saw movement up ahead. Relief washed through him an instant later when he realized it was Newt and a group of gladers. The west door to the glade towered over them, and it was open. They'd made it back. At the boy's appearance, Newt limped over to them. What happened? he asked. He sounded almost angry. How in the bloody... We'll tell you later, Thomas interrupted. We have to save Albie. Newt's face went white. What do you mean? He's alive? Just come here. Thomas headed to the right, craning his neck to look high up at the wall, searching along the thick vines until he found the spot where Albie hung by his arms and legs far above them. Without saying anything, Thomas pointed up, not daring to be relieved yet. He was still there, and in one piece, but there was no sign of movement. Newt finally saw his friend hanging in the ivy and looked back at Thomas. If he'd seemed shocked before, now he looked completely bewildered. Is he alive? Please let him be, Thomas thought. I don't know. Was when I left him up there. When you left him? Newt shook his head. You and Min Ho get your butts inside. Get yourselves checked by the medjacks. You look bloody awful. I want the whole story when they're done and you're rested up. Thomas wanted to wait to see if Albie was okay. He started to speak, but Minho grabbed him by the arm and forced him to walk toward the glade. We need sleep and bandages. Now. And Thomas knew he was right. He relented, glancing back up at Albie, then following Minho out and away from the maze. The walk back into the glade and then to the homestead seemed endless. A row of gladers on both sides gawking at them. Their faces showed complete awe, as if they were watching two ghosts strolling through a graveyard. Thomas knew it was because they'd accomplished something never done before, but he was embarrassed by the attention. He almost stopped walking altogether when he spotted Galley up ahead, arms folded and glaring, but he kept moving. It took every ounce of his willpower, but he looked directly into Galley's eyes, never breaking contact. When he got to within five feet, the other boy's stare fell to the ground. It almost disturbed Thomas how good that felt. Almost. The next few minutes were a blur. Escorted into the homestead by a couple of medjacks, up the stairs, a glimpse through a barely ajar door of someone feeding the comatose girl in her bed, he felt an incredibly strong urge to go see her, to check on her, into their own rooms, into bed, food, water, bandages. Pain. Finally, he was left alone, his head resting on the softest pillow his limited memory could recall. But as he fell asleep, two things wouldn't leave his mind. First, the word he'd seen scrawled across the torso of both beetle blades. 
wicked, ran through his thoughts again and again. The second thing was the girl. Hours later, days for all he knew, Chuck was there, shaking him awake. It took several seconds for Thomas to get his bearings and see straight. He focused in on Chuck, groaned, Let me sleep, you shank. I thought you'd want to know. Thomas rubbed his eyes and yawned. Know what? He looked at Chuck again, confused by his big smile. He's alive, he said. Albie's okay. The serum worked. Thomas's grogginess instantly washed away, replaced with relief. It surprised him how much joy the information brought. But then Chuck's next words made him reconsider. He just started the changing. As if brought on by the words, a blood-chilling scream erupted from a room down the hall. Chapter 23 Thomas wondered long and hard about Albie. It seemed such a victory just to save his life, bring him back from a night in the maze. But had it been worth it? Now the boy was in intense pain, going through the same things as Ben. And what if he became as psychotic as Ben? Troubling thoughts all around. Twilight fell upon the glade, and Albie's screams continued to haunt the air. It was impossible to escape the terrible sound, even after Thomas finally talked the medjacks into letting him go, weary, sore, bandaged, but tired of the piercing, agonized wails of their leader. Newt had adamantly refused when Thomas asked to see the person he'd risked his life for. It'll only make it worse, he'd said, and would not be swayed. Thomas was too tired to put up a fight. He'd had no idea it was possible to feel so exhausted, despite the few hours of sleep he'd gotten. He'd hurt too much to do anything after that, and had spent most of the day on a bench on the outskirts of the deadheads, wallowing in despair. The elation of his escape had faded rapidly, leaving him with pain and thoughts of his new life in the glade. Every muscle ached. Cuts and bruises covered him from head to toe. But even that wasn't as bad as the heavy emotional weight of what he'd been through the previous night. It seemed as if all the realities of living there had finally settled in his mind, like hearing a final diagnosis of terminal cancer. How could anyone ever be happy in a life like this, he thought. Then, how could anyone be evil enough to do this to us? He understood more than ever the passion the Gladers felt for finding their way out of the maze. It wasn't just a matter of escape. For the first time, he felt a hunger to get revenge on the people responsible for sending him there. But those thoughts just led back to the hopelessness that had filled him so many times already. If Newt and the others hadn't been able to solve the maze after two years of searching, it seemed impossible there could actually be a solution. The fact that the Gladers hadn't given up said more about these people than anything else. And now he was one of them. This is my life, he thought. Living in a giant maze surrounded by hideous beasts. Sadness filled him like a heavy poison. Albie's screams, now distant but still audible, only made it worse. He had to squeeze his hands to his ears every time he heard them. Eventually, the day dragged to a close, and the setting of the sun brought the now familiar grinding of the four doors closing for the night. Thomas had no memory of his life before the box, 
but he was positive he'd finished the worst 24 hours of his existence. Just after dark, Chuck brought him some dinner and a big glass of cold water. Thanks, Thomas said, feeling a burst of warmth for the kid. He scooped the beef and noodles off the plate as fast as his aching arms could move. I so needed this, he mumbled through a huge bite. He took a big swig of his drink, then went back to attacking the food. He hadn't realized how hungry he was until he'd started eating. You're disgusting when you eat, Chuck said, sitting on the bench next to him. It's like watching a starving pig eat his own clunk. That's funny, Thomas said, sarcasm lacing his voice. You should go entertain the grievers, see if they laugh. A quick expression of hurt flashed across Chuck's face, making Thomas feel bad, but vanished almost as fast as it had appeared. That reminds me, you're the talk of the town. Thomas sat up straighter, not sure how he felt about the news. What's that supposed to mean? Oh, gee, let me think. First, you go out in the maze when you're not supposed to, at night. Then, you turn into some kind of freaky jungle dude, climbing vines and tying people up on walls. Next, you become one of the first people ever to survive an entire night outside the glade. And to top it all off, you kill four grievers. Can't imagine what those shanks are talking about. A surge of pride filled Thomas's body, then fizzled. Thomas was sickened by the happiness he'd just felt. Albie was still in bed, screaming his head off in pain, probably wishing he were dead. Tricking them to go over the cliff was Minho's idea, not mine. Not according to him. He saw you do the wait-and-dive thingy, then had the idea to do the same thing at the cliff. The wait-and-dive thingy? Thomas asked, rolling his eyes. Any idiot on the planet would have done that. Don't get all humbly-bumbly on us. What you did is freaking unbelievable. You and Minho both. Thomas tossed the empty plate on the ground, suddenly angry. Then why do I feel so crappy, Chuck? Want to answer me that? Thomas searched Chuck's face for an answer, but by the looks of it, he didn't have one. The boy just sat clasping his hands as he leaned forward on his knees, head hanging. Finally, under his breath, he murmured, Same reason we all feel crappy. They sat in silence until a few minutes later, Newt walked up, looking like death on two feet. He sat on the ground in front of them, as sad and worried as any person could possibly appear. Still, Thomas was glad to have him around. I think the worst part's over, Newt said. The bugger should be sleeping for a couple of days and wake up okay. Maybe a little screaming now and then. Thomas couldn't imagine how bad the whole ordeal must be, but the whole process of the changing was still a mystery to him. He turned to the older boy, trying his best to be casual. Newt, what's he going through up there? Seriously, I don't get what this changing thing is. Newt's response startled Thomas. You think we do, he spat, throwing his arms up, then slapping them back down on his knees. All we bloody know is if the grievers sting you with their nasty needles, you inject the grief serum or you die. If you do get the serum, then your body wigs out and shakes and your skin bubbles and turns a freaky green color and you vomit all over yourself. Enough explanation for you there, Tommy? Thomas frowned. He didn't want to make Newt any more upset than he already was, but he needed answers. Hey, I know it sucks to see your friend go through that, 
But I just want to know what's really happening up there. Why do you call it the changing? Newt relaxed, seemed to shrink even, and sighed. It brings back memories. Just little snippets, but definite memories of before we came to this horrible place. Anyone who goes through it acts like a bloody psycho when it's over, although usually not as bad as poor Ben. Anyway, it's like being given your old life back, only to have it snatched away again. Thomas's mind was churning. Are you sure? he asked. Newt looked confused. What do you mean? Sure about what? Are they changed because they want to go back to their old life? Or is it because they're so depressed at realizing their old life was no better than what we have now? Newt stared at him for a second, then looked away, seemingly deep in thought. Shanks who've been through it'll never really talk about it. They get different, unlikable. There's a handful around the glade, but I can't stand to be around them. His voice was distant, his eyes having strayed to a certain blank spot in the woods. Thomas knew he was thinking about how Albie might never be the same again. Tell me about it, Chuck chimed in. Callie's the worst of them all. Anything new on the girl? Thomas asked, changing the subject. He was in no mood to talk about Gally. Plus, his thoughts kept going back to her. I saw the medjacks feeding her upstairs. No, Newt answered. Still in the bug and coma, or whatever it is. Every once in a while she'll mumble something, nonsense, like she's dreaming. She takes the food, seems to be doing all right. It's kind of weird. A long pause followed, as if the three of them were trying to come up with an explanation for the girl. Thomas wondered again about his inexplicable feeling of connection with her, though it had faded a little. But that could have been because of everything else occupying his thoughts. Newt finally broke the silence. Anyway, next up, figure out what we do with Tommy here. Thomas perked up at that, confused by the statement. Do with me? What are you talking about? Newt stood, stretched his arms. Turn this whole place upside down, you bloody shank. Half the gladers think you're God. The other half want to throw your butt down the box hole. Lot of stuff to talk about. Like what? Thomas didn't know which was more unsettling, that people thought he was some kind of hero or that some wished he didn't exist. Patience, Newt said. You'll find out after the wake-up. Tomorrow? Why? Thomas didn't like the sound of this. I've called a gathering, and you'll be there. You're the only buggin' thing on the agenda. And with that, he turned and walked away, leaving Thomas to wonder why in the world a gathering was needed just to talk about him. Chapter 24 the next morning, Thomas found himself sitting in a chair, worried and anxious, sweating, facing eleven other boys. They were seated in chairs arranged in a semicircle around him. Once settled, he realized they were the keepers, and to his chagrin that meant Galley was among them. One chair directly in front of Thomas stood empty. He didn't need to be told that it was Albie's. They sat in a large room of the homestead that Thomas hadn't been in before. Besides the chairs, there was no other furniture except for a small table in the corner. The walls were made of wood, as was the floor, and it didn't look like anyone had ever attempted to make the place look inviting. There were no windows. 
The room smelled of mildew and old books. Thomas wasn't cold, but shivered all the same. He was at least relieved that Newt was there. He sat in the chair to the right of Albie's empty seat. In place of our leader sick in bed, I declare this gathering begun, he said, with a subtle roll of his eyes as if he hated anything approaching formality. As you all know, the last few days have been bloody crazy, and quite a bit seems centered around our green bean, Tommy, seated before us. Tommy's face flushed with embarrassment. He's not the greenie anymore, Galley said, his scratchy voice so low and cruel it was almost comical. He's just a rule-breaker now. This started off a rumbling of murmurs and whispers, but Newt shushed them. Thomas suddenly wanted to be as far from that room as possible. Gally, Newt said, try to keep some bug in order here. If you're going to blabber your shuck mouth every time I say something, you can go ahead and bloody leave, because I'm not in a very cheerful mood. Thomas wished he could cheer at that. Galley folded his arms and leaned back in his chair, the scowl on his face so forced that Thomas almost laughed out loud. He was having a harder and harder time believing he'd been terrified of this guy just a day earlier. He seemed silly, even pathetic now. Newt gave Galley a hard stare, then continued. Glad we got that out of the way. Another roll of the eyes. Reason we're here is because almost every lovin' kid in the glade has come up to me in the last day or two, either boo-hooing about Thomas or begging to take his bloody hand in marriage. We need to decide what we're going to do with him. Galley leaned forward, but Newt cut him off before he could say anything. You'll have your chance, Galley. One at a time. And Tommy, you're not allowed to say a buggin' thing until we ask you to. Good that? He waited for a nod of consent from Thomas, who gave it reluctantly then pointed to the kid in the chair on the far right. Zart the fart, you start. There were a few snickers as Zart, the quiet big guy who watched over the gardens, shifted in his seat. He looked to Thomas more out of place than a carrot on a tomato plant. Well, Zart began, his eyes darting around almost like he was waiting for someone else to tell him what to say. I don't know. He broke one of our most important rules. We can't just let people think that's okay. He paused and looked down at his hands, rubbing them together. But then again, he's changed things. Now we know we can survive out there, and that we can beat the grievers. Relief flooded Thomas. He had someone else on his side. He made a promise to himself to be extra nice to Zart. Ah, oh, give me a break, Galley spurted. I bet Minho's the one who actually got rid of the stupid things. Gally, shut your hole, Newt yelled, standing for effect this time. Once again, Thomas felt like cheering. I'm the bloody chair right now, and if I hear one more buggin' word out of turn from you, I'll be arranging another banishing for your sorry butt. Please, Gally whispered sarcastically, the ridiculous scowl returning as he slouched back into his chair again. Newt sat down and motioned to Zart. Is that it? Any official recommendations? Zart shook his head. Okay. You're next, Frypan. The cook smiled through his beard and sat up straighter. Shank's got more guts than I've fried up from every pig and cow in the last year. He paused as if expecting a laugh, but none came. How stupid is this? He saves Albie's life, kills a couple of grievers, and we're sitting here yapping about what to do with him. As Chuck would say, this is a pile of clunk. 
Thomas wanted to walk over and shake Frypan's hand. He'd just said exactly what Thomas himself had been thinking about all of this. So what are you recommending? Newt asked. Frypan folded his arms. Put him on the freaking council and have him train us on everything he did out there. Voices erupted from every direction, and it took Newt half a minute to calm everyone down. Thomas winced. Frypan had gone too far with that recommendation, almost invalidating his well-stated opinion of the whole mess. All right, writing her down, Newt said as he did just that, scribbling on a notepad. Now everyone keep their bloody mouths shut. I mean it. You know the rules. No idea is unacceptable, and you'll all have your say when we vote on it. He finished writing and pointed to the third member of the council, a kid Thomas hadn't met yet with black hair and a freckly face. I don't really have an opinion, he said. What? Newt asked angrily. Lot of good it did to choose you for the council then. Sorry, I honestly don't, he shrugged. If anything, I agree with Frypan, I guess. Why punish a guy for saving someone's life? So you do have an opinion, is that it? Newt insisted, pencil in hand. The kid nodded and Newt scribbled a note. Thomas was feeling more and more relieved. It seemed like most of the keepers were for him, not against him. Still, he was having a hard time just sitting there. He desperately wanted to speak on his own behalf, but he forced himself to follow Newt's orders and keep quiet. Next was acne-covered Winston, keeper of the bloodhouse. I think he should be punished. No offense, Greeny, but Newt, you're the one always harping about order. If we don't punish him, we'll set a bad example. He broke our number one rule. Okay, Newt said, writing on his pad. So you're recommending punishment? What kind? I think he should be put in the slammer for a week with only bread and water, and we need to make sure everyone knows about it so they don't get any ideas. Galley clapped, earning a scowl from Newt. Thomas's heart fell just a bit. Two more keepers spoke, one for Frypan's idea, one for Winston's. Then it was Newt's turn. I agree with the lot of you. He should be punished, but then we need to figure out a way to use him. I'm reserving my recommendation until I hear everyone out. Next. Thomas hated all this talk about punishment, even more than he hated having to keep his mouth shut. But deep inside, he couldn't bring himself to disagree. As odd as it seemed after what he'd accomplished, he had broken a major rule. Down the line they went. Some thought he should be praised. Some thought he should be punished. Or both. Thomas could barely listen anymore, anticipating the comments from the last two keepers, Galley and Minho. The latter hadn't said a word since Thomas had entered the room. He just sat there, drooped in his chair, looking like he hadn't slept in a week. Galley went first. I think I've made my opinions pretty clear already. Great, Thomas thought. Then just keep your mouth shut. Good that, Newt said with yet another roll of the eyes. Go on then, Minho. No, Galley yelled, making a couple of keepers jump in their seats. I still want to say something. Then bloody say it. Newt replied. It made Thomas feel a little better that the temporary council chair despised Galley almost as much as he did. Though Thomas wasn't that afraid of him anymore, he still hated the guy's guts. Just think about it, Galley began. This slinthead comes up in the box, acting all confused and scared. A few days later, he's running around the maze with grievers, acting like he owns the place. Thomas shrank into his chair, hoping that others hadn't been thinking anything like that. 
Galley continued his rant. I think it was all an act. How could he have done what he did out there after just a few days? I ain't buying it. What are you trying to say, Galley? Newt asked. How about having a bloody point? I think he's a spy from the people who put us here. Another uproar exploded in the room. Thomas could do nothing but shake his head. He just didn't get how Galley could come up with all these ideas. Newt finally calmed everyone down again, but Galley wasn't finished. We can't trust this shank, he continued. Day after he shows up, a psycho girl comes spouting off that things are going to change, clutching that freaky note. We find a dead griever. Thomas conveniently finds himself in the maze for the night, then tries to convince everyone he's a hero. Well, neither Minho nor anyone else actually saw him do anything in the vines. How do we know it was the greenie who tied Albie up there? Galley paused. No one said a word for several seconds, and panic rose inside Thomas's chest. Could they actually believe what Galley was saying? He was anxious to defend himself and almost broke his silence for the first time, but before he could get a word in, Galley was talking again. There's too many weird things going on, and it all started when this shuck-faced greenie showed up. And he just happens to be the first person to survive a night out in the maze. Something ain't right, and until we figure it out, I officially recommend that we lock his butt in the slammer for a month and then have another review. More rumblings broke out, and Newt wrote something on his pad, shaking his head the whole time, which gave Thomas a tinge of hope. Finished, Captain Galley, Newt asked. Quit being such a smart aleck, Newt, he spat, his face flushing red. I'm dead serious. How can we trust this shank after less than a week? Quit voting me down before you even think about what I'm saying. For the first time, Thomas felt a little empathy for Galley. He did have a point about how Newt was treating him. Galley was a keeper, after all. But I still hate him, Thomas thought. Fine, Galley, Newt said. I'm sorry. We heard you. And we'll all consider your bloody recommendation. Are you done? Yes, I'm done. And I'm right. With no more words for Galley, Newt pointed at Minho. Go ahead, last but not least. Thomas was elated that it was finally Minho's turn. Surely he'd defend him to the end. Minho stood quickly, taking everyone off guard. I was out there. I saw what this guy did. He stayed strong while I turned into a panty-wearing chicken. No blabbing on and on like Galley. I want to say my recommendation and be done with it. Thomas held his breath, wondering what he'd say. Good that, Newt said. Tell us then. Minho looked at Thomas. I nominate this shank to replace me as keeper of the runners. Chapter 25 Complete silence filled the room, as if the world had been frozen and every member of the council stared at Minho. Thomas sat stunned, waiting for the runner to say he'd been kidding. Galley finally broke the spell, standing up. That's ridiculous! He faced Newt and pointed back at Minho, who had taken his seat again. He should be kicked off the council for saying something so stupid. Any pity Thomas had felt for Galley, however remote, completely vanished at that statement. Some keepers seemed to actually agree with Minho's recommendation, like Frypan, who clapped to drown out Galley, clamoring to take a vote. Others didn't. Winston shook his head adamantly, saying something that Thomas couldn't quite make out. When everyone started talking at once, 
Thomas put his head in his hands to wait it out, terrified and awed at the same time. Why had Minho said that? Has to be a joke, he thought. Newt said it takes forever just to become a runner, much less the keeper. He looked back up, wishing he were a thousand miles away. Finally, Newt put his notepad down and stepped out from the semicircle, screaming at people to shut up. Thomas watched on, as at first no one seemed to hear or notice Newt at all. Gradually, though, order was restored, and everyone sat down. Shuck it, Newt said. I've never seen so many shanks acting like teat-sucking babies. We may not look it, but around these parts we're adults. Act like it, or we'll disband this bloody council and start from scratch. He walked from end to end of the curved row of sitting keepers, looking each of them in the eye as he spoke. Are we clear? Quiet had swept across the group. Thomas expected more outbursts, but was surprised when everyone nodded their consent, even Galley. Good that. Newt walked back to his chair and sat down, putting the pad in his lap. He scratched out a few lines on the paper, then looked up at Min Ho. That's some pretty serious clunk, brother. Sorry, but you need to talk it up to move it forward. Thomas couldn't help feeling eager to hear the response. Minho looked exhausted, but he started defending his proposal. It's sure easy for you shanks to sit here and talk about something you're stupid on. I'm the only runner in this group, and the only other one here who's even been out in the maze is Newt. Galley interjected. Not if you count the time I... I don't, Minho shouted. And believe me, you or nobody else has the slightest clue what it's like to be out there. The only reason you were stung is because you broke the same rule you're blaming Thomas for. That's called hypocrisy, you shuck-faced piece of... Enough, Newt said. Defend your proposal and be done with it. The tension was palpable. Thomas felt like the air in the room had become glass that could shatter at any second. Both Galley and Min Ho looked as if the taut, red skin of their faces was about to burst, but they finally broke their stare. Anyway... Listen to me, Minho continued as he took his seat. I've never seen anything like it. He didn't panic. He didn't whine and cry. Never seemed scared. Dude, he'd been here for just a few days. Think about what we were all like in the beginning. Huddling in corners, disoriented, crying every hour, not trusting anybody, refusing to do anything. We were all like that for weeks or months till we had no choice but to shuck it and live. Minho stood back, pointed at Thomas. Just a few days after this guy shows up, he steps out in the maze to save two shanks he hardly knows. All this clunk about him breaking a rule is just beyond stupid. He didn't get the rules yet. But plenty of people had told him what it's like in the maze, especially at night. And he still stepped out there, just as the door was closing, only caring that two people needed help. He took a deep breath seeming to gain strength the more he spoke. But that was just the beginning. After that, he saw me give up on Albie, leave him for dead. And I was the veteran, the one with all the experience and knowledge. So when Thomas saw me give up, he shouldn't have questioned it. But he did. Think about the willpower and strength it took him to push Albie up that wall, inch by inch. It's psycho. It's freaking crazy. But that wasn't it. Then came the grievers. I told Thomas we had to split up, and I started the practiced evasive maneuvers, running in the patterns. 
Thomas, when he should have been wet in his pants, took control, defied all laws of physics and gravity to get Albie up under that wall, diverted the grievers away from him, beat one off, found... We get the point, Galley snapped. Tommy here is a lucky shank. Minho rounded on him. No, you worthless shuck! You don't get it! I've been here two years, and I've never seen anything like it. For you to say anything... Minho paused, rubbing his eyes, groaning in frustration. Thomas realized his own mouth had dropped wide open. His emotions were scattered. Appreciation for Minho standing up to everybody on his behalf, disbelief at Galley's continuous belligerence, fear of what the final decision would be. Galley, Minho said in a calmer voice, you're nothing but a sissy who has never, not once, asked to be a runner or tried out for it. You don't have the right to talk about things you don't understand. So shut your mouth. Galley stood up, fuming. Say one more thing like that, and I'll break your neck. Right here, in front of everybody. Spit flew from his mouth as he spoke. Minho laughed, then raised the palm of his hand and shoved Galley in the face. Thomas half stood as he watched the glader crash down into his chair, tipping it over backward, cracking it in two pieces. Galley sprawled across the floor, then scrambled to stand up, struggling to get his hands and feet under him. Minho stepped closer and stomped the bottom of his foot down on Galley's back, driving his body flat to the ground. Thomas plopped back into his seat, stunned. I swear, Galley, Minho said with a sneer, don't ever threaten me again. Don't ever speak to me again. Ever. If you do, I'll break your shuck neck right after I'm done with your arms and legs. Newt and Winston were on their feet and grabbing Minho before Thomas even knew what was going on. They pulled him away from Galley, who jumped up, his face a ruddied mask of rage. But he made no move toward Minho. He just stood there with his chest out, heaving ragged breaths. Finally, Galley backed away, half stumbling toward the exit behind him. His eyes darted around the room, lit with a burning hatred. Thomas had the sickening thought that Galley looked like someone about to commit murder. He backed toward the door, reached behind him to grab the handle. Things are different now, he said, spitting on the floor. You shouldn't have done that, Mino. You should not have done that. His maniacal gaze shifted to Newt. I know you hate me, that you've always hated me. You should be banished for your embarrassing inability to lead this group. You're shameful. And any one of you who stays here is no better. Things are going to change. This, I promise. Thomas's heart sank, as if things hadn't been awkward enough already. Galley yanked the door open and stepped out into the hall. But before anyone could react, he popped his head back in the room. And you, he said, glaring at Thomas. The green bean who thinks he's friggin' God. Don't forget, I've seen you before. I've been through the changing. What these guys decide doesn't mean jack. He paused, looking at each person in the room. When his malicious stare fell back on Thomas, he had one last thing to say. Whatever you came here for, I swear on my life, I'm going to stop it. Kill you if I have to. Then he turned and left the room, slamming the door behind him. Chapter 26 Thomas sat frozen in his chair, 
a sickness growing in his stomach like an infestation. He'd been through the whole gamut of emotions in the short time since he'd arrived at the glade. Fear, loneliness, desperation, sadness, even the slightest hint of joy. But this was something new. To hear a person say they hate you enough that they want to kill you. Gally's crazy, he told himself. He's completely insane. But the thought only increased his worries. Insane people could really be capable of anything. The council members stood or sat in silence, seemingly as shocked as Thomas at what they'd just seen. Newt and Winston finally let go of Minho. All three of them sullenly walked to their chairs and sat down. He's finally whacked for good, Minho said, almost in a whisper. Thomas couldn't tell if he'd meant for the others to hear him. Well, you're not the bloody saint in the room, Newt said. What were you thinking? That's a little overboard, don't you think? Minho squinched up his eyes and pulled his head back, as if he were baffled by Newt's question. Don't give me that garbage. Every one of you loved seeing that slinthead get his dues, and you know it. It's about time someone stood up to his clunk. He's on the council for a reason, Newt said. Dude, he threatened to break my neck and kill Thomas. The guy is mentally whacked, and you better send someone right now and throw him in the slammer. He's dangerous. Thomas couldn't have agreed more, and once again almost broke his order to stay quiet, but stopped himself. He didn't want to get in any more trouble than he was already in, but he didn't know how much longer he could last. Maybe he had a good point, Winston said, almost too quietly. What? Minho asked, mirroring Thomas's thoughts exactly. Winston looked surprised at the acknowledgement that he'd said anything. His eyes darted around the room before he explained. Well, he has been through the changing. Griever stung him in the middle of the day just outside the west door. That means he has memories. And he said the greenie looks familiar. Why would he make that up? Thomas thought about the changing and the fact that it brought back memories. The idea hadn't occurred to him before, but would it be worth it to get stung by the grievers, go through that horrible process, just to remember something? He pictured Ben writhing in bed and remembered Albie's screams. No way, he thought. Winston, did you see what just happened? Frypan asked, looking incredulous. Galley's psycho. You can't put too much stock in his rambling nonsense. What, you think Thomas here is a griever in disguise? Council rules or no council rules, Thomas had finally had enough. He couldn't stay silent another second. Can I say something now? he asked, frustration raising the volume of his voice. I'm sick of you guys talking about me like I'm not here. Newt glanced up at him and nodded. Go ahead. This bloody meeting can't be much more screwed up. Thomas quickly gathered his thoughts, grasping for the right words inside the swirling cloud of frustration, confusion, and anger in his mind. I don't know why Galley hates me. I don't care. He seems psychotic to me. As for who I really am, you all know just as much as I do. But if I remember correctly, we're here because of what I did out in the maze, not because some idiot thinks I'm evil. Someone snickered and Thomas quit talking, hoping he'd gotten his point across. Newt nodded, looking satisfied. Good that. Let's get this meeting over with and worry about Galley later. We can't vote without all the members here, Winston insisted. 
Unless they're really sick, like Albie. For the love, Winston, Newt replied. I'd say Galley's a wee bit ill today, too, so we continue without him. Thomas, defend yourself, and then we'll take the vote on what we should do with you. Thomas realized his hands were squeezed up into fists on his lap. He relaxed them and wiped his sweaty palms on his pants. Then he began, not sure of what he'd say before the words came out. I didn't do anything wrong. All I know is I saw two people struggling to get inside these walls and they couldn't make it. To ignore that because of some stupid rule seemed selfish, cowardly, and, well, stupid. If you want to throw me in jail for trying to save someone's life, then go ahead. Next time, I promise, I'll point at them and laugh, then go eat some of Frypan's dinner. Thomas wasn't trying to be funny. He was just dumbfounded that the whole thing could even be an issue. Here's my recommendation, Newt said. You broke our bloody number one rule, so you get one day in the slammer. That's your punishment. I also recommend we elect you as a runner, effective the second this meeting's over. You've proven more in one night than most trainees do in weeks. As for you being the bug and keeper, forget it. He looked over at Minho. Galley was right on that account. Stupid idea. The comment hurt Thomas's feelings, even though he couldn't disagree. He looked to Minho for his reaction. The keeper didn't seem surprised, but argued all the same. Why? He's the best we have, I swear it. The best should be the keeper. Fine. Newt responded. If that's true, we'll make the change later. Give it a month and see if he proves himself. Minho shrugged. Good that. Thomas quietly sighed in relief. He still wanted to be a runner, which surprised him, considering what he'd just gone through out in the maze, but becoming the keeper right away sounded ridiculous. Newt glanced around the room. Okay, we had several recommendations, so let's give it a go-round. Oh, come on, Frypan said. Just vote. I vote for yours. Me too, Minho said. Everyone else chimed in their approval, filling Thomas with relief and a sense of pride. Winston was the only one to say no. Newt looked at him. We don't need your vote, but tell us what's been bonking around your brain. Winston gazed at Thomas carefully, then back to Newt. It's fine with me, but we shouldn't totally ignore what Galley said. Something about it. I don't think he just made it up. And it's true that ever since Thomas got here, everything's been shucked and screwy. Fair enough, Newt said. Everyone put some thought into it. Maybe then we can get right nice and bored and we can have another gathering to talk about it. Good that? Winston nodded. Thomas groaned at how invisible he'd become. I love how you guys are just talking about me like I'm not here. Look, Tommy, Newt said. We just elected you as a bug and runner. Quit your crying and get out of here. Minho has a lot of training to give you. It hadn't really hit Thomas until then. He was going to be a runner, explore the maze. Despite everything, he felt a shiver of excitement. He was sure they could avoid getting trapped out there at night again. Maybe he'd had his one and only turn of bad luck. What about my punishment? Tomorrow, Newt answered. The wake up till sunset. One day, Thomas thought. That won't be so bad. The meeting was dismissed and everyone except Newt and Minho left the room in a hurry. Newt hadn't moved from his chair where he sat jotting notes. Well, that was good times, he murmured. 
Minho walked over and playfully punched Thomas in the arm. It's all this shank's fault. Thomas punched him back. Keeper? You want me to be keeper? You're nuttier than Galley by a long shot. Minho faked an evil grin. Worked, didn't it? Aim high, hit low. Thank me later. Thomas couldn't help smiling at the keeper's clever ways. A knock on the opened door grabbed his attention. He turned to see who it was. Chuck stood there, looking like he'd just been chased by a griever. Thomas felt the grin fade from his face. What's wrong? Newt asked, standing up. The tone of his voice only heightened Thomas's concern. Chuck was wringing his hands. Medjack sent me. Why? I guess Albie's thrashing around and acting all crazy, telling them he needs to talk to somebody. Newt made for the door, but Chuck held up his hand. Um, he doesn't want you. What do you mean? Chuck pointed at Thomas. He keeps asking for him. Chapter 27 For the second time that day, Thomas was shocked into silence. Well, come on, Newt said to Thomas as he grabbed his arm. No way I'm not going with you. Thomas followed him, with Chuck right behind, as they left the council room and went down the hall toward a narrow, spiraling staircase that he hadn't noticed before. Newt took the first step, then gave Chuck a cold glare. You, stay. For once, Chuck simply nodded and said nothing. Thomas figured that something about Albie's behavior had the kid's nerves on edge. Lighten up, Thomas said to Chuck as Newt headed up the staircase. They just elected me a runner, so you're buddies with a stud now. He was trying to make a joke, trying to deny that he was terrified to see Albie. What if he made accusations like Ben had? Or worse? Yeah, right, Chuck whispered, staring at the wooden steps in a daze. With a shrug, Thomas began climbing the stairs. Sweat slicked his palms, and he felt a drop trickle down his temple. He did not want to go up there. Newt, all grim and solemn, was waiting for Thomas at the top of the stairwell. They stood at the opposite end of the long, dark hallway from the usual staircase, the one Thomas had climbed on his very first day to see Ben. The memory made him queasy. He hoped Albie was completely healed from the ordeal, so he didn't have to witness something like that again, the sickly skin, the veins, the thrashing. But he expected the worst and braced himself. He followed Newt to the second door on the right and watched as the older boy knocked lightly. A moan sounded in reply. Newt pushed open the door, the slight creak once again reminding Thomas of some vague childhood memory of haunted house movies. There it was again, the smallest glimpse at his past. He could remember movies, but not the actors' faces or with whom he'd watched them. He could remember theaters, but not what any specific one looked like. It was impossible to explain how that felt, even to himself. Newt had stepped into the room and was motioning for Thomas to follow. As he entered, he prepared himself for the horror that might await. But when his eyes lifted, all he saw was a very weak-looking teenage boy lying in his bed, eyes closed. Is he asleep? Thomas whispered trying to avoid the real question that had popped in his mind. He's not dead, is he? I don't know, Newt said quietly. 
He walked over and sat in a wooden chair next to the bed. Thomas took a seat on the other side. Alby, Newt whispered. Then more loudly. Alby, Chuck said you wanted to talk to Tommy. Alby's eyes fluttered open, bloodshot orbs that glistened in the light. He looked at Newt, then across at Thomas. With a groan, he shifted in the bed and sat up, his back against the headboard. Yeah, he muttered, a scratchy croak. Chuck said you were thrashing around acting like a loony, Newt leaned forward. What's wrong? You still sick? Albie's next words came out in a wheeze, as if every one of them would take a week off his life. Everything's gonna change. The girl, Thomas, I saw them. His eyelids flickered closed, then open again. He sank back to a flat position on the bed, stared at the ceiling. Don't feel so good. What do you mean you saw? Newt began. I wanted Thomas! Albie yelled, with a sudden burst of energy that Thomas would have thought impossible a few seconds earlier. I didn't ask for you, Newt! Thomas! I asked for freaking Thomas! Newt looked up, questioned Thomas with a raising of his eyebrows. Thomas shrugged, feeling sicker by the second. What did Albie want him for? Fine, you grouchy shuck, Newt said. He's right here. Talk to him. Leave, Albie said. His eyes closed, his breathing heavy. No way, I want to hear. Newt. A pause. Leave. Now. Thomas felt incredibly awkward, worried about what Newt was thinking and dreading what Albie wanted to say to him. But, Newt protested. Out! Albie sat up as he yelled, his voice cracking with the strain of it. He scooted himself back to lean against the headboard again. Get out! Newt's face sank in obvious hurt. Thomas was surprised to see no anger there. Then, after a long, tense moment, Newt stood from his chair and walked over to the door, opened it. He's really going to leave? Thomas thought. Don't expect me to kiss your butt when you come saying sorry, he said then stepped into the hallway. Close the door, Albie shouted, one final insult. Newt obeyed, slamming it shut. Thomas's heart rate quickened. He was now alone with a guy who'd had a bad temper before getting attacked by a griever and going through the changing. He hoped Albie would say what he wanted and be done with it. A long pause stretched into several minutes, and Thomas's hands shook with fear. I know who you are, Albie said, finally breaking the silence. Thomas couldn't find words to reply. He tried. Nothing came out but an incoherent mumble. He was utterly confused and scared. I know who you are, Albie repeated slowly. Seen it. Seen everything. Where we came from, who you are. Who the girl is. I remember the flare. The flare? Thomas forced himself to talk. I don't know what you're talking about. What did you see? I'd love to know who I am. It ain't pretty, Albie answered. 
and for the first time since Newt had left, Albie looked up straight at Thomas. His eyes were deep pockets of sorrow, sunken, dark. It's horrible, you know. Why would those shucks want us to remember? Why can't we just live here and be happy? Albie, Thomas wished he could take a peek in the boy's mind, see what he'd seen. The changing, he pressed. What happened? What came back? You're not making any sense. You... Albie started, then suddenly grabbed his own throat, making gurgly choking sounds. His legs kicked out, and he rolled onto his side, thrashing back and forth as if someone else were trying to strangle him. His tongue stuck out of his mouth. He bit it over and over. Thomas stood up quickly, stumbled backward, horrified. Albie struggled as if he was having a seizure, his legs kicking in every direction. The dark skin of his face, which had been oddly pale just a minute earlier, had turned purple. His eyes rolled up so far in their sockets they looked like glowing white marbles. Albie! Thomas yelled, not daring to reach down and grab him. Newt! he screamed, cupping his hands around his mouth. Newt, get in here! The door was flung open before he'd finished his last sentence. Newt ran to Albie and grabbed him by the shoulders, pushing with his whole body to pin the convulsing boy to the bed. Grab his legs! Thomas moved forward, but Albie's legs kicked and flailed out, making it impossible to get any closer. His foot hit Thomas in the jaw. A lance of pain shot through his whole skull. He stumbled backward again, rubbing the sore spot. Just bloody do it! Newt yelled. Thomas steeled himself, then jumped on top of Albie's body, grabbing both legs and pinning them to the bed. He wrapped his arms around the boy's thighs and squeezed while Newt put a knee on one of Albie's shoulders, then grabbed at Albie's hands, still clasped around his own neck in a chokehold. Let go! Newt yelled as he tugged. You're bloody killing yourself! Thomas could see the muscles in Newt's arms flexing, veins popping out as he pulled at Albie's hands, until finally, inch by inch, he was able to pry them away. He pushed them tightly against the struggling boy's chest. Albie's whole body jerked a couple of times, his midsection thrusting up and away from the bed. Then, slowly, he calmed, and a few seconds later, he lay still, his breath evening. His eyes glazed over. Thomas held firm on Albie's legs, afraid to move and set the boy off again. Newt waited a full minute before he slowly let go of Albie's hands. Then another minute before he pulled his knee back and stood up. Thomas took that as his cue to do the same, hoping the ordeal had truly ended. Albie looked up, eyes droopy, as if he was on the edge of slipping into a deep sleep. I'm sorry, Newt, he whispered. Don't know what happened. It was like something was controlling my body. I'm sorry. Thomas took a deep breath, sure he'd never experienced something so disturbing and uncomfortable again. He hoped. Sorry's nothing, Newt replied. You were trying to bloody kill yourself. Wasn't me, I swear, Albie murmured. Newt threw his hands up. What do you mean it wasn't you? he asked. I don't know. It, it wasn't me. Albie looked just as confused as Thomas felt. 
But Newt seemed to think it wasn't worth trying to figure out, at least at the moment. He grabbed the blankets that had fallen off the bed in Albie's struggle and pulled them atop the sick boy. Get your butt to sleep, and we'll talk about it later. He patted him on the head, then added, You're messed up, Shank. But Albie was already drifting off, nodding slightly as his eyes closed. Newt caught Thomas's gaze and gestured for the door. Thomas had no problem leaving that crazy house. He followed Newt out and into the hall. Then, just as they stepped through the doorway, Albie mumbled something from his bed. Both boys stopped in their tracks. What? Newt asked. Albie opened his eyes for a brief moment, then repeated what he'd said a little more loudly. Be careful with the girl. Then his eyes slid shut. There it was again, the girl. Somehow things always led back to the girl. Newt gave Thomas a questioning look, but Thomas could only return it with a shrug. He had no idea what was going on. Let's go, Newt whispered. And Newt, Albie called again from the bed, not bothering to open his eyes. Yeah? Protect the maps. Albie rolled over, his back telling them he'd finally finished speaking. Thomas didn't think that sounded very good. Not good at all. He and Newt left the room and softly closed the door. Chapter 28 Thomas followed Newt as he hurried down the stairs and out of the homestead into the bright light of mid-afternoon. Neither boy said a word for a while. For Thomas, things just seemed to be getting worse and worse. Hungry, Tommy? Newt asked when they were outside. Thomas couldn't believe the question. Hungry? I feel like puking after what I just saw. No, I'm not hungry. Newt only grinned. Well, I am, Yushank. Let's go look for some leftovers from lunch. We need to talk. Somehow I knew you were going to say something like that. No matter what he did, he was becoming more and more entwined in the dealings of the Glade. And he was growing to expect it. They made their way directly to the kitchen, where, despite Frypan's grumbling, they were able to get cheese sandwiches and raw vegetables. Thomas couldn't ignore the way the keeper of the cooks kept giving him a weird look, eyes darting away whenever Thomas returned the stare. Something told him this sort of treatment would now be the norm. For some reason, he was different from everyone else in the Glade. He felt like he'd lived an entire lifetime since awakening from his memory wipe, but he'd only been there a week. The boys decided to take their lunches to eat outside, and a few minutes later they found themselves on the west wall, looking out at the many work activities going on throughout the glade, their backs up against a spot of thick ivy. Thomas forced himself to eat. The way things were going, he needed to make sure he'd have strength to deal with whatever insane thing came his way next. Ever seen that happen before? Thomas asked after a minute or so. Newt looked at him, his face suddenly somber. What Albie just did? No, never. But then again, no one's ever tried to tell us what they remembered during the changing. They always refuse. Albie tried to. Must be why he went nuts for a while. Thomas paused in the middle of chewing. Could the people behind the maze control them somehow? It was a terrifying thought. We have to find Galley. 
Newt said through a bite of carrot, changing the subject. Bugger's gone off and hid somewhere. Soon as we're done eating, I need to find him and throw his butt in jail. Serious? Thomas couldn't help feeling a shot of pure elation at the thought. He'd be happy to slam the door closed and throw away the key himself. That shank threatened to kill you, and we have to make bloody sure it never happens again. That shockface is going to pay a heavy price for acting like that. He's lucky we don't banish him. Remember what I told you about order? Yeah? Thomas's only concern was that Galley would just hate him all the more for being thrown in jail. I don't care, he thought. I'm not scared of that guy anymore. Here's how it'll play out, Tommy, Newt said. You're with me the rest of today. We need to figure things. Tomorrow, the slammer. Then your mean hose, and I want you to stay away from the other shanks for a while. Got it? Thomas was more than happy to oblige. Being mostly alone sounded like a great idea. Sounds beautiful. So Minho's going to train me? That's right. You're a runner now. Minho'll teach you. The maze, the maps, everything. Lots to learn. I expect you to work your butt off. Thomas was shocked that the idea of entering the maze again didn't frighten him all that much. He resolved to do just as Newt said, hoping it would keep his mind off things. Deeper down, he hoped to get out of the glade as much as possible. Avoiding other people was his new goal in life. The boys sat in silence, finishing their lunches, until Newt finally got to what he really wanted to talk about. Crumpling his trash into a ball, he turned and looked straight at Thomas. Thomas, he began, I need you to accept something. We've heard it too many times now to deny it, and it's time to discuss it. Thomas knew what was coming but was startled. He dreaded the words. Galley said it, Albie said it, Ben said it, Newt continued. The girl, after we took her out of the box, she said it. He paused, perhaps expecting Thomas to ask what he meant, but Thomas already knew. They all said things were going to change. Newt looked away for a moment, then turned back. That's right. And Galley, Albie, and Ben claim they saw you in their memories after the changing. And from what I gather, you weren't planting flowers and helping old ladies cross the street. According to Galley, there's something rotten enough about you that he wants to kill you. Newt, I don't know, Thomas started, but Newt didn't let him finish. I know you don't remember anything, Thomas. Quit saying that. Don't ever say it again. None of us remember anything, and we're bloody sick of you reminding us. The point is... There's something different about you, and it's time we figured it out. Thomas was overwhelmed by a surge of anger. Fine, so how do we do it? I want to know who I am just as much as anyone else. Obviously. I need you to open your mind. Be honest if anything, anything at all, seems familiar. Nothing, Thomas started, but stopped. So much had happened since arriving He'd almost forgotten how familiar the glade had felt to him that first night, sleeping next to Chuck. How comfortable and at home he'd felt. A far cry from the terror he should have experienced. I can see a wheel spinning, Newt said quietly. Talk. Thomas hesitated, scared of the consequences of what he was about to say. But he was tired of keeping secrets. Well... I can't put my finger on anything specific. He spoke slowly, carefully. But I did feel like I'd been here before when I first got here. 
He looked at Newt, hoping to see some sort of recognition in his eyes. Anyone else go through that? But Newt's face was blank. He simply rolled his eyes. Uh, no, Tommy. Most of us spent a week clunking our pants and bawling our eyes out. Yeah, well, Thomas paused, upset and suddenly embarrassed. What did it all mean? Was he different from everyone else somehow? Was something wrong with him? It all seemed familiar to me, and I knew I wanted to be a runner. That's bloody interesting. Newt examined him for a second, not hiding his obvious suspicion. Well, keep looking for it. Strain your mind. Spend your free time wandering your thoughts and think about this place. Delve inside that brain of yours and seek it out. Try, for all our sakes. I will. Thomas closed his eyes, started searching the darkness of his mind. Not now, you dumb shuck, Newt laughed. I just meant to do it from now on. Free time, meals, going to sleep at night, as you walk around, train, work. Tell me anything that seems remotely familiar. Got it? Yeah, got it. Thomas couldn't help worrying that he'd thrown up some red flags for Newt and that the older boy was just hiding his concern. Good that, Newt said, looking almost too agreeable. To begin, we better go see someone. Who? Thomas asked, but knew the answer as soon as he spoke. Dread filled him again. The girl. I want you to look at her till your eyes bleed, see if something gets triggered in that shock brain of yours. Newt gathered his lunch trash and stood up. Then I want you to tell me every single word Albie said to you. Thomas sighed, then got to his feet. Okay. He didn't know if he could bring himself to tell the complete truth about Albie's accusations, not to mention how he felt about the girl. It looked like he wasn't done keeping secrets after all. The boys walked back toward the homestead, where the girl still lay in a coma. Thomas couldn't stifle his worry about what Newt was thinking. He'd opened himself up, and he really liked Newt. If Newt turned on him now, Thomas didn't know if he could handle it. If all else fails, Newt said, interrupting Thomas's thoughts, we'll send you to the grievers, get you stung so you can go through the changing. We need your memories. Thomas barked a sarcastic laugh at the idea, but Newt wasn't smiling. The girl seemed to be sleeping peacefully, like she'd wake up at any minute. Thomas had almost expected the skeletal remnant of a person, somehow on the verge of death. But her chest rose and fell with even breaths. Her skin was full of color. One of the medjacks was there, the shorter one. Thomas couldn't remember his name, dropping water into the comatose girl's mouth a few drips at a time. A plate and bowl on the bedside table had the remains of her lunch, mashed potatoes and soup. They were doing everything possible to keep her alive and healthy. Hey, Clint, Newt said, sounding comfortable, like he'd stopped by to visit many times before. She's surviving. Yeah, Clint answered. She's doing fine, though she talks in her sleep all the time. We think she'll come out of it soon. Thomas felt his hackles rise. For some reason, he'd never really considered the possibility that the girl might wake up and be okay that she might talk to people. He had no idea why that suddenly made him so nervous. Have you been writing down every word she says? Newt asked. Clint nodded. 
Most of it's impossible to understand, but yeah, when we can. Newt pointed at a notepad on the nightstand. Give me an example. Well, the same thing she said when we pulled her out of the box about things changing. Other stuff about the creators and how it all has to end. And, uh, Clint looked at Thomas as if he didn't want to continue in his company. It's okay. He can hear whatever I hear, Newt assured him. Well, I can't make it all out, but Clint looked at Thomas again. She keeps saying his name over and over. Thomas almost fell down at this. Would the references to him never end? How did he know this girl? It was like a maddening itch inside his skull that wouldn't go away. Thanks, Clint, Newt said, in what sounded to Thomas like an obvious dismissal. Get us a report of all that, okay? We'll do. The medjack nodded at both of them and left the room. Pull up a chair, Newt said as he sat on the edge of the bed. Thomas, relieved that Newt still hadn't erupted into accusations, grabbed the one from the desk and placed it right next to where the girl's head lay. He sat down, leaning forward to look at her face. Anything ring a bell? Newt asked. Anything at all? Thomas didn't respond, kept looking, willing his mind to break down the memory barrier and seek out this girl from his past. He thought back to those brief moments when she'd opened her eyes right after being pulled out of the box. They'd been blue, richer in color than the eyes of any other person he could remember seeing before. He tried to picture those eyes on her now as he looked at her slumbering face, melding the two images in his mind. Her black hair, her perfect white skin, her full lips. As he stared at her, he realized once more how truly beautiful she was. Stronger recognition briefly tickled the back of his mind, a flutter of wings in a dark corner, unseen, but there all the same. It lasted only an instant before vanishing into the abyss of his other captured memories. But he had felt something. I do know her, he whispered, leaning back in his chair. It felt good to finally admit it out loud. Newt stood up. What? Who is she? No idea. But something clicked. I know her from somewhere. Thomas rubbed his eyes, frustrated that he couldn't solidify the link. We'll keep bloody thinking. Don't lose it. Concentrate. I'm trying, so shut up. Thomas closed his eyes, searched the darkness of his thoughts, seeking her face in that emptiness. Who was she? The irony of the question struck him. He didn't even know who he was. He leaned forward in his chair and took a deep breath, then looked at Newt, shaking his head in surrender. I just don't... Teresa. Thomas jolted up from the chair, knocked it backward, spun in a circle, searching. He had heard... What's wrong? Newt asked. Did you remember something? Thomas ignored him, looking around the room in confusion, knowing he'd heard a voice, then back at the girl. I... He sat back down, leaned forward, staring at the girl's face. Newt, did you just say something before I stood up? No. Of course not. Oh, I just thought I heard something. I don't know. Maybe it was in my head. Did she say anything? Her? Newt asked, his eyes lit up. No. Why? 
What did you hear? Thomas was scared to admit it. I... I swear I heard a name. Teresa. Teresa? No, I didn't hear that. Must have sprung loose from your bloody memory blocks. That's her name, Tommy. Teresa. Has to be. Thomas felt odd, an uncomfortable feeling, like something supernatural had just occurred. It was... I swear I heard it. But in my mind, man, I can't explain it. Thomas. This time he jumped from the chair and scrambled as far from the bed as possible, knocking over the lamp on the table. It landed with the crash of broken glass. A voice, a girl's voice, whispery, sweet, confident. He'd heard it. He knew he'd heard it. What's bloody wrong with you? Newt asked. Thomas's heart was racing. He felt the thumps in his skull. Acid boiled in his stomach. She's... she's freaking talking to me. In my head. She just said my name. What? I swear. The world...